This is Audible. Listening Library presents Brissinger, or the Seven Promises of Aragon Shadeslayer and Sephira Bjartskuller. Inheritance, Book Three, by Christopher Paolini. Read for you by Gerard Doyle, with an exclusive interview between Christopher Paolini and his editor Michelle Fry, immediately following the program. The Gates of Death. Aragon stared at the dark tower of stone, wherein hid the monsters who had murdered his uncle, Garrow. He was lying on his belly behind the edge of a sandy hill, dotted with sparse blades of grass, thorn bushes, and small rosebud-like cactuses. The brittle stems of last year's foliage pricked his palms as he inched forward to gain a better view of Hellgrind. Which loomed over the surrounding land like a black dagger thrust out from the bowels of the earth. The evening sun streaked the low hills with shadows long and narrow, and far in the west, illuminated the surface of Leona Lake, so that the horizon became a rippling bar of gold. To his left, Aragon heard the steady breathing of his cousin Roran, who was stretched out beside him. The normally inaudible flow of air seemed preternaturally loud to Aragon, with his heightened sense of hearing. One of many such changes wrought by his experience during the Agati Blodren, the Elves' Blood Oath celebration. He paid little attention to that now, as he watched a column of people inch toward the base of Helgrine, apparently having walked from the city of Drasleona some miles away. A contingent of twenty-four men and women, garbed in thick leather robes, occupied the head of the column. This group moved with many strange and varied gaits. They limped and shuffled and humped and wriggled. They swung on crutches or used arms to propel themselves forward on curiously short legs. Contortions that were necessary because, as Aragon realized, every one of the twenty-four lacked an arm or a leg. Or some combination thereof. Their leader sat upright upon a litter borne by six oiled slaves, a pose Aragon regarded as a rather amazing accomplishment, considering that the man or woman he could not tell which consisted of nothing more than a torso and head, upon whose brow balanced an ornate leather crest three feet high. The priests of Helgrind, he murmured to Roran, can they use magic? Possibly, I dare not explore Helgrind with my mind until they leave. For if any are magicians, they will sense my touch, however light, and our presence will be revealed. Behind the priests trudged a double line of young men swathed in gold cloth. Each carried a rectangular metal frame, subdivided by twelve horizontal crossbars, from which hung iron bells the size of winter rutabagas. Half of the young men gave their frames a vigorous shake when they stepped forward with their right foot, producing a dolorous cacophony of notes, while the other half shook their frames when they advanced upon the left foot, causing iron tongues to crash against iron throats and emit a mournful clamor that echoed over the hills. The acolytes accompanied the throbbing of the bells with their own cries, groaning and shouting in an ecstasy of passion. At the rear of the grotesque procession, 
trudged a comet's tail of inhabitants from Drasleona. Nobles, merchants, tradesmen, several high-ranking military commanders, and a motley collection of those less fortunate, such as labourers, beggars, and common foot soldiers. Eragon wondered if Drasleona's governor, Marcus Tabor, was somewhere in their midst. Drawing to a stop at the edge of the precipitous mound of scree that ringed Helgrind, the priests gathered on either side of a rust-coloured boulder with a polished top. When the entire column stood motionless before the crude altar, the creature upon the litter stirred and began to chant in a voice as discordant as the moaning of the bells. The shaman's declamations were repeatedly truncated by gusts of wind, but Aragon caught snatches of the ancient language, strangely twisted and mispronounced, interspersed with dwarf and ergol words, all of which were united by an archaic dialect of Aragon's own tongue. What he understood caused him to shudder, for the sermon spoke of things best left unknown, of a malevolent hate that had festered for centuries in the dark caverns of people's hearts before being allowed to flourish in the rider's absence, of blood and madness, and of foul rituals performed underneath a black moon. At the end of that depraved oration, two of the lesser priests rushed forward and lifted their master, or mistress as the case might be, off the litter and onto the face of the altar. Then the high priest issued a brief order. Twin blades of steel winked like stars as they rose and fell. A rivulet of blood sprang from each of the high priest's shoulders, flowed down the leather-encased torso, and then pooled across the boulder until it overflowed onto the gravel below. Two more priests jumped forward to catch the crimson flow in goblets that when filled to the rim were distributed among the members of the congregation, who drank eagerly. Gah! said Roran in an undertone. You failed to mention that those errant fleshmongers, those gore-bellied, boggle-minded idiot-worshippers, were cannibals. Not quite. They do not partake of the meat. When all the attendees had wet their throats, the servile novitiates returned the high priest to the litter and bound the creature's shoulders with strips of white linen. Wet blotches quickly sullied the virgin cloth. The wounds seemed to have no effect upon the high priest, for the limbless figure rotated back toward the devotees with their lips of cranberry red and pronounced, Now are you truly my brothers and sisters, having tasted the sap of my veins here in the shadow of almighty Hellgrind. Blood calls to blood, and if ever your family should need help, do then what you can for the church and for others who acknowledge the power of our dread Lord, to affirm and reaffirm our fealty to the triumvirate. Recite with me the nine oaths. By Gorm, Hilda, and Fel Angvara, we vow to perform homage at least thrice a month in the hour before dusk and then to make an offering of ourselves to appease the eternal hunger of our great and terrible Lord. We vow to observe the strictures as they are presented in the Book of Tosk. We vow to always carry our Bregner on our bodies, 
and to forever abstain from the twelve of twelves and the touch of a many-knotted rope, lest it corrupt. A sudden rise in the wind obscured the rest of the high priest's list. Then Aragon saw those who listened take out a small curved knife, and one by one cut themselves in the crook of their elbows and anoint the altar with a stream of their blood. Some minutes later the angry breeze subsided, and Aragon again heard the priest. And such things as you long and lust for will be granted to you as a reward for your obedience. Our worship is complete. However, if any now stand among you who are brave enough to demonstrate the true depth of their faith, let them show themselves. The audience stiffened and leaned forward, their faces rapt. This, apparently, was what they had been waiting for. For a long, silent pause, it seemed as if they would be disappointed. But then one of the acolytes broke ranks and shouted, I will! With a roar of delight, his brethren began to brandish their bells in a quick and savage beat. Whipping the congregation into such a frenzy, they jumped and yelled as if they had taken leave of their senses. The rough music kindled a spark of excitement in Aragon's heart, despite his revulsion at the proceedings, waking some primal and brutish part of him. Shedding his gold robes so that he wore nothing but a leather breechcloth, the dark-haired youth sprang on top of the altar. Gouts of ruby spray erupted on either side of his feet. He faced Helgrind and began to shiver and quake as if stricken with palsy, keeping time with the tolling of the cruel iron bells. His head rolled loosely upon his neck, foam gathered at the corners of his mouth, his arms thrashed like snakes. Sweat oiled his muscles until he gleamed like a bronze statue in the dying light. The bells soon reached a manic tempo, where one note clashed against another, at which point the young man thrust a hand out behind himself. Into it, a priest deposited the hilt of a bizarre implement. A single-edged weapon two and a half feet long, with a full tang, scale grips, a vestigial crossguard, and a broad, flat blade that widened and was scalloped near the end, a shape reminiscent of a dragon wing. It was a tool designed for but one purpose, to hack through armor and bones and sinew as easily as through a bulging waterskin. The young man lifted the weapon so that it slanted toward the highest peak of Helgrind. Then he dropped to one knee, and with an incoherent cry brought the blade down across his right wrist. Blood sprayed the rocks behind the altar. Aragon winced and averted his eyes, although he could not escape the youth's piercing screams. It was nothing Aragon had not seen in battle, but it seemed wrong to deliberately mutilate yourself when it was so easy to become disfigured in everyday life. Blades of grass rasped against one another as Roran shifted his weight. He muttered some curse which was lost in his beard, and then fell silent again. While a priest tended to the young man's wound, stanching the bleeding with a spell, an acolyte let loose two slaves from the high priest's litter, only to chain them by the ankles to an iron loop embedded in the altar. Then the acolytes divested themselves of numerous packages from underneath their robes and piled them on the ground, out of reach of the slaves. Their ceremonies at an end, the priests and their retinue, 
departed Helgrind for Drasleona, wailing and ringing the entire way. The now one-handed zealot stumbled along just behind the high priest. A beatific smile graced his face. Well, said Aragon, and released his pent-up breath as the column vanished behind a distant hill. Well, what? I've travelled among both dwarves and elves, and nothing they did was ever as strange as what those people, those humans, do. They're as monstrous as the Razak. Roran jerked his chin toward Helgrind. Can you find out now if Katrina is in there? I'll try, but be ready to run. Closing his eyes, Aragon slowly extended his consciousness outward moving from the mind of one living thing to another, like tendrils of water seeping through sand. He touched teeming cities of insects frantically scurrying about their business, lizards and snakes hidden among warm rocks, diverse species of songbirds and numerous small mammals. Insects and animals alike bustled with activity as they prepared for the fast-approaching night, whether by retreating to their various dens or in the case of those of a nocturnal bent, by yawning, stretching, and otherwise readying themselves to hunt and forage. Just as with his other senses, Aragon's ability to touch another being's thoughts diminished with distance. By the time his psychic probe arrived at the base of Helgrind, he could perceive only the largest of animals, and even those but faintly. He proceeded with caution, ready to withdraw at a second's notice if he happened to brush against the minds of their prey. The Razak, and the Razak's parents and steeds, the gigantic leather blucker. Aragon was willing to expose himself in this manner only because none of the Razak's breed could use magic, and he did not believe that they were mind-breakers, non-magicians trained to fight with telepathy. The Razak and leather blucker had no need for such tricks, when their breath alone could induce a stupor in the largest of men and though Aragon risked discovery by his ghostly investigation, he, Roran, and Sephira had to know if the Razak had imprisoned Katrina, Roran's betrothed, in Helgrind, for the answer would determine whether their mission was one of rescue or one of capture and interrogation. Aragon searched long and hard. When he returned to himself, Roran was watching him with the expression of a starving wolf. His grey eyes burned with a mixture of anger, hope, and despair that was so great it seemed as if his emotions might burst forth and incinerate everything in sight in a blaze of unimaginable intensity, melting the very rocks themselves. This Aragon understood. Katrina's father, the butcher Sloan, had betrayed Roran to the Razak. When they failed to capture him, the Razak had instead seized Katrina from Roran's bedroom and spirited her away from Palankar Valley, leaving the inhabitants of Carvajal to be killed and enslaved by King Galbatorix's soldiers. Unable to pursue Katrina, Roran had, just in time, convinced the villagers to abandon their homes and to follow him across the spine and then south along the coast of Alagazia, where they joined forces with the rebel Varden. The hardships they endured as a result had been many and terrible. But circuitous as it was, that course had reunited Roran with Aragon, who knew the location of the Razak's den, and had promised to help save Katrina. 
Roran had only succeeded, as he later explained, because the strength of his passion drove him to extremes that others feared and avoided, and thus allowed him to confound his enemies. A similar fervor now gripped Aragon. He would leap into harm's way without the slightest regard for his own safety if someone he cared for was in danger. He loved Roran as a brother, and since Roran was to marry Katrina, Aragon had extended his definition of family to include her as well. This concept seemed even more important because Aragon and Roran were the last heirs of their line. Aragon had renounced all affiliation with his birth brother Murtag, and the only relatives he and Roran had left were each other. And now Katrina. Noble sentiments of kinship were not the only force that drove the pair. Another goal obsessed them as well. Revenge. Even as they plotted to snatch Katrina from the grasp of the Razak, so the two warriors, mortal man and dragon rider alike, sought to slay King Galbatorix's unnatural servants for torturing and murdering Garrow, who was Roran's father and had been as a father to Aragon. The intelligence then that Aragon had gleaned was as important to him as to Roran. I think I felt her, he said. It's hard to be certain because we're so far from Hellgrind and I've never touched her mind before. But I think she's in that forsaken peak, concealed somewhere near the very top. Is she sick? Is she injured? Blasted Aragon, don't hide it from me. Have they hurt her? She's in no pain at the moment. More than that, I cannot say, for it required all my strength just to make out the glow of her consciousness. I could not communicate with her. Aragon refrained from mentioning, however, that he had detected a second person as well, one whose identity he suspected, and the presence of whom, if confirmed, troubled him greatly. What I didn't find were the Razak or the Leather Blacker. Even if I somehow overlooked the Razak, their parents are so large, their life force should blaze like a thousand lanterns, even as Sephira's does. Aside from Katrina and a few other dim specks of light, Hellgrind is black, black, black. Roran scowled, clenched his left fist, and glared at the mountain of rock, which was fading into the dusk as purple shadows enveloped it. In a low, flat voice, as if talking with himself, he said, It doesn't matter whether you are right or wrong. How so? We dare not attack tonight. Night is when the Razak are strongest, and if they are nearby, it would be stupid to fight them when we're at a disadvantage. Agreed? Yes. So we wait for the dawn. Roran gestured toward the slaves chained to the gory altar. If those poor wretches are gone by then, we know the Razak are here, and we proceed as planned. If not, we curse our bad luck that they escaped us, free the slaves, rescue Katrina, and fly back to the Varden with her before Murtag hunts us down. Either way, I doubt the Razak will leave Katrina unattended for long. Not if Galbatorix wants her to survive, so he can use her as a tool against me. Aragon nodded. He wanted to release the slaves now, but doing so could warn their foes that something was amiss. Nor, if the Razak came to collect their dinner, 
could he and Sephira intercede before the slaves were ferried away? A battle in the open between a dragon and creatures such as the leather blocker would attract the attention of every man, woman, and child for leagues around. And Aragon did not think he, Sephira, or Roran could survive if Galbatorix learned they were alone in his empire. He looked away from the shackled men. For their sake, I hope the Razak are on the other side of Alagazia, or at least that the Razak aren't hungry tonight. By unspoken consent, Aragon and Roran crawled backward down from the crest of the low hill they were hiding behind. At the bottom, they rose into a half-crouch, then turned, and still doubled over, ran between two rows of hills. The shallow depression gradually deepened into a narrow, flood-carved gully, lined with crumbling slabs of shale. Dodging the gnarled juniper trees that dotted the gully, Aragon glanced up, and through clumps of needles saw the first constellations to adorn the velvet sky. They seemed cold and sharp, like bright shards of ice. Then he concentrated on maintaining his footing, as he and Roran trotted south toward their camp. Around the Campfire The low mound of coals throbbed like the heart of some giant beast. Occasionally a patch of gold sparks flared into existence and raced across the surface of the wood before vanishing into a white-hot crevice. The dying remnants of the fire Aragon and Roran had built cast a dim red light over the surrounding area, revealing a patch of rocky soil, a few pewter-gray bushes, the indistinct mass of a juniper tree farther off, then nothing. Aragon sat with his bare feet extended toward the nest of ruby embers, enjoying the warmth, and with his back propped against the knobby scales of Sephira's thick right foreleg. Opposite him, Roran was perched on the iron-hard, sun-bleached, wind-worn shell of an ancient tree trunk. Every time he moved, the trunk produced a bitter shriek that made Aragon want to claw at his ears. For the moment, quiet reigned within the hollow. Even the coals smouldered in silence. Roran had collected only long-dead branches devoid of moisture to eliminate any smoke that unfriendly eyes might spot. Aragon had just finished recounting the day's activities to Sephira. Normally, he never had to tell her what he had been doing, as thoughts, feelings, and other sensations flowed between them as easily as water from one side of a lake to another. But in this instance it was necessary, because Aragon had kept his mind carefully shielded during the scouting expedition, aside from his disembodied foray into the Razak's lair. After a considerable gap in the conversation, Sephira yawned, exposing her rows of many fearsome teeth. Cruel and evil they may be, but I am impressed that the Razak can bewitch their prey into wanting to be eaten. They are great hunters to do that. Perhaps I shall attempt it some day. But not, Aragon felt compelled to add, with people. Try it with sheep instead. People, sheep. What difference is there to a dragon? Then she laughed deep in her long throat, a rolling rumble that reminded him of thunder. Leaning forward to take his weight off Sephira's sharp-edged scales, 
Aragon picked up the hawthorn staff that lay by his side. He rolled it between his palms, admiring the play of light over the polished tangle of roots at the top and the much-scratched metal ferrule and spike at the base. Roran had thrust the staff into his arms before they left the Varden on the burning plains, saying, Here, Fisk made this for me after the Razak bit my shoulder. I know you lost your sword, and I thought you might have need of it. If you want to get another blade, that's fine, too. But I've found there are very few fights you can't win with a few whacks from a good, strong stick. Remembering the staff Brom had always carried, Aragon had decided to forego a new sword in favour of the length of knotted hawthorn. After losing Zarok, he felt no desire to take up another, lesser sword. That night he had fortified both the knotted hawthorn and the handle to Roran's hammer with several spells that would prevent either piece from breaking, except under the most extreme stress. Unbidden, a series of memories overwhelmed Aragon. A sullen orange and crimson sky swirled around him as Saphira dove in pursuit of the red dragon and his rider. Wind howled past his ears. His fingers went numb from the jolt of sword striking sword as he dueled that same rider on the ground. Tearing off his foe's helm in the midst of combat to reveal his once friend and travelling companion Murtag, whom he had thought dead. The sneer upon Murtag's face as he took Zarok from Eragon, claiming the red sword by right of inheritance as Eragon's elder brother. Eragon blinked, disoriented, as the noise and fury of battle faded, and the pleasant aroma of juniper wood replaced the stench of blood. He ran his tongue over his upper teeth, trying to eradicate the taste of bile that filled his mouth. Murtag! The name alone generated a welter of confused emotions in Aragon. On one hand, he liked Murtag. Murtag had saved Aragon and Sephira from the Razak after their first ill-fated visit to Drasleona, risked his life to help extricate Aragon from Gilead, acquitted himself honorably in the Battle of Farthandur, and, despite the torments he no doubt endured as a result, had chosen to interpret his orders from Galbatorix in a way that allowed him to release Aragon and Sephira after the Battle of the Burning Plains instead of taking them captive. It was not Murtag's fault that the twins had abducted him, that the red dragon Thorn had hatched for him, or that Galbatorix had discovered their true names with which he extracted oaths of fealty in the ancient language from both Murtag and Thorn. None of that could be blamed on Murtag. He was a victim of fate, and had been since the day he was born. And yet, Murtag might serve Galbatorix against his will, and he might abhor the atrocities the king forced him to commit. But some part of him seemed to revel in wielding his newfound power. During the recent engagement between the Varden and the Empire on the Burning Plains, Murtag had singled out the dwarf king Hrothgar and slain him, although Galbatorix had not ordered Murtag to do so. He had let Aragon and Sephira go, yes, but only after defeating them in a brutal contest of strength and then listening to Aragon plead for their freedom. And Murtag had derived entirely too much pleasure from the anguish he inflicted upon Aragon by revealing they were both sons of Morzan, 
first and last of the thirteen dragon riders, the Forsworn, who had betrayed their compatriots to Galbatorix. Now, four days after the battle, another explanation presented itself to Aragon. Perhaps what Murtag enjoyed was watching another person shoulder the same terrible burden he had carried his whole life. Whether or not that was true, Aragon suspected Murtag had embraced his new role for the same reason that a dog who has been whipped without cause will someday turn and attack his master. Murtag had been whipped and whipped, and now he had his chance to strike back at a world that had shown him little enough kindness. Yet no matter what good might still flicker in Murtag's breast, he and Eragon were doomed to be mortal enemies, for Murtag's promises in the ancient language bound him to Galbatorix with unbreakable fetters, and would forevermore. If only he hadn't gone with Arjahad to hunt Urgles underneath Farthendur, or if I had just been a little faster, the twins— Eragon, said Sophira. He caught himself and nodded, grateful for her intervention. Eragon did his best to avoid brooding upon Murtag or their shared parents, but such thoughts often waylaid him when he least expected it. Drawing and releasing a slow breath to clear his head, Eragon tried to force his mind back to the present, but could not. The morning after the massive battle on the burning plains, when the Varden were busy regrouping and preparing to march after the Empire's army, which had retreated several leagues up the Jeet River, Eragon had gone to Nasuada and Arya, explained Roran's predicament, and sought their permission to help his cousin. He did not succeed. Both women vehemently opposed what Nasuada described as a harebrained scheme that will have catastrophic consequences for everyone in Alagazia if it goes awry. The debate raged on for so long, at last Sephira had interrupted with a roar that shook the walls of the command tent. Then she said, I am sore and tired, and Aragon is doing a poor job of explaining himself. We have better things to do than stand around yammering like jackdaws, no? Good. Now listen to me. It was, reflected Aragon, difficult to argue with a dragon. The details of Sephira's remarks were complex, but the underlying structure of her presentation was straightforward. Sephira supported Aragon because she understood how much the proposed mission meant to him, while Aragon supported Roran because of love and family, and because he knew Roran would pursue Katrina with or without him and his cousin would never be able to defeat the Razak by himself. Also, so long as the Empire held Katrina captive, Roran, and through him, Aragon, was vulnerable to manipulation by Galbatorix. If the usurper threatened to kill Katrina, Roran would have no choice but to submit to his demands. It would be best, then, to patch this breach in their defences before their enemies took advantage of it. As for the timing, it was perfect. Neither Galbatorix nor the Razak would expect a raid in the center of the Empire when the Varden were busy fighting Galbatorix's troops near the border of Surda. Murtag and Thorn had been seen flying toward Urubain, 
no doubt to be chastised in person, and Nasawada and Arya agreed with Aragon that those two would probably then continue northward to confront Queen Islanzadi and the army under her command once the elves made their first strike and revealed their presence. And if possible, it would be good to eliminate the Razak before they started to terrorize and demoralize the Vardan's warriors. Safira had then pointed out, in the most diplomatic of terms, that if Nasuada asserted her authority as Aragon's liege lord and forbade him from participating in the sortie, it would poison their relationship with the sort of rancor and dissent that could undermine the Vardan's cause. But, said Safira, the choice is yours. Keep Aragon here if you want. However, his commitments are not mine, and I, for one, have decided to accompany Roran. It seems like a fine adventure. A faint smile touched Aragon's lips as he recalled the scene. The combined weight of Safira's declaration and her impregnable logic had convinced Nasuada and Arya to grant their approval, albeit grudgingly. Afterward, Nasawada had said, We are trusting your judgment in this, Aragon, Sephira. For your sake and ours, I hope this expedition goes well. Her tone left Aragon uncertain whether her words represented a heartfelt wish or a subtle threat. Aragon had spent the rest of that day gathering supplies, studying maps of the Empire with Sephira, and casting what spells he felt were necessary such as one to thwart attempts by Galbatorix or his minions to scry Roran. The following morning, Aragon and Roran had climbed onto Sephira's back, and she had taken flight, rising above the orange clouds that stifled the burning plains and angling northeast. She flew non-stop until the sun had traversed the dome of the sky and extinguished itself behind the horizon and then burst forth again with a glorious conflagration of reds and yellows. The first leg of their journey carried them toward the edge of the empire which few people inhabited. There they turned west toward Drasleona and Helgrind. From then on they travelled at night, to avoid notice by anyone in the many small villages scattered across the grasslands that lay between them and their destination. Aragon and Roran had to swathe themselves in cloaks and furs and wool mittens and felted hats, for Sephira chose to fly higher than the ice-bound peaks of most mountains, where the air was thin and dry and stabbed at their lungs, so that if a farmer tending a sick calf in the field, or a sharp-eyed watchman making his rounds should happen to look up as she passed overhead, Sephira would appear no larger than an eagle. Everywhere they went. Aragon saw evidence of the war that was now afoot. Camps of soldiers, wagons full of supplies gathered into a bunch for the night, and lines of men with iron collars being led from their homes to fight on Galbatorix's behalf. The amount of resources deployed against them was daunting indeed. Near the end of the second night, Helgrind had appeared in the distance, a mass of splintered columns vague and ominous in the ashen light that precedes dawn. Sephira had landed in the hollow where they were now, and they had slept through most of the past day before beginning their reconnaissance. 
A fountain of amber motes billowed and swirled as Roran tossed a branch onto the disintegrating coals. He caught Aragon's look and shrugged. Cold, he said. Before Aragon could respond, he heard a slithering, scraping sound, akin to someone drawing a sword. He did not think. He flung himself in the opposite direction, rolled once, and came up into a crouch, lifting the hawthorn staff to deflect an oncoming blow. Roran was nearly as fast. He grabbed his shield from the ground, scrambled back from the log he had been sitting on, and drew his hammer from his belt, all in the span of a few seconds. They froze, waiting for the attack. Eragon's heart pounded and his muscles trembled as he searched the darkness for the slightest hint of motion. I smell nothing, said Sephira. When several minutes elapsed without incident, Eragon pushed his mind out over the surrounding landscape. No one, he said, reaching deep within himself to the place where he could touch the flow of magic. He uttered the words, Brissinger Rauder. A pale, red weirlight popped into existence several feet in front of him and remained there, floating at eye level and painting the hollow with a watery radiance. He moved slightly, and the weirlight mimicked his motion, as if connected to him by an invisible pole. Together, he and Roran advanced toward where they'd heard the sound, down the gulch that wound eastward. They held their weapons high and paused between each step, ready to defend themselves at any moment. About ten yards from their camp, Roran held up a hand, stopping Aragon, then pointed at a plate of shale that lay on top of the grass. It appeared conspicuously out of place. Kneeling, Roran rubbed a smaller fragment of shale across the plate and created the same steely scrape they had heard before. It must have fallen, said Aragon, examining the sides of the gulch. He allowed the weirlight to fade into oblivion. Roran nodded and stood, brushing dirt from his pants. As he walked back to Sephira, Aragon considered the speed with which they had reacted. His heart still contracted into a hard, painful knot with each beat. His hands shook, and he felt like dashing into the wilderness and running several miles without stopping. We wouldn't have jumped like that before, he thought. The reason for their vigilance was no mystery. Every one of their fights had chipped away at their complacency, leaving behind nothing but raw nerves that twitched at the slightest touch. Roran must have been entertaining similar thoughts, for he said, Do you see them? Who? The men you've killed. Do you see them in your dreams? Sometimes. The pulsing glow from the coals lit Roran's face from below, forming thick shadows above his mouth and across his forehead, and giving his heavy, half-lidded eyes a baleful aspect. He spoke slowly, as if he found the words difficult. I never wanted to be a warrior. I dreamed of blood and glory when I was younger, as every boy does, but the land was what was important to me. That and our family. And now I have killed. I have killed and killed. And you have killed even more. His gaze focused on some distant place only he could see. There were these two men in Narda. Did I tell you this before? He had, but Aragon shook his head and remained silent. 
They were guards at the main gate. Two of them, you know. And the man on the right, he had pure white hair. I remember, because he couldn't have been more than twenty-four, twenty-five. They wore Galbatorix's sigil, but spoke as if they were from Narda. They weren't professional soldiers. They were probably just men who had decided to help protect their homes from Urgles, pirates, brigands. We weren't going to lift a finger against them. I swear to you, Aragon, that was never part of our plan. I had no choice, though. They recognized me. I stabbed the white-haired man underneath his chin. It was like when father cut the throat of a pig. And then the other. I smashed open his skull. I can still feel his bones giving way. I remember every blow I've landed from the soldiers in Carverhull to the ones on the burning plains. You know, when I close my eyes, sometimes I can't sleep because the light from the fire we set in the docks of Tyrm is so bright in my mind. I think I'm going mad then. Aragon found his hands gripping the staff with such force his knuckles were white and tendons ridged the insides of his wrists. Aye, he said. At first it was just Urgles. Then it was men and Urgles, and now this last battle. I know what we do is right, but right doesn't mean easy. Because of who we are, the Varden expects Sephira and me to stand at the front of their army and to slaughter entire battalions of soldiers. We do. We have. His voice caught, and he fell silent. Turmoil accompanies every great change, said Sephira to both of them. And we have experienced more than our share, for we are agents of that very change. I am a dragon, and I do not regret the deaths of those who endanger us. Killing the guards in Narda may not be a deed worthy of celebration, but neither is it one to feel guilty about. You had to do it. When you must fight, Roran, does not the fierce joy of combat lend wings to your feet? Do you not know the pleasure of pitting yourself against a worthy opponent, and the satisfaction of seeing the bodies of your enemies piled before you? Aragon, you have experienced this. Help me explain it to your cousin. Aragon stared at the coals. She had stated a truth that he was reluctant to acknowledge, lest by agreeing that one could enjoy violence, he would become a man he would despise. So he was mute. Across from him, Roran appeared similarly affected. In a softer voice, Sephira said, Do not be angry. I did not intend to upset you. I forget sometimes that you are still unaccustomed to these emotions. While I have fought tooth and nail for survival since the day I hatched. Rising to his feet, Aragon walked to their saddlebags and retrieved the small earthenware jar Oric had given him before they parted, then poured two large mouthfuls of raspberry mead down his gullet. Warmth bloomed in his stomach. Grimacing, Aragon passed the jar to Roran, who also partook of the concoction. Several drinks later, when the mead had succeeded in tempering his black mood, Aragon said, 
We may have a problem tomorrow. What do you mean? Aragon directed his words towards Sephira as well. Remember how I said that we, Sephira and I, could easily handle the Razak? Aye. And so we can, said Sephira. Well, I was thinking about it while we spied on Helgrind, and I'm not so sure any more. There are almost an infinite number of ways to do something with magic. For example, if I want to light a fire, I could light it with heat gathered from the air or the ground. I could create a flame out of pure energy. I could summon a bolt of lightning. I could concentrate a raft of sunbeams into a single point. I could use friction, and so forth. So? The problem is, even though I can devise numerous spells to perform this one action, blocking those spells might require but a single counterspell. If you prevent the action itself from taking place, then you don't have to tailor your counterspell to address the unique properties of each individual spell. I still don't understand what this has to do with tomorrow. I do, said Sephira to both of them. She had immediately grasped the implications. It means that over the past century, Galbatorix may have placed wards around the Razak that will protect them against a whole range of spells. I probably won't be able to kill them with any of the words of death I was taught, nor any attacks that we can invent now or then. We may have to rely... Stop! exclaimed Roran. He gave a pained smile. Stop, please. My head hurts when you do that. Aragon paused with his mouth open. Until that moment he had been unaware that he and Sephira were speaking in turn. The knowledge pleased him. It signified that they had achieved new heights of cooperation and were acting together as a single entity, which made them far more powerful than either would be on their own. It also troubled him when he contemplated how such a partnership must, by its very nature, reduce the individuality of those involved. He closed his mouth and chuckled. Sorry, what I'm worried about is this. If Galbatorix has had the foresight to take certain precautions, then force of arms may be the only means by which we can slay the Razak. If that's true, I'll just be in your way tomorrow. Nonsense. You may be slower than the Razak, but I have no doubt you'll give them cause to fear your weapon, Roran Stronghammer. The compliment seemed to please Roran. The greatest danger for you is that the Razak or the Leather Blacker will manage to separate you from Sephira and me. The closer we stay together, the safer we'll all be. Sephira and I will try to keep the Razak and Leatherblucker occupied, but some of them may slip past us. Four against two are only good odds if you're among the four. To Sephira, Aragon said, If I had a sword, I'm sure I could slay the Razak by myself, but I don't know if I can beat two creatures who are quick as elves using nothing but this staff. You were the one who insisted on carrying that dry twig instead of a proper weapon, she said. Remember, I told you it might not suffice against enemies as dangerous as the Razak. Aragon reluctantly conceded the point. If my spells fail us, 
We will be far more vulnerable than I expected. Tomorrow could end very badly indeed. Continuing the strand of conversation he had been privy to, Roran said, This magic is a tricky business. The log he sat on gave a drawn-out groan as he rested his elbows on his knees. It is, Aragon agreed. The hardest part is trying to anticipate every possible spell. I spend most of my time asking how can I protect myself if I'm attacked like this, and would another magician expect me to do that? Could you make me as strong and fast as you are? Aragon considered the suggestion for several minutes before saying, I don't see how. The energy needed to do that would have to come from somewhere. Sephira and I could give it to you, but then we would lose as much speed or strength as you gained. What he did not mention was that one could also extract energy from nearby plants and animals, albeit at a terrible price namely the deaths of the smaller beings whose life force you drew upon. Their technique was a great secret, and Aragon felt that he should not reveal it lightly, if at all. Moreover, it would be of no use to Roran, as too little grew or lived on Helgrind to fuel a man's body. Then can you teach me to use magic? When Aragon hesitated, Roran added, Not now, of course. We don't have the time and I don't expect one can become a magician overnight anyway. But in general, why not? You and I are cousins. We share much the same blood, and it would be a valuable skill to have. I don't know how someone who's not a rider learns to use magic, confessed Aragon. It's not something I studied. Glancing around, he plucked a flat, round stone from the ground and tossed it to Roran, who caught it backhand. Here, try this. Concentrate on lifting the rock a foot or so into the air and say, Stenner Riser. Stenner Riser? Exactly. Roran frowned at the stone resting on his palm, in a pose so reminiscent of Aragon's own training that Aragon could not help feeling a flash of nostalgia for the days he spent being drilled by Brom. Roran's eyebrows met, his lips tightened into a snarl, and he growled, Stena Riser. With enough intensity, Aragon half expected the stone to fly out of sight. Nothing happened. Scowling even harder, Roran repeated his command, Stena Riser. The stone exhibited a profound lack of movement. Well, said Aragon, keep trying. That's the only advice I can give you. But, and here he raised a finger. If you should happen to succeed, make sure you immediately come to me, or if I'm not around, another magician. You could kill yourself and others if you start experimenting with magic without understanding the rules. If nothing else, remember this. If you cast a spell that requires too much energy, you will die. Don't take on projects that are beyond your abilities. Don't try to bring back the dead and don't try to unmake anything. Roran nodded, still looking at the stone. Magic aside, I just realized there's something far more important that you need to learn. Oh? Yes, you need to be able to hide your thoughts from the Black Hand, Duvrangargata, 
and others like them. You know a lot of things now that could harm the Varden. It's crucial, then, that you master this skill as soon as we return. Until you can defend yourself from spies, neither Nasuada nor I nor anyone else can trust you with information that might help our enemies. I understand. But why did you include Duvrangagata in that list? They serve you and Nasuada. They do. But even among our allies, there are more than a few people who would give their right arm, he grimaced at the appropriateness of the phrase, to ferret out our plans and secrets, and yours too, no less. You have become a somebody, Roran, partly because of your deeds, and partly because we are related. I know. It is strange to be recognized by those you have not met. That it is. Several other related observations leaped to the tip of Aragon's tongue, but he resisted the urge to pursue the topic. It was a subject to explore another time. Now that you know what it feels like when one mind touches another, you might be able to learn to reach out and touch other minds in turn. I'm not sure that is an ability I want to have. No matter. You also might not be able to do it. Either way, before you spend time finding out, you should first devote yourself to the art of defense. His cousin cocked an eyebrow. How? Choose something, a sound, an image, an emotion, anything, and let it swell within your mind until it blots out any other thoughts. That's all? It's not as easy as you think. Go on, take a stab at it. When you're ready, let me know, and I'll see how well you've done. Several moments passed. Then, at a flick of Roran's fingers, Aragon launched his consciousness toward his cousin, eager to discover what he had accomplished. The full strength of Aragon's mental ray rammed into a wall composed of Roran's memories of Katrina, and was stopped. He could take no ground, find no entrance or purchase, nor undermine the impenetrable barrier that stood before him. At that instant, Roran's entire identity was based upon his feelings for Katrina. His defences exceeded any Aragon had previously encountered, for Roran's mind was devoid of anything else Aragon could grasp hold of and use to gain control over his cousin. Then Roran shifted his left leg, and the wood underneath released a harsh squeal. With that, the wall Aragon had hurled himself against fractured into dozens of pieces as a host of competing thoughts distracted Roran. What was... Blast! Don't pay attention to it. He'll break through. Katrina, remember Katrina. Ignore Aragon. The night she agreed to marry me, the smell of the grass and her hair. Is that him? No. Focus. Don't... Taking advantage of Roran's confusion, Aragon rushed forward and by the force of his will immobilized Roran before he could shield himself again. You understand the basic concept, said Aragon, then withdrew from Roran's mind and said out loud, But you have to learn to maintain your concentration even when you're in the middle of a battle. You must learn to think without thinking, to empty yourself of all hopes and worries, save that one idea that is your armour. Something the elves taught me, which I have found helpful, is to recite a riddle or a piece of a poem or song. Having an action that you can repeat over and over again makes it much easier to keep your mind from straying. I'll work on it, promised Roran. 
In a quiet voice, Aragon said, You really love her, don't you? It was more a statement of truth and wonder than a question, the answer being self-evident, and one he felt uncertain making. Romance was not a topic Aragon had broached with his cousin before, notwithstanding the many hours they had devoted in years past to debating the relative merits of the young women in and around Carvajal. How did it happen? I liked her. She liked me. What importance are the details? Come now, said Aragon. I was too angry to ask before you left for Therinsford, and we have not seen each other again until just four days ago. I'm curious. The skin around Roran's eyes pulled and wrinkled as he rubbed his temples. There's not much to tell. I've always been partial to her. It meant little before I was a man, but after my rites of passage I began to wonder whom I would marry, and whom I wanted to become the mother of my children. During one of our visits to Carvajal, I saw Katrina stop by the side of Loring's house to pick a moss rose growing in the shade of the eaves. She smiled as she looked at the flower. It was such a tender smile, and so happy. I decided right then that I wanted to make her smile like that again and again, and that I wanted to look at that smile until the day I died. Tears gleamed in Roran's eyes, but they did not fall, and a second later he blinked, and they vanished. I fear I have failed in that regard. After a respectful pause, Aragon said, You courted her then? Aside from using me to ferry compliments to Katrina, how else did you proceed? You ask like one who seeks instruction. I did not. You're imagining. Come now yourself, said Roran. I know when you're lying. You get that big foolish grin and your ears turn red. The elves may have given you a new face, but that part of you hasn't changed. What is it that exists between you and Arya? The strength of Roran's perception disturbed Aragon. Nothing. The moon has addled your brain. Be honest. You dote upon her words as if each one were a diamond, and your gaze lingers upon her as if you were starving and she a grand feast arrayed an inch beyond your reach. A plume of dark grey smoke erupted from Sephira's nostrils as she made a choking-like noise. Aragon ignored her suppressed merriment and said, Arya is an elf! And very beautiful. Pointed ears and slanted eyes are small flaws when compared with her charms. You look like a cat yourself now. Arya is over a hundred years old! That particular piece of information caught Roram by surprise. His eyebrows went up and he said, I find that hard to believe. She's in the prime of her youth. It's true. Well, be that as it may, these are reasons you give me, Aragon, and the heart rarely listens to reason. Do you fancy her or not? If he fancied her any more, Sephira said to both Aragon and Roran, I'd be trying to kiss Arya myself. Sephira! Mortified, Aragon swatted her on the leg. 
Roran was prudent enough not to rib Aragon further. Then answer my original question and tell me how things stand between you and Arya. Have you spoken to her or her family about this? I have found it's unwise to let such matters fester. I, said Aragon, and stared at the length of polished hawthorn. I spoke with her. To what end? When Aragon did not immediately reply, Roran uttered a frustrated exclamation. Getting answers out of you is harder than dragging Burka through the mud. Aragon chuckled at the mention of Burka, one of their draft horses. Sephira, will you solve this puzzle for me? Otherwise I fear I'll never get a full explanation. To no end. No end at all. She'll not have me. Aragon spoke dispassionately, as if commenting on a stranger's misfortune. But within him raged a torrent of hurt so deep and wild, he felt Sephira withdraw somewhat from him. I'm sorry, said Roran. Aragon forced a swallow past the lump in his throat, past the bruise that was his heart, and down to the knotted skein of his stomach. It happens. I know it may seem unlikely at the moment, said Roran, but I'm sure you will meet another woman who will make you forget this aria. There are countless mates and more than a few married women, I'd wager, who would be delighted to catch the eye of a rider. You'll have no trouble finding a wife among all the lovelies in Allegasia. And what would you have done if Katrina rejected your suit? The question struck Roran dumb. It was obvious he could not imagine how he might have reacted. Aragon continued, Contrary to what you, Arya, and everyone else seem to believe, I am aware that other eligible women exist in Allegasia, and that people have been known to fall in love more than once. No doubt if I spent my days in the company of ladies from King Oren's court, I might indeed decide that I fancy one. However, my path is not so easy as that. Regardless of whether I can shift my affections to another, and the heart, as you observed, is a notoriously fickle beast, the question remains, should I? Your tongue has grown as twisted as the roots of a fir tree, said Roran. Speak not in riddles. Very well. What human woman can begin to understand who and what I am, or the extent of my powers? Who could share in my life? Few enough, and all of them magicians. And of that select group, or even of women in general, how many are immortal? Roran laughed, a rough, hearty bellow that rang loud in the gulch. You might as well ask for the sun in your pocket, or... He stopped and tensed, as if he were about to spring forward, and then became unnaturally still. You cannot be. I am. Roran struggled to find words. Is it a result of your change in Elasmira, Or is it part of being a rider? Part of being a rider. That explains why Galbatorix hasn't died. I. The branch Roran had added to the fire burst asunder with a muted pop, as the coals underneath heated the gnarled length of wood to the point where a small cache of water or sap 
that had somehow evaded the rays of the sun for untold decades exploded into steam. The idea is so vast, it's almost inconceivable, said Roran. Death is part of who we are. It guides us, it shapes us, it drives us to madness. Can you still be human if you have no mortal end? I'm not invincible, Aragon pointed out. I can still be killed with a sword or an arrow, and I can still catch some incurable disease. But if you avoid those dangers, you will live forever. If I do, then yes. Sephira and I will endure. It seems both a blessing and a curse. I... I cannot in good conscience marry a woman who will age and die while I remain untouched by time. Such an experience would be equally cruel for both of us. On top of that, I find the thought of taking one wife after another throughout the long centuries rather depressing. Can you make someone immortal with magic? asked Roran. You can darken white hair, you can smooth wrinkles and remove cataracts, and if you are willing to go to extraordinary lengths, you can give a sixty-year-old man the body he had at nineteen. However, the elves have never discovered a way to restore a person's mind without destroying his or her memories. And who wants to erase their identity every so many decades in exchange for immortality? It would be a stranger, then, who lived on. An old brain in a young body isn't the answer either, for even with the best of health, that which we humans are made of can only last for a century, perhaps a bit more. Nor can you just stop someone from aging. That causes a whole host of other problems. Oh, elves and men have tried a thousand and one different ways to foil death, but none have proved successful. In other words, said Roran, it's safer for you to love Arya than to leave your heart free for the taking by a human woman. Who else can I marry but an elf, especially considering how I look now? Aragon quelled the desire to reach up and finger the curved tips of his ears, a habit he had fallen into. When I lived in Elasmira, it was easy for me to accept how the dragons had changed my appearance. After all, they gave me many gifts besides. Also, the elves were friendlier toward me after the Agate Blodron. It was only when I rejoined the Varden that I realized how different I'd become. It bothers me, too. I'm no longer just human, and I'm not quite an elf. I'm something else in between. A mix. A half-breed. Cheer up, said Roran. You may not have to worry about living forever. Galbatorix, Murtag, the Razak, or even one of the Empire's soldiers could put steel through us at any moment. A wise man would ignore the future and drink and carouse while he still has an opportunity to enjoy this world. I know what father would say to that. And he'd give us a good hiding to boot. They shared a laugh and then the silence that so often intruded on their discussion asserted itself once again, a gap born of equal parts weariness, familiarity, and conversely, the many differences that fate had created 
between those who had once gone about lives that were but variations on a single melody. You should sleep, said Sophia to Aragon and Roran. It's late, and we must rise early tomorrow. Aragon looked at the black vault of the sky, judging the hour by how far the stars had rotated. The night was older than he expected. Sound advice, he said. I just wish we had a few more days to rest before we storm Hellgrind. The battle on the burning plains drained all of Sephira's strength and my own, and we have not fully recovered, what with flying here and the energy I transferred into the belt of Beloth the Wise these past two evenings. My limbs still ache, and I have more bruises than I can count. Look! Loosening the ties on the cuff of his left shirt sleeve, he pushed back the soft lamare, a fabric the elves made by cross-weaving wool and nettle threads, revealing a rancid yellow streak where his shield had mashed against his forearm. Ha! said Roran. You call that tiny little mark a bruise? I hurt myself worse when I bumped my toe this morning. Here, I'll show you a bruise a man can be proud of. He unlaced his left boot, pulled it off, and rolled up the leg of his trousers to expose a black stripe as wide as Aragon's thumb that slanted across his quadriceps. I caught the haft of a spear as a soldier was turning about. Impressive, but I have even better. Ducking out of his tunic, Aragon yanked his shirt free of his trousers and twisted to the side so that Roran could see the large blotch on his ribs and the similar discoloration on his belly. Arrows, he explained. Then he uncovered his right forearm, revealing a bruise that matched the one on his other arm, given when he had deflected a sword with his bracer. Now Roran bared a collection of irregular blue-green spots, each the size of a gold coin, that marched from his left armpit down to the base of his spine, the result of having fallen upon a jumble of rocks and embossed armour. Aragon inspected the lesions, then chuckled and said, Pshaw, those are pinpricks. Did you get lost and run into a rose bush? I have one that puts those to shame. He removed both his boots, then stood and dropped his trousers, so that his only garb was his shirt and woolen underpants. Top that if you can, he said, and pointed to the inside of his thighs. A riotous combination of colours mottled his skin, as if Aragon were an exotic fruit that was ripening in uneven patches, from crabapple green to putrefied purple. Ouch, said Roran. What happened? I jumped off Sephira when we were fighting Murtag and Thorn in the air. That's how I wounded Thorn. Sephira managed to dive under me and catch me before I hit the ground, but I landed on her back a bit harder than I wanted to. Roran winced and shivered at the same time. Does it go all the way? He trailed off and made a vague gesture upward. Unfortunately, I have to admit that's a remarkable bruise. You should be proud. It's quite a feat to get injured in the manner you did and in that particular place. I'm glad you appreciate it. Well, said Roran, you may have the biggest bruise, but the Razak dealt me a wound the likes of which you cannot match, 
since the dragons, as I understand, removed the scar from your back. While he spoke, he divested himself of his shirt and moved farther into the pulsing light of the coals. Aragon's eyes widened before he caught himself and concealed his shock behind a more neutral expression. He berated himself for overreacting, thinking, it can't be that bad. But the longer he studied Roran, the more dismayed he became. A long, puckered scar, red and glossy, wrapped around Roran's right shoulder, starting at his collarbone and ending just past the middle of his arm. It was obvious that the Razak had severed part of the muscle, and that the two ends had failed to heal back together, for an unsightly bulge deformed the skin below the scar, where the underlying fibres had recoiled upon themselves. Farther up, the skin had sunk inward, forming a depression half an inch deep. Roran, you should have shown this to me days ago. I had no idea the Razak hurt you so badly. Do you have any difficulty moving your arm? Not to the side or back, said Roran. He demonstrated. But in the front, I can only lift my hand about as high as mid-chest. Grimacing, he lowered his arm. Even that's a struggle. I have to keep my thumb level or else my arm goes dead. The best way I've found is to swing my arm around from behind and let it land on whatever I'm trying to grasp. I skinned my knuckles a few times before I mastered the trick. Aragon twisted the staff between his hands. Should I? he asked Sephira. I think you must. We may regret it tomorrow. You will have more cause for regret if Roran dies because he could not wield his hammer when the occasion demanded. If you draw upon the resources around us, you can avoid tiring yourself further. You know I hate doing that. Even talking about it sickens me. Our lives are more important than an ant's, Sephira countered. Not to an ant. And are you an ant? Don't be glib, Aragon. It ill becomes you. With a sigh, Aragon put down the staff and beckoned to Roran. Here, I'll heal that for you. You can do that? Obviously. A momentary surge of excitement brightened Roran's face, but then he hesitated and looked troubled. Now? Is that wise? As Sephira said, better I tend to you while I have the chance, lest your injury cost you your life or endanger the rest of us. Roran drew near, and Aragon placed his right hand over the red scar, while at the same time expanding his consciousness to encompass the trees and the plants and the animals that populated the gulch, save those he feared were too weak to survive his spell. Then Aragon began to chant in the ancient language. The incantation he recited was long and complex. Repairing such a wound went far beyond growing new skin, and was a difficult matter at best. In this, Aragon relied upon the curative formulas that he had studied in Elasmira, and had devoted so many weeks to memorizing. The silvery mark on Aragon's palm, the Gedway Ignazia, glowed white-hot as he released the magic. A second later, he uttered an involuntary groan 
as he died three times, once each with two small birds roosting in a nearby juniper, and also with a snake hidden among the rocks. Across from him, Roran threw back his head and bared his teeth in a soundless howl as his shoulder muscle jumped and writhed beneath the surface of his shifting skin. Then it was over. Aragon inhaled a shuddering breath and rested his head in his hands, taking advantage of the concealment they provided to wipe away his tears before he examined the results of his labor. He saw Roran shrug several times and then stretch and windmill his arms. Roran's shoulder was large and round, the result of years spent digging holes for fence posts, hauling rocks and pitching hay. Despite himself, a needle of envy pricked Aragon. He might be stronger, but he had never been as muscular as his cousin. Roran grinned. It's as good as ever. Better, maybe. Thank you. You're welcome. It was the strangest thing. I actually felt as if I was going to crawl out of my hide, and it itched something terrible. I could barely keep from ripping. Get me some bread from your saddlebag, would you? I'm hungry. We just had dinner. I need a bite to eat after using magic like that. Aragon sniffed, and then pulled out his kerchief and wiped his nose. He sniffed again. What he had said was not quite true. It was the toll his spell had exacted on the wildlife that disturbed him, not the magic itself, and he feared he might throw up unless he had something to settle his stomach. You're not ill, are you? asked Roran. No. With the memory of the deaths he had caused still heavy in his mind, Aragon reached for the jar of mead by his side, hoping to fend off a tide of morbid thoughts. Something very large, heavy, and sharp struck his hand and pinned it against the ground. He winced and looked over to see the tip of one of Sephira's ivory claws digging into his flesh. Her thick eyelid went snick as it flashed across the great big glittering iris she fixed upon him. After a long moment, she lifted the claw as a person would a finger, and Aragon withdrew his hand. He gulped and gripped the hawthorn staff once more, striving to ignore the mead and to concentrate upon what was immediate and tangible instead of wallowing in dismal introspection. Roran removed a ragged half of sourdough bread from his bags, then paused and with a hint of a smile said, Wouldn't you rather have some venison? I didn't finish all of mine. He held out the makeshift spit of seared juniper wood, on which were impaled three clumps of golden-brown meat. To Aragon's sensitive nose, the odour that wafted toward him was thick and pungent, and reminded him of nights he had spent in the spine, and of long winter dinners, where he, Roran, and Garrow had gathered around their stove and enjoyed each other's company, while a blizzard howled outside. His mouth watered. "'It's still warm,' said Roran and waved the venison in front of Aragon. With an effort of will, Aragon shook his head. Just give me the bread. Are you sure? It's perfect. Not too tough, not too tender, and cooked with the perfect amount of seasoning. It's so juicy. When you take a bite, it's as if you've swallowed a mouthful of Elaine's best stew. No, 
I can't. You know you like it. Roran, stop teasing me and hand over that bread. Ah, now see, you look better already. Maybe what you need isn't bread, but someone to get your hackles up, eh? Aragon glowered at him, then, faster than the eye could see, snatched the bread away from Roran. That seemed to amuse Roran even more. As Aragon tore at the loaf, he said, I don't know how you can survive on nothing but fruit, bread and vegetables. A man has to eat meat if he wants to keep his strength up. Don't you miss it? More than you can imagine. Then why do you insist on torturing yourself like this? Every creature in this world has to eat other living beings, even if they are only plants, in order to survive. That is how we are made. Why attempt to defy the natural order of things? I said much the same in Ella's mirror, observed Sephira, but he did not listen to me. Aragon shrugged. We already had this discussion. You do what you want. I won't tell you or anyone else how to live. However, I cannot in good conscience eat a beast whose thoughts and feelings I've shared. The tip of Sephira's tail twitched and her scales clinked against a worn dome of rock that protruded from the ground. Oh, he's hopeless. Lifting and extending her neck, Sephira nipped the venison, spit and all, from Roran's other hand. The wood cracked between her serrated teeth as she bit down, and then it and the meat vanished into the fiery depths of her belly. Mmm, you did not exaggerate, she said to Roran. What a sweet and succulent morsel, so soft, so salty, so deliciously delectable. It makes me want to wiggle with delight. You should cook for me more often, Roran Stronghammer. Only next time, I think you should prepare several deer at once. Otherwise, I won't get a proper meal. Roran hesitated, as if unable to decide whether her request was serious, and, if so, how he could politely extricate himself from such an unlooked-for and rather onerous obligation. He cast a pleading glance at Aragon, who burst out laughing, both at Roran's expression and at his predicament. The rise and fall of Sephira's sonorous laugh joined with Aragon's and reverberated throughout the hollow. Her teeth gleamed madder red in the light from the embers. An hour after the three of them had retired, Aragon was lying on his back alongside Sephira, muffled in layers of blankets against the night cold. All was still and quiet. It seemed as if a magician had placed an enchantment upon the earth and that everything in the world was bound in an eternal sleep and would remain frozen and unchanging forevermore, underneath the watchful gaze of the twinkling stars. Without moving, Aragon whispered in his mind, Sapphira? Yes, little one? What if I'm right, and he's in Hellgrind? I don't know what I should do then. Tell me what I should do. I cannot, little one. This is a decision you have to make by yourself. The ways of men are not the ways of dragons. 
I would tear off his head and feast on his body. But that would be wrong for you, I think. Will you stand by me, whatever I decide? Always, little one. Now rest. All will be well. Comforted, Aragon gazed into the void between the stars and slowed his breathing as he drifted into the trance that had replaced sleep for him. He remained conscious of his surroundings, but against the backdrop of the white constellations, the figures of his waking dreams strode forth and performed confused and shadowy plays, as was their wont. Assault on Hellgrind Daybreak was fifteen minutes away when Aragon rolled upright. He snapped his fingers twice to wake Roran, and then scooped up his blankets and knotted them into a tight bundle. Pushing himself off the ground, Roran did likewise with his own bedding. They looked at each other and shivered with excitement. If I die, said Roran, you will see to Katrina. I shall. Tell her then that I went into battle with joy in my heart and her name upon my lips. I shall. Aragon muttered a quick line in the ancient language. The drop in his strength that followed was almost imperceptible. There, that will filter the air in front of us and protect us from the paralyzing effects of the Razak's breath. From his bags, Aragon removed his shirt of mail and unwrapped the length of sackcloth he had stored it in. Blood from the fight on the burning plains still encrusted the once shining corselet, and the combination of dried gore, sweat, and neglect had allowed blotches of rust to creep across the rings. The mail was, however, free of tears, as Aragon had repaired them before they had departed for the Empire. Aragon donned the leather-backed shirt, wrinkling his nose at the stench of death and desperation that clung to it, then attached chased braces to his forearms and greaves to his shins. Upon his head he placed a padded arming cap, a mail coif, and a plain steel helm. He had lost his own helm, the one he had worn in Farthen Dur and that the dwarves had engraved with the crest of Durgrimstingetum, along with his shield, during the aerial duel between Sephira and Thorn. On his hands went mailed gauntlets. Roran outfitted himself in a similar manner, although he augmented his armor with a wooden shield. A band of soft iron wrapped around the lip of the shield, the better to catch and hold an enemy's sword. No shield encumbered Aragon's left arm. The hawthorn staff required two hands to wield properly. Across his back, Aragon slung the quiver, given to him by Queen Islanzadi. In addition to twenty heavy oak arrows fletched with grey goose feathers, the quiver contained the bow with silver fittings that the queen had sung out of a yew tree for him. The bow was already strung and ready for use. Sapphira needed the soil beneath her feet. Let us be off! Leaving their bags and supplies hanging from the branch of a juniper tree, Aragon and Roran clambered onto Sapphira's back. They wasted no time saddling her. She had worn her tack through the night. The moulded leather was warm, almost hot, underneath Aragon. He clutched the neck spike in front of him to steady himself during sudden changes in direction, while Roran hooked one thick arm around Aragon's waist and brandished his hammer with the other.
a piece of shale cracked under Safira's weight as she settled into a low crouch, and in a single giddy bound leaped up to the rim of the gulch, where she balanced for a moment before unfolding her massive wings. The thin membranes thrummed as Safira raised them toward the sky. Vertical, they looked like two translucent blue sails. Not so tight, grunted Aragon. Sorry, said Roran. He loosened his embrace. Further speech became impossible, as Safira jumped again. When she reached the pinnacle, she brought her wings down with a mighty whoosh, driving the three of them even higher. With each subsequent flap, they climbed closer to the flat, narrow clouds. As Safira angled toward Helgrind, Aragon glanced to his left and discovered that he could see a broad swath of Leona Lake some miles distant. A thick layer of mist, grey and ghostly in the pre-dawn glow, emanated from the water, as if witchfire burned upon the surface of the liquid. Aragon tried, but even with his hawk-like vision, he could not make out the far shore, nor the southern reaches of the spine beyond, which he regretted. It had been too long since he had laid eyes upon the mountain range of his childhood. To the north stood Dras Leona, a huge rambling mass that appeared as a blocky silhouette against the wall of mist that edged its western flank. The one building Aragon could identify was the cathedral where the Razak had attacked him. Its flanged spire loomed above the rest of the city like a barbed spearhead. And somewhere in the landscape that rushed past below, Aragon knew, were the remnants of the campsite where the Razak had mortally wounded Brom. He allowed all of his anger and grief over the events of that day, as well as Garrow's murder and the destruction of their farm, to surge forth and give him the courage, nay, the desire, to face the Razak in combat. Aragon, said Sephira, today we need not guard our minds and keep our thoughts secret from one another, do we? Not unless another magician should appear. A fan of golden light flared into existence as the top of the sun crested the horizon. In an instant, the full spectrum of colors enlivened the previously drab world. The mist glowed white, the water became a rich blue, the daubed mud wall that encircled the center of Drasleona revealed its dingy yellow sides. The trees cloaked themselves in every shade of green, and the soil blushed red and orange. Halgrind, however, remained as it always was. Black. The mountain of stone rapidly grew larger as they approached. Even from the air, it was intimidating. Diving toward the base of Helgrind, Sephira tilted so far to her left, Aragon and Roran would have fallen if they had not already strapped their legs to the saddle. Then she whipped around the apron of Scree and over the altar where the priests of Helgrind observed their ceremonies. The lip of Aragon's helm caught the wind from her passage and produced a howl that almost deafened him. Well, shouted Roran. He could not see in front of them. The slaves are gone. A great weight seemed to press Aragon into his seat as Sephira pulled out of her dive and spiraled up around Helgrind, searching for an entrance to the Razak's hideout. 
Not even a hole big enough for a wood rat, she declared. She slowed and hung in place before a ridge that connected the third lowest of the four peaks to the prominence above. The jagged buttress magnified the boom produced by each stroke of her wings until it was as loud as a thunderclap. Aragon's eyes watered as the air pulsed against his skin. A web of white veins adorned the backside of the crags and pillars, where hoarfrost had collected in the cracks that furrowed the rock. Nothing else disturbed the gloom of Helgrind's inky, windswept ramparts. No trees grew among the slanting stones, nor shrubs, grass, or lichen. Nor did eagles dare nest upon the tower's broken ledges. True to its name, Helgrind was a place of death, and stood cloaked in the razor-sharp sawtooth folds of its scarps and clefts like a bony spectre risen to haunt the earth. Casting his mind outward, Aragon confirmed the presence of the two people whom he had discovered imprisoned within Helgrind the previous day. But he felt nothing of the slaves, and to his concern he still could not locate the Razak or the Leatherblacker. If they aren't here, then where? he wondered. Searching again, he noticed something that had eluded him before. A single flower, a gentian, blooming not fifty feet in front of them, where by all rights there ought to be solid rock. How does it get enough light to live? Sephira answered his question by perching on a crumbling spur several feet to the right. As she did, she lost her balance for a moment and flared her wings to steady herself. Instead of brushing against the bulk of Helgrind, the tip of her right wing dipped into the rock and then back out again. Sephira, did you see that? I did. Leaning forward, Sephira pushed the tip of her snout toward the sheer rock, paused an inch or two away as if waiting for a trap to spring, then continued her advance. Scale by scale, Sephira's head slid into Helgrind until all that was visible of her to Aragon was a neck, torso, and wings. It's an illusion, exclaimed Sephira. With a surge of her mighty thews, she abandoned the spur and flung the rest of her body after her head. It required every bit of Aragon's self-control not to cover his face in a desperate bid to protect himself as the crag rushed toward him. An instant later, he found himself looking at a broad, vaulted cave, suffused with the warm glow of morning. Sephira's scales refracted the light, casting thousands of shifting blue flecks across the rock. Twisting around, Aragon saw no wall behind them, only the mouth of the cave and a sweeping view of the landscape beyond. Aragon grimaced. It had never occurred to him that Galbatorix might have hidden the Razak's lair with magic. Idiot! I have to do better, he thought. Underestimating the king was a sure way to get them all killed. Roran swore and said, Warn me before you do something like that again. Hunching forward, Aragon began to unbuckle his legs from the saddle as he studied their surroundings, alert for danger. 
The opening to the cave was an irregular oval, perhaps fifty feet high and sixty feet wide. From there the chamber expanded to twice that size, before ending a good bowshot away in a pile of thick stone slabs that leaned against each other in a confusion of uncertain angles. A mat of scratches defaced the floor, evidence of the many times the leather blacker had taken off from, landed on, and walked about its surface. Like mysterious keyholes, five low tunnels pierced the sides of the cave, as did a lancet passageway large enough to accommodate Sephira. Aragon examined the tunnels carefully, but they were pitch black and appeared vacant, a fact he confirmed with quick thrusts of his mind. Strange, disjointed murmurs echoed from within Helgrind's innards, suggesting unknown things scurrying about in the dark, and endlessly dripping water. Adding to the chorus of whispers was the steady rise and fall of Sophia's breathing, which was over-loud in the confines of the bare chamber. The most distinctive feature of the cavern, however, was the mixture of odours that pervaded it. The smell of cold stone dominated, but underneath Aragon discerned whiffs of damp and mould, and something far worse, the sickly sweet feeter of rotting meat. Undoing the last few straps, Aragon swung his right leg over Sephira's spine, so he was sitting side-saddle and prepared to jump off her back. Roran did the same on the opposite side. Before he released his hold, Aragon heard amid the many rustlings that teased his ear a score of simultaneous clicks, as if someone had struck the rock with a collection of hammers. The sound repeated itself a half-second later. He looked in the direction of the noise, as did Sephira. A huge, twisted shape hurtled out of the lancet passageway, eyes black, bulging, rimless, a beak seven feet long, bat-like wings, the torso naked, hairless, rippling with muscle, claws like iron spikes. Sephira lurched as she tried to evade the leather blocker, but to no avail. The creature crashed into her right side with what felt to Aragon like the strength and fury of an avalanche. What exactly happened next he knew not, for the impact sent him tumbling through space without so much as a half-formed thought in his jumbled brain. His blind flight ended as abruptly as it began when something hard and flat rammed against the back of him, and he dropped to the floor, banging his head a second time. That last collision drove the remaining air clean out of Aragon's lungs. Stunned, he lay curled on his side, gasping and struggling to regain a semblance of control over his unresponsive limbs. Aragon! cried Sophira. The concern in her voice fueled Aragon's efforts as nothing else could. As life returned to his arms and legs, he reached out and grasped his staff from where it had fallen beside him. He planted the spike mounted on the staff's lower end into a nearby crack and pulled himself up the hawthorn rod and onto his feet. He swayed. A swarm of crimson sparks danced before him. The situation was so confusing he hardly knew where to look first. Sephira and the leather blocker rolled across the cave, kicking and clawing and snapping at each other with enough force to gouge the rock beneath them. 
The clamour of their fight must have been unimaginably loud, but to Aragon they grappled in silence. His ears did not work. Still, he felt the vibrations through the soles of his feet as the colossal beasts thrashed from side to side, threatening to crush anyone who came near them. A torrent of blue fire erupted from between Sephira's jaws and bathed the left side of the leather blucker's head in a ravening inferno hot enough to melt steel. The flames curved around the leather blucker without harming it. Undeterred, the monster pecked at Sephira's neck, forcing her to stop and defend herself. Fast as an arrow loosed from a bow, the second leather blucker darted out of the lancet passageway, pounced upon Sephira's flank, and opening its narrow beak, uttered a horrible, withering shriek that made Aragon's scalp prickle and a cold lump of dread form in his gut. He snarled in discomfort. That he could hear. The smell, now, with both leather blucker present, resembled the sort of overpowering stench one would get from tossing a half-dozen pounds of rancid meat into a barrel of sewage and allowing the mixture to ferment for a week in summer. Aragon clamped his mouth shut as his gorge rose and turned his attention elsewhere to keep from retching. A few paces away, Roran lay crumpled against the side of the cave where he too had landed. Even as Aragon watched, his cousin lifted an arm and pushed himself onto all fours and then to his feet. His eyes were glazed and he tottered as if drunk. Behind Roran, the two Razak emerged from a nearby tunnel. They wielded long, pale blades of an ancient design in their malformed hands. Unlike their parents, the Razak were roughly the same size and shape as humans. An ebony exoskeleton encased them from top to bottom, although little of it showed, for even in Hellgrind, the Razak wore dark robes and cloaks. They advanced with startling swiftness, their movements sharp and jerky like those of an insect. And yet Aragon still could not sense them or the leather blucker. Are they an illusion too? he wondered. But no, that was nonsense. The flesh Sephira tore at with her talons was real enough. Another explanation occurred to him. Perhaps it was impossible to detect their presence. Perhaps the Razak could conceal themselves from the minds of humans, their prey, just as spiders conceal themselves from flies. If so, then Aragon finally understood why the Razak had been so successful hunting magicians and riders for Galbatorix, when they themselves could not use magic. Blast! Aragon would have indulged in more colourful oaths, but it was time for action, not cursing their bad luck. Brom had claimed the Razak were no match for him in broad daylight, and while that might have been true, given that Brom had had decades to invent spells to use against the Razak, Aragon knew that without the advantage of surprise, he, Sephira, and Roran would be hard-pressed to escape with their lives, much less rescue Katrina. Raising his right hand above his head, Aragon cried, Brissinger! and threw a roaring fireball toward the Razak. They dodged, and the fireball splashed against the rock floor, guttered for a moment, and then winked out of existence. The spell was silly and childish, and could cause no conceivable damage if Galbatorix had protected the Razak like the leather blucker. 
Still, Aragon found the attack immensely satisfying. It also distracted the Razak long enough for Aragon to dash over to Roran and press his back against his cousins. Hold them off for a minute, he shouted, hoping Roran would hear. Whether he did or not, Roran grasped Aragon's meaning, for he covered himself with his shield and lifted his hammer in preparation to fight. The amount of force contained within each of the leather blucker's terrible blows had already depleted the wards against physical danger that Aragon had placed around Sephira. Without them, the leather blucker had inflicted several rows of scratches, long but shallow, along her thighs, and had managed to stab her three times with their beaks. Those wounds were short but deep, and caused her a great deal of pain. In return, Sephira had laid open the ribs of one leather blucker, and had bitten off the last three feet of the other's tail. The leather blucker's blood, to Aragon's astonishment, was a metallic blue-green, not unlike the verdigris that forms on aged copper. At the moment, the leather blucker had withdrawn from Sephira and was circling her, lunging now and then in order to keep her at bay while they waited for her to tire or until they could kill her with a stab from one of their beaks. Sephira was better suited than the leather blucker to open combat by virtue of her scales, which were harder and tougher than the leather blucker's grey hide, and her teeth, which were far more lethal in close quarters than the leather blucker's beaks. But despite all that, she had difficulty fending off both creatures at once, especially since the ceiling prevented her from leaping and flying about and otherwise outmaneuvering her foes. Aragon feared that even if she prevailed, the leather blucker would maim her before she slew them. Taking a quick breath, Aragon cast a single spell that contained every one of the twelve techniques of killing that Oromis had taught him. He was careful to phrase the incantation as a series of processes, so that if Galbatorix's wards foiled him, he could sever the flow of magic. Otherwise the spell might consume his strength until he died. It was well he took the precaution. Upon release of the spell, Aragon quickly became aware that the magic was having no effect upon the leather blucker, and he abandoned the assault. He had not expected to succeed with the traditional death words, but he had to try. On the slight chance Galbatorix might have been careless or ignorant when he had placed wards upon the leather blucker and their spawn. Behind him, Roran shouted, Yah! An instant later, a sword thudded against his shield, followed by the tinkle of rippling mail and the bell-like peal of a second sword, bouncing off Roran's helm. Aragon realized that his hearing must be improving. The Razak struck again and again, but each time their weapons glanced off Roran's armor or missed his face and limbs by a hair's breadth, no matter how fast they swung their blades. Roran was too slow to retaliate, but neither could the Razak harm him. They hissed with frustration and spewed a continuous stream of invectives, which seemed all the more foul because of how the creature's hard, clacking jaws mangled the language. Eragon smiled. The cocoon of charms he had spun around Roran had done its job. He hoped the invisible net of energy would hold until he could find a way to halt the leather blucker. Everything shivered and went grey around Eragon as the two leather blucker shrieked in unison. For a moment his resolve deserted him, leaving him unable to move, 
Then he rallied and shook himself as a dog might, casting off their fell influence. The sound reminded him of nothing so much as a pair of children screaming in pain. Then Aragon began to chant as fast as he could without mispronouncing the ancient language. Each sentence he uttered, and they were legion, contained the potential to deliver instant death, and each death was unique among its fellows. As he recited his improvised soliloquy, Sephira received another cut upon her left flank. In return, she broke the wing of her assailant, slashing the thin flight membrane into ribbons with her claws. A number of heavy impacts transmitted themselves from Roran's back to Aragon's, as the Razak hacked and stabbed in a lightning-quick frenzy. The largest of the two Razak began to edge around Roran in order to attack Aragon directly. And then, amid the din of steel against steel and steel against wood and claws against stone, there came the scrape of a sword sliding through mail, followed by a wet crunch. Roran yelled, and Aragon felt blood splash across the calf of his right leg. Out of the corner of one eye, Aragon watched as a humpbacked figure leaped toward him, extending its leaf-bladed sword so as to impale him. The world seemed to contract around the thin, narrow point. The tip glittered like a shard of crystal, each scratch a thread of quicksilver in the bright light of dawn. He only had time for one more spell before he would have to devote himself to stopping the Razak from inserting the sword between his liver and kidneys. In desperation, he gave up trying to directly harm the leather blacker, and instead cried, Gajla Letta! It was a crude spell, constructed in haste and poorly worded, yet it worked. The bulbous eyes of the leather blacker with the broken wing became a matched set of mirrors, each a perfect hemisphere as Aragon's magic reflected the light that otherwise would have entered the leather blucker's pupils. Blind, the creature stumbled and flailed at the air in a vain attempt to hit Sephira. Aragon spun the hawthorn staff in his hands and knocked aside the Razak sword when it was less than an inch from his ribs. The Razak landed in front of him and jutted out its neck. Aragon recoiled as a short, thick beak appeared, from within the depths of its hood. The kittenous appendage snapped shut just short of his right eye. In a rather detached way, Aragon noticed that the Razak's tongue was barbed and purple and writhed like a headless snake. Bringing his hands together at the centre of the staff, Aragon drove his arms forward, striking the Razak across its hollow chest and throwing the monster back several yards. It fell upon its hands and knees. Aragon pivoted around Roran, whose left side was slick with blood, and parried the sword of the other Razak. He fainted, beat the Razak's blade, and when the Razak stabbed at his throat, whirled the other half of the staff across his body and deflected the thrust. Without pausing, Aragon lunged forward and planted the wooden end of the staff in the Razak's abdomen. If Aragon had been wielding Zarok, he would have killed the Razak then and there. As it was, something cracked inside the Razak, and the creature went rolling across the cave for a dozen or more paces. It immediately popped up again, leaving a smear of blue gore on the uneven rock. I need a sword, thought Aragon. He widened his stance as the two Razak converged upon him.
He had no choice but to hold his ground and face their combined onslaught, for he was all that stood between those hook-clawed carrion crows and Roran. He began to mount the same spell that had proved itself against the level blocker, but the Razak executed high and low slashes before he could utter a syllable. The swords rebounded off the hawthorn with a dull bonk. They did not dent or otherwise mar the enchanted wood. Left, right, up, down, Aragon did not think. He acted and reacted as he exchanged a flurry of blows with the Razak. The staff was ideal for fighting multiple opponents, as he could strike and block with both ends, and often simultaneously. That ability served him well now. He panted, each breath short and quick. Sweat dripped from his brow and gathered at the corners of his eyes, and a layer greased his back and the undersides of his arms. The red haze of battle dimmed his vision and throbbed in response to the convulsions of his heart. He never felt so alive or afraid as he did when fighting. Aragon's own wards were scant. Since he had lavished the bulk of his attention on Sephira and Roran, Aragon's magical defences soon failed, and the smaller Razak wounded him on the outside of his left knee. The injury was not life-threatening, but it was still serious for his left leg would no longer support his full weight. Gripping the spike at the bottom, Aragon swung the staff like a club and bashed one Razak upside the head. The Razak collapsed, but whether it was dead or only unconscious, Aragon could not tell. Advancing upon the remaining Razak, he battered the creature's arms and shoulders and with a sudden twist knocked the sword out of its hand. Before Aragon could finish off the Razak, the blinded, broken-winged leather blocker flew the width of the cave and slammed against the far wall, knocking loose a shower of stone flakes from the ceiling. The sight and sound were so colossal they caused Aragon, Roran, and the Razak to flinch and turn simply out of instinct. Jumping after the crippled leather blocker, which she had just kicked, Sephira sank her teeth into the back of the creature's sinewy neck. The leather blacker thrashed in one final effort to free itself, and then Sephira whipped her head from side to side and broke its spine. Rising from her bloody kill, Sephira filled the cave with a savage roar of victory. The remaining leather blacker did not hesitate. Tackling Sephira, it dug its claws underneath the edges of her scales and pulled her into an uncontrollable tumble. Together, they rolled to the lip of the cave, teetered for a half-second, and then dropped out of sight, battling the whole way. It was a clever tactic, for it carried the leather blocker out of the range of Aragon's senses, and that which he could not sense, he had difficulty casting a spell against. Sapphira! cried Aragon. Tend to yourself! This one won't escape me! With a start, Aragon whirled around just in time to see the two Razak vanish into the depths of the nearest tunnel, the smaller supporting the larger. Closing his eyes, Aragon located the minds of the prisoners in Hellgrind, muttered a burst of the ancient language, then said to Roran, I sealed off Katrina's cell so the Razak can't use her as a hostage. Only you and I can open the door now. Good, said Roran through clenched teeth. Can you do something about this? He jerked his chin toward the spot he had clamped his right hand over. 
blood welled between his fingers. Aragon probed the wound. As soon as he touched it, Roran flinched and recoiled. You're lucky, said Aragon. The sword hit a rib. Placing one hand on the injury and the other on the twelve diamonds concealed inside the belt of Beloth the Wise strapped around his waist, Aragon drew upon the power he had stored within the gems. Weisa heal! A ripple traversed Roran's side as the magic knit his skin and muscle back together again. Then Aragon healed his own wound, the gash on his left knee. Finished, he straightened and glanced in the direction that Sephira had gone. His connection with her was fading as she chased the leather blucker toward Leona Lake. He yearned to help her, but knew that for the time being she would have to fend for herself. Hurry, said Roran. They're getting away. Right. Hefting his staff, Aragon approached the unlit tunnel and flicked his gaze from one stone protrusion to another, expecting the Razak to spring out from behind one of them. He moved slowly in order that his footsteps would not echo in the winding shaft. When he happened to touch a rock to steady himself, he found it coated in slime. After a score of yards, several folds and twists in the passageway hid the main cavern and plunged them into a gloom so profound even Aragon found it impossible to see. Maybe you're different, but I can't fight in the dark, whispered Roran. If I make a light, the Razak won't come near us, not when I now know a spell that works on them. They'll just hide until we leave. We have to kill them while we have the chance. What am I supposed to do? I'm more likely to run into a wall and break my nose than I am to find those two beetles. They could sneak around behind us and stab us in the back. Shh! Hold on to my belt. Follow me and be ready to duck. Aragon could not see, but he could still hear, smell, touch and taste. And those faculties were sensitive enough that he had a fair idea of what lay nearby. The greatest danger was that the Razak would attack from a distance, perhaps with a bow, but he trusted that his reflexes were sharp enough to save Roran and himself from an oncoming missile. A current of air tickled Aragon's skin, then paused and reversed itself as pressure from the outside waxed and waned. The cycle repeated itself at inconsistent intervals, creating invisible eddies that brushed against him like fountains of roiling water. His breathing and Roran's was loud and ragged compared with the odd assortment of sounds that propagated through the tunnel. Above the gusts of their respiration, Aragon caught the tink-clink clatter of a stone falling somewhere in the tangle of branching tubes and the steady doink, doink, doink of condensed droplets striking the drum-like surface of a subterranean pool. He also heard the grind of pea-sized gravel crushed underneath the soles of his boots. A long, eerie moan wavered somewhere far ahead of them. Of smells, none were new. Sweat, blood, damp, and mould. Step by step, Aragon led the way as they burrowed farther into the bowels of hell-grind. The tunnel slanted downward and often split or turned, so that Aragon would have soon been lost if he had not been able to use Katrina's mind as a reference point. The various knobby holes were low and cramped, 
Once, when Aragon bumped his head against the ceiling, a sudden flare of claustrophobia unnerved him. I'm back, Sephira announced, just as Aragon put his foot on a rugged step hewn out of the rock below him. He paused. She had escaped additional injury, which relieved him. And the leather blucker? Floating belly up in Leona Lake. I'm afraid that some fishermen saw our battle. They were rowing toward Dras Leona when I last saw them. Well, it can't be helped. See what you can find in the tunnel the leather blucker came out of, and keep an eye out for the Razak. They may try to slip past us and escape Helgrind through the entrance we used. They probably have a bolt hole at ground level. Probably, but I don't think they'll run quite yet. After what seemed like an hour trapped in the darkness, though Aragon knew it could not have been more than ten or fifteen minutes, and after descending more than a hundred feet through Helgrind, Aragon stopped on a level patch of stone. Transmitting his thoughts to Roran, he said, Katrina's cell is about fifty feet in front of us, on the right. We can't risk letting her out until the Razak are dead or gone. What if they won't reveal themselves until we do let her out? For some reason I can't sense them. They could hide from me until doomsday in here. So do we wait for who knows how long? Or do we free Katrina while we still have the chance? I can place some wards around her that should protect her from most attacks. Roran was quiet for a second. Let's free her then. They began to move forward again, feeling their way along the squat corridor with its rough, unfinished floor. Aragon had to devote most of his attention to his footing in order to maintain his balance. As a result, he almost missed the swish of cloth sliding over cloth, and then the faint twang that emanated from off to his right. He recoiled against the wall, shoving Roran back. At the same time, something augured past his face, carving a groove of flesh from his right cheek. The thin trench burned as if cauterized. Kvekva! shouted Aragon. Red light, bright as the midday sun, flared into existence. It had no source, and thus it illuminated every surface evenly and without shadows, giving things a curious flat appearance. The sudden blaze dazzled Aragon, but it did more than that to the lone Razak in front of him. The creature dropped its bow, covered its hooded face, and screamed high and shrill. A similar screech told Aragon that the second Razak was behind them. Roran! Aragon pivoted just in time to see Roran charge the other Razak, hammer held high. The disoriented monster stumbled backward but was too slow. The hammer fell. For my father, shouted Roran. He struck again. For our home. The Razak was already dead, but Roran lifted the hammer once more. For Carvajal. His final blow shattered the Razak's carapace like the rind of a dry gourd. In the merciless ruby glare, the spreading pool of blood appeared purple. Spinning his staff in a circle to knock aside the arrow or sword that he was convinced was driving toward him, Aragon turned to confront the remaining Razak. The tunnel before them was empty. He swore. Aragon strode over to the twisted figure on the floor. He swung the staff over his head and brought it down across the chest of the dead Razak with a resounding thud.
I've waited a long time to do that, said Aragon. As have I. He and Roran looked at each other. Ah! cried Aragon, and clutched his cheek as the pain intensified. It's bubbling, exclaimed Roran. Do something! The Razak must have coated the arrowhead with cether oil, thought Aragon. Remembering his training, he cleansed the wound and surrounding tissue with an incantation and then repaired the damage to his face. He opened and closed his mouth several times to make sure the muscles were working properly. With a grim smile, he said, Imagine the state we'd be in without magic. Without magic, we wouldn't have Galbatorix to worry about. Talk later, said Sephira. As soon as those fishermen reach Drasleona, the king may hear of our doings from one of his pet spellcasters in the city, and we do not want Galbatorix scrying Hellgrind while we are still here. Yes, yes, said Aragon. Extinguishing the omnipresent red glow, he said, Brissinger Rauder, and created a red wheelite like that from the previous night, except that this one remained anchored six inches from the ceiling, instead of accompanying Aragon wherever he went. Now that he had an opportunity to examine the tunnel in some detail, Aragon saw that the stone hallway was dotted with twenty or so iron-bound doors, some on either side. He pointed and said, Ninth down on the right. You go get her. I'll check the other cells. The Razak might have left something interesting in them. Roran nodded. Crouching, he searched the corpse at their feet, but found no keys. He shrugged. I'll do it the hard way, then. He sprinted to the proper door, abandoned his shield, and set to work on the hinges with his hammer. Each blow created a frightful crash. Aragon did not offer to help. His cousin would not want or appreciate assistance now, and besides, there was something else Aragon had to do. He went to the first cell, whispered three words, then after the lock snapped open, pushed aside the door. All that the small room contained was a black chain and a pile of rotting bones. Those sad remains were no more than he had expected. He already knew where the object of his search lay, but he maintained the charade of ignorance to avoid kindling roar and suspicion. Two more doors opened and closed beneath the touch of Aragon's fingers. Then at the fourth cell, the door swung back to admit the shifting radiance of the wheelite and reveal the very man Aragon had hoped he would not find. Sloan. Divergence the butcher sat slumped against the left-hand wall, both arms chained to an iron ring above his head. His ragged clothes barely covered his pale, emaciated body. The corners of his bones stood out in sharp relief underneath his translucent skin. His blue veins were also prominent. Sores had formed on his wrists where the manacles chafed. The ulcers oozed a mixture of clear fluid and blood. What remained of his hair had turned grey or white and hung in lank, greasy ropes over his pockmarked face. Roused by the clang of Roran's hammer, Sloane lifted his chin toward the light and in a quavering voice asked, Who is it? Who's there? His hair parted and slid back, 
exposing his eye sockets, which had sunk deep into his skull. Where his eyelids should have been, there were now only a few scraps of tattered skin draped over the raw cavities underneath. The area around them was bruised and scabbed. With a shock, Aragon realized that the Razak had pecked out Sloane's eyes. What he then should do, Aragon could not decide. The butcher had told the Razak that Aragon had found Sephira's egg. Furthermore, Sloane had murdered the watchman, Bird, and had betrayed Carvajal to the Empire. If he were brought before his fellow villagers, they would undoubtedly find Sloane guilty and condemn him to death by hanging. It seemed only right to Aragon that the butcher should die for his crimes. That was not the source of his uncertainty. Rather, it arose from the fact that Roran loved Katrina, and Katrina, whatever Sloane had done, must still harbour a certain degree of affection for her father. Watching an arbitrator publicly denounce Sloane's offences and then hang him would be no easy thing for her, or, by extension, Roran. Such hardship might even create enough ill-will between them to end their engagement. Either way, Aragon was convinced that taking Sloane back with them would sow discord between him, Roran, Katrina, and the other villagers, and might engender enough anger to distract them from their struggle against the Empire. The easiest solution, thought Aragon, would be to kill him, and say that I found him dead in the cell. His lips trembled, one of the death words heavy upon his tongue. What do you want? asked Sloane. He turned his head from side to side in an attempt to hear better. I already told you everything I know. Aragon cursed himself for hesitating. Sloane's guilt was not in dispute. He was a murderer and a traitor. Any lawgiver would sentence him to execution. Notwithstanding the merit of those arguments, it was Sloane who was curled in front of him, a man Aragon had known his entire life. The butcher might be a despicable person, but the wealth of memories and experiences Aragon shared with him bred a sense of intimacy that troubled Aragon's conscience. To strike down Sloane would be like raising his hand against Horst or Loring or any of the elders of Carvajal. Again, Aragon prepared to utter the fatal word. An image appeared in his mind's eye. Torkenbrand, the slaver he and Murtag had encountered during their flight to the Varden, kneeling on the dusty ground and Murtag striding up to him and beheading him. Aragon remembered how he had objected to Murtag's deed and how it had troubled him for days afterward. Have I changed so much, he asked himself, that I can do the same thing now? As Roran said, I have killed, but only in the heat of battle, never like this. He glanced over his shoulder as Roran broke the last hinge to Katrina's cell door. Dropping his hammer, Roran prepared to charge the door and knock it inward, but then appeared to think better of it and tried to lift it free of its frame. The door rose a fraction of an inch, then halted and wobbled in his grip. Give me a hand here, he shouted. I don't want it to fall on her. Aragon looked back at the wretched butcher. He had no more time for mindless wanderings. He had to choose. One way or another, he had to choose. 
Eragon! I don't know what's right, realized Eragon. His own uncertainty told him that it would be wrong to kill Sloane or return him to the Varden. He had no idea what he should do instead, except to find a third path, one that was less obvious and less violent. Lifting his hand as if in benediction, Eragon whispered, Slither. Sloane's manacles rattled as he went limp, falling into a profound sleep. As soon as he was sure the spell had taken hold, Eragon closed and locked the cell door again, and replaced his wards around it. What are you up to, Eragon? asked Sephira. Wait until we're together again. I'll explain then. Explain what? You don't have a plan. Give me a minute and I will. What was in there? asked Roran, as Eragon took his place opposite him. Sloane, Eragon adjusted his grip on the door between them. He's dead. Roran's eyes widened. How? Looks like they broke his neck. For an instant, Eragon feared that Roran might not believe him. Then his cousin grunted and said, It's better that way, I suppose. Ready? One, two, three. Together they heaved the massive door out of its casing and threw it across the hallway. The stone passageway returned the resulting boom to them again and again. Without pause, Roran rushed into the cell which was lit by a single wax taper. Aragon followed a step behind. Katrina cowered at the far end of an iron cot. Let me alone, you toothless bastards! I... She stopped, struck dumb, as Roran stepped forward. Her face was white from lack of sun and streaked with filth, yet at that moment a look of such wonder and tender love blossomed upon her features, Aragon thought he had rarely seen anyone so beautiful. Never taking her eyes off Roran, Katrina stood and with a shaking hand touched his cheek. You came. I came. A laughing sob broke out of Roran and he folded her in his arms, pulling her against his chest. They remained lost in their embrace for a long moment. Drawing back, Roran kissed her three times on the lips. Katrina wrinkled her nose and exclaimed, You grew a beard. Of all the things she could have said, that was so unexpected, and she sounded so shocked and surprised that Aragon chuckled in response. For the first time, Katrina seemed to notice him. She glanced him over, then settled on his face, which he studied with evident puzzlement. Aragon? Is that you? Aye. He's a dragon rider now, said Roran. A rider? You mean... She faltered. The revelation seemed to overwhelm her. Glancing at Roran as if for protection, she held him even closer and sidled around him away from Aragon. To Roran, she said, How... how did you find us? Who else is with you? All that later. We have to get out of Hellgrind before the rest of the Empire comes running after us. Wait, what about my father? Did you find him? Roran looked at Aragon, then returned his gaze to Katrina and gently said, We were too late. A shiver ran through Katrina. 
She closed her eyes and a solitary tear leaked down the side of her face. So be it. While they spoke, Aragon frantically tried to figure out how to dispose of Sloane, although he concealed his deliberations from Sephira. He knew that she would disapprove of the direction his thoughts were taking. A scheme began to form in his mind. It was an outlandish concept, fraught with danger and uncertainty, but it was the only viable path, given the circumstances. Abandoning further reflection, Aragon sprang into action. He had much to do in little time. Girda, he cried, pointing. With a burst of blue sparks and flying fragments, the metal bands riveted around Katrina's ankles broke apart. Katrina jumped in surprise. Magic, she whispered. A simple spell. She shrank from his touch as he reached toward her. Katrina, I have to make sure that Galbatorix or one of his magicians hasn't enchanted you with any traps or forced you to swear things in the ancient language. The ancient... Roran interrupted her. Aragon, do this when we make camp. We can't stay here. No. Aragon slashed his arm through the air. We do it now. Scowling, Roran moved aside and allowed Aragon to put his hands on Katrina's shoulders. Just look into my eyes, he told her. She nodded and obeyed. That was the first time Aragon had a reason to use the spells Oromis had taught him for detecting the work of another spellcaster, and he had difficulty remembering every word from the scrolls in Elasmira. The gaps in his memory were so serious that on three different instances he had to rely upon a synonym to complete an incantation. For a long while Aragon stared into Katrina's glistening eyes and mouthed phrases in the ancient language, occasionally, and with her permission, examining one of her memories for evidence that someone had tampered with it. He was as gentle as possible, unlike the twins, who had ravaged his own mind in a similar procedure the day he arrived at Farthendur. Roran stood guard, pacing back and forth in front of the open doorway. Every second that went by increased his agitation. He twirled his hammer and tapped the head of it against his upper thigh, as if keeping time with a piece of music. At last, Aragon released Katrina. I'm done. What did you find? she whispered. She hugged herself, her forehead creased with worry lines as she waited for his verdict. Silence filled the cell as Roran came to a standstill. Nothing but your own thoughts. You are free of any spells. Of course she is, growled Roran, and again wrapped her in his arms. Together, the three of them exited the cell. Brissinger, Iet Tauther, said Aragon, gesturing at the weirlight that still floated near the ceiling of the hallway. At his command, the glowing orb darted to a spot directly over his head and remained there, bobbing like a piece of driftwood in the surf. Aragon took the lead as they hurried back through the jumble of tunnels toward the cavern where they had landed. As he trotted across the slick rock, he watched for the remaining Razak, while at the same time erecting wards to safeguard Katrina. Behind him, he heard her and Roran exchange a series of brief phrases and lone words. I love you. Horst and others safe. Always. For you. Yes. 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 
The trust and affection they shared were so obvious, it roused a dull ache of longing inside Aragon. When they were about ten yards from the main cavern, and could just begin to see by the faint glow ahead of them, Aragon extinguished the weirlight. A few feet later, Katrina slowed, then pressed herself against the side of the tunnel and covered her face. I can't. It's too bright. My eyes hurt. Roran quickly moved in front of her, casting her in his shadow. When was the last time you were outside? I don't know. A hint of panic crept into her voice. I don't know. Not since they brought me here. Roran, am I going blind? She sniffed and began to cry. Her tears surprised Aragon. He remembered her as someone of great strength and fortitude. But then she had spent many weeks locked in the dark, fearing for her life. I might not be myself either if I were in her place. No, you're fine. You just need to get used to the sun again. Roran stroked her hair. Come on, don't let this upset you. Everything is going to be all right. You're safe now. Safe, Katrina, you hear me? I hear you. Although he hated to ruin one of the tunics the elves had given him, Aragon tore off a strip of cloth from the bottom edge of his garment. He handed it to Katrina and said, Tie this over your eyes. You should be able to see through it well enough to keep from falling or running into anything. She thanked him and then blindfolded herself. Once again advancing, the trio emerged into the sunny, blood-splattered main cavern, which stank worse than before owing to the noxious fumes that drifted from the body of the leather blucker, even as Sephira appeared from within the depths of the lancet opening opposite them. Seeing her, Katrina gasped and clung to Roran, digging her fingers into his arms. Eragon said, Katrina, allow me to introduce you to Sephira. I am her rider. She can understand if you speak to her. It is an honor, O oh dragon, Katrina managed to say. She dipped her knees in a weak imitation of a curtsy. Sephira inclined her head in return. Then she faced Eragon. I searched the leatherblacker's nest, but all I found was bones, bones, and more bones, including several that smelled of fresh meat. The Razak must have eaten the slaves last night. I wish we could have rescued them. I know, but we cannot protect everyone in this war. Gesturing at Sephira, Aragon said, Go on, climb onto her. I'll join you in a moment. Katrina hesitated, then glanced at Roran, who nodded and murmured, It's all right. Sephira brought us here. Together, the couple skirted the corpse of the leather blucker as they went over to Sephira, who crouched flat upon her belly so that they could mount her. Cupping his hands to form a step, Roran lifted Katrina high enough to pull herself over the upper part of Sephira's left foreleg. From there, Katrina clambered the looped leg straps of the saddle as if a ladder until she sat perched upon the crest of Sephira's shoulders. Like a mountain goat leaping from one ledge to another, Roran duplicated her ascent. Crossing the cave after them, Aragon examined Sephira, assessing the severity of her various scrapes, gashes, tears, bruises, and stab wounds. 
To do so, he relied upon what she herself felt, in addition to what he could see. For goodness sake, said Sephira, save your attentions until we are well out of danger. I'm not going to bleed to death. That's not quite true, and you know it. You're bleeding inside. Unless I stop it now, you may suffer complications I can't heal, and then we'll never get back to the Varden. Don't argue. You can't change my mind, and I won't take a minute. As it turned out, Aragon required several minutes to restore Sephira to her former health. Her injuries were severe enough that in order to complete his spells, he had to empty the belt of Bellot the Wise of energy, and after that, draw upon Sephira's own vast reserves of strength. Whenever he shifted from a larger wound to a smaller one, she protested that he was being foolish, and would he please leave off? But he ignored her complaints, much to her growing displeasure. Afterward, Aragon slumped, tired from the magic and the fighting. Flicking a finger toward the places where the leather blocker had skewered her with their beaks, he said, You should have Arya or another elf inspect my handiwork on those. I did my best, but I may have missed something. I appreciate your concern for my welfare, she replied, but this is hardly the place for soft-hearted demonstrations. Once and for all, let us be gone. Aye, time to leave. Stepping back, Aragon edged away from Sephira, in the direction of the tunnel behind him. Come on, called Roran. Hurry up! Aragon! exclaimed Sephira. Aragon shook his head. No, I'm staying here. You, Roran started to say, but a ferocious growl from Sephira interrupted him. She lashed her tail against the side of the cave and raked the floor with her talons so that bone and stone squealed in what sounded like mortal agony. Listen, shouted Aragon. One of the Razak is still on the loose, and think what else might be in Hellgrind. Scrolls, potions, information about the Empire's activities, things that can help us. The Razak may even have eggs of theirs stored here. If they do, I have to destroy them before Galbatorix can claim them for his own. To Sephira, Aragon also said, I can't kill Sloane. I can't let Roran or Katrina see him, and I can't allow him to starve to death in his cell or Galbatorix's men to recapture him. I'm sorry, but I have to deal with Sloane on my own. How will you get out of the Empire? demanded Roran. I'll run. I'm as fast as an elf now, you know. The tip of Sephira's tail twitched. That was the only warning Aragon had before she leaped toward him, extending one of her glittering paws. He fled, dashing into the tunnel a fraction of a second before Sephira's foot passed through the space where he had been. Sephira skidded to a stop in front of the tunnel and roared with frustration that she was unable to follow him into the narrow enclosure. Her bulk blocked most of the light. The stone shook around Aragon as she tore at the entrance with her claws and teeth, breaking off thick chunks. Her feral snarls and the sight of her lunging muzzle, filled with teeth as long as his forearm, sent a jolt of fear through Aragon. He understood then how a rabbit must feel when it cowers in its den while a wolf digs after it. Ganga! he shouted. 
No! Sephira placed her head on the ground and uttered a mournful keen, her eyes large and pitiful. Ganga! I love you, Sephira, but you have to go! She retreated several yards from the tunnel and snuffled at him, mewling like a cat. Little one! Aragon hated to make her unhappy, and he hated to send her away. It felt as if he were tearing himself apart. Sephira's misery flowed across their mental link, and coupled with his own anguish, almost paralyzed him. Somehow he mustered the nerve to say, Ganga! And don't come back for me or send anyone else for me. I'll be fine. Ganga! Ganga! Sephira howled with frustration, and then reluctantly walked to the mouth of the cave. From his place on her saddle, Roran said, Aragon, come on! Don't be daft! You're too important to risk— A combination of noise and motion obscured the rest of his sentence as Sephira launched herself out of the cave. In the clear sky beyond, her scales sparkled like a multitude of brilliant blue diamonds. She was, Aragon thought, magnificent, proud, noble, and more beautiful than any other living creature. No stag or lion could compete with the majesty of a dragon in flight. She said, A week, that is how long I shall wait. Then I shall return for you, Aragon, even if I must fight my way past Thorn, Shlucan, and a thousand magicians. Aragon stood there until she dwindled from sight and he could no longer touch her mind. Then, his heart heavy as lead, he squared his shoulders and turned away from the sun and all things bright and living, and once more descended into the tunnels of shadow. Rider and Razak Aragon sat bathed in the heatless radiance from his crimson wheelite, in the hall lined with cells near the center of Hellgrind. His staff lay across his lap. The rock reflected his voice as he repeated a phrase in the ancient language over and over again. It was not magic, but rather a message to the remaining Razak. What he said meant this. Come, O thou eater of men's flesh, let us end this fight of ours. You are hurt and I am weary. Your companions are dead and I am alone. We are a fit match. I promise that I shall not use grammary against you, nor hurt or trap you with spells I have already cast. Come, O thou eater of men's flesh, let us end this fight of ours. The time during which he spoke seemed endless. And never when, in a ghastly, tinted chamber that remained unchanged through an eternity of cycling words whose order and significance ceased to matter to him. After a time his clamoring thoughts fell silent, and a strange calm crept over him. He paused with his mouth open, then closed it, watchful. Thirty feet in front of him stood the Razak. Blood dripped from the hem of the creature's ragged robes. My master does not want me to kill you, 
it hissed. But that does not matter to you now. No, if I fall to your staff, let Galbatorix deal with you as he will. He has more hearts than you do. Aragon laughed. Hearts? I am the champion of the people, not him. Foolish boy. The Razak cocked its head slightly, looking past him at the corpse of the other Razak, farther up the tunnel. She was my hatchmate. You have become strong since we first met, Shade Slayer. It was that or die. Will you make a pact with me, Shade Slayer? What kind of a pact? I am the last of my race, Shade Slayer. We are ancient, and I would not have us forgotten. Would you, in your songs and in your histories, remind your fellow humans of the terror we inspired in your kind? Remember us as fear. Why should I do that for you? Tucking its beak against its narrow chest, the Razak clucked and chittered to itself for several moments. Because, it said, I will tell you something secret. Yes, I will. Then tell me. Give me your word first, lest you trick me. No, tell me, and then I will decide whether or not to agree. Over a minute passed, and neither of them moved, although Aragon kept his muscles taut and ready in expectation of a surprise attack. After another squall of sharp clicks, the Razak said, He has almost found the name. Who has? Galbatorix. The name of what? The Razak hissed with frustration. I cannot tell you. The name. The true name. You have to give me more information than that. I cannot. Then we have no pact. Curse you, Ryder. I curse you. May you find no roost, nor den, nor peace of mind. In this land of yours, may you leave Alagazia and never return. The nape of Aragon's neck prickled with the cold touch of dread. In his mind, he again heard the words of Angela the herbalist when she had cast her dragon bones for him and told his fortune and predicted that selfsame fate. A mare's tail of blood separated Eragon from his enemy as the Razak swept back its sodden cloak, revealing a bow that it held with an arrow already fit to the string. Lifting and drawing the weapon, the Razak loosed the bolt in the direction of Eragon's chest. Eragon batted the shaft aside with his staff. As if this attempt were nothing more than a preliminary gesture that custom dictated they observe before proceeding with their actual confrontation, the Razak stooped, placed the bow on the floor, then straightened its cowl, and slowly and deliberately pulled its leaf-bladed sword from underneath its robes. While it did, Aragon rose to his feet and took a shoulder-wide stance, 
his hands tight on the staff. They lunged toward each other. The Razak attempted to cleave Aragon from collarbone to hip, but Aragon twisted and stepped past the blow. Jamming the end of the staff upward, he drove its metal spike underneath the Razak's beak and through the plates that protected the creature's throat. The Razak shuddered once and then collapsed. Aragon stared at his most hated foe, stared at its lidless black eyes, and suddenly he went weak at the knees and retched against the wall of the corridor. Wiping his mouth, he yanked the staff free and whispered, For our father, for our home, for Carvajal, for Brom, I have had my fill of vengeance. May you rot here forever, Razak. Going to the appropriate cell, Aragon retrieved Sloane, who was still deep in his enchanted sleep, slung the butcher over his shoulder, and then began to retrace his steps back to the main cave of Helgrind. Along the way, he often lowered Sloane to the floor and left him, to explore a chamber or byway that he had not visited before. In them, he discovered many evil instruments, including four metal flasks of cether oil, which he promptly destroyed, so that no one else could use the flesh-eating acid to further their malicious plans. Hot sunlight stung Aragon's cheeks when he stumbled out of the network of tunnels. Holding his breath, he hurried past the dead leather blucker and went to the edge of the vast cave, where he gazed down the precipitous side of Helgrind at the hills far below. To the west, he saw a pillar of orange dust billowing above the lane that connected Helgrind to Drasleona, marking the approach of a group of horsemen. His right side was burning from supporting Sloane's weight, so Aragon shifted the butcher onto his other shoulder. He blinked away the beads of sweat that clung to his eyelashes as he struggled to solve the problem of how he was supposed to transport Sloane and himself five thousand-some feet to the ground. It's almost a mile down, he murmured. If there were a path, I could easily walk that distance, even with Sloane so I must have the strength to lower us with magic. Yes, but what you can do over a length of time may be too taxing to accomplish all at once without killing yourself. As Oromis said, the body cannot convert its stockpile of fuel into energy fast enough to sustain most spells for more than a few seconds. I only have a certain amount of power available at any given moment, and once it's gone, I have to wait until I recover." and talking to myself isn't getting me anywhere. Securing his hold on Sloane, Aragon fixed his eyes on a narrow ledge about a hundred feet below. This is going to hurt, he thought, preparing himself for the attempt. Then he barked, Odor! Aragon felt himself rise several inches above the floor of the cave. Fram, he said and the spell propelled him away from Helgrind and into open space, where he hung unsupported like a cloud drifting in the sky. Accustomed as he was to flying with Sephira, the sight of nothing but thin air underneath his feet still caused him unease. By manipulating the flow of magic, Aragon quickly descended from the Razak's lair, which the insubstantial wall of stone once again hid to the ledge. His boot slipped on a loose piece of rock as he alighted. 
For a handful of breathless seconds he flailed, searching for solid footing, but unable to look down, as tilting his head could send him toppling forward. He yelped as his left leg went off the ledge and he began to fall. Before he could resort to magic to save himself, he came to an abrupt halt as his left foot wedged itself in a crevice. The edges of the rift dug into his calf behind his grieve, but he did not mind, for it held him in place. Aragon leaned his back against Hellgrind, using it to help him prop up Sloane's limp body. That wasn't too bad, he observed. The effort had cost him, but not so much that he was unable to continue. I can do this, he said. He gulped fresh air into his lungs, waiting for his racing heart to slow. He felt as if he had sprinted a score of yards while carrying Sloane. I can do this. The approaching riders caught his eye again. They were noticeably closer than before and galloping across the dry land at a pace that worried him. It's a race between them and me, he realized. I have to escape before they reach Hellgrind. There are sure to be magicians among them, and I'm in no fit condition to duel Galbatorix's spellcasters. Glancing over at Sloane's face, he said, Perhaps you can help me a bit, eh? It's the least you can do, considering I'm risking death and worse for you. The sleeping butcher rolled his head, lost in the world of dreams. With a grunt, Eragon pushed himself off Hellgrind. Again, he said, Auder, and again he became airborne. This time he relied upon Sloane's strength, meagre as it was, as well as his own. Together they sank like two strange birds along Hellgrind's rugged flank, toward another ledge whose width promised safe haven. In such a manner, Eragon orchestrated their downward climb. He did not proceed in a straight line, but rather angled off to his right, so that they curved around Hellgrind, and the mass of blocky stone hid him and Sloane from the horsemen. The closer they got to the ground, the slower they went. A crushing fatigue overcame Aragon, reducing the distance he was able to traverse in a single stretch and making it increasingly difficult for him to recuperate during the pauses between his bursts of exertion. Even lifting a finger became a task that he found irritating in the extreme, as well as one that was almost unbearably laborious. Drowsiness muffled him in its warm folds and dulled his thoughts and feelings until the hardest of rocks seemed as soft as pillows to his aching muscles. When he finally dropped onto the sun-baked soil, too weak to keep Sloane and himself from ramming into the dirt, Aragon lay with his arms folded at odd angles underneath his chest and stared with half-lidded eyes into the yellow flecks of citrine embedded within the small rock an inch or two from his nose. Sloane weighed on his back like a pile of iron ingots. Air seeped from Aragon's lungs, but none seemed to return. His vision darkened as if a cloud had covered the sun. A deadly lull separated each beat of his heart, and the throb, when it came, was no more than a faint flutter. Aragon was no longer capable of coherent thought, but somewhere in the back of his brain he was aware that he was about to die. It did not frighten him. To the contrary, the prospect comforted him, for he was tired beyond belief 
and death would free him from the battered shell of his flesh and allow him to rest for all of eternity. From above and behind his head there came a bumblebee as big as his thumb. It circled his ear, then hovered by the rock, probing the nodes of citrine, which were the same bright yellow as the field stars that bloomed among the hills. The bumblebee's mane glowed in the morning light, each hair sharp and distinct to Aragon, and its blurred wings generated a gentle bombolation, like a tattoo played on a drum. Pollen powdered the bristles on its legs. The bumblebee was so vibrant, so alive, and so beautiful, its presence renewed Aragon's will to survive. A world that contained a creature as amazing as that bumblebee was a world he wanted to live in. By sheer force of will he pushed his left hand free of his chest and grasped the woody stem of a nearby shrub. Like a leech or a tick or some other parasite, he extracted the life from the plant, leaving it limp and brown. The subsequent rush of energy that coursed through Aragon sharpened his wits. Now he was scared. Having regained his desire to continue existing, he found nothing but terror in the blackness beyond. Dragging himself forward, he seized another shrub and transferred its vitality into his body, then a third shrub and a fourth shrub, and so on, until he once again possessed the full measure of his strength. He stood and looked back at the trail of brown plants that stretched out behind him. A bitter taste filled his mouth as he saw what he had wrought. Aragon knew that he had been careless with the magic, and that his reckless behavior would have doomed the Varden to certain defeat if he had died. In hindsight, his stupidity made him wince. Brom would box my ears for getting into this mess, he thought. Returning to Sloane, Aragon hoisted the gaunt butcher off the ground. Then he turned east and loped away from Hellgrind and into the concealment of a drawer. Ten minutes later, when he paused to check for pursuers, he saw a cloud of dirt swirling at the base of Hellgrind, which he took to mean that the horsemen had arrived at the dark tower of stone. He smiled. Galbatorix's minions were too far away for any lesser magicians among their ranks to detect his or Sloane's minds. By the time they discover the Razak's bodies, he thought, I shall have run a league or more. I doubt they will be able to find me then. Besides, they will be searching for a dragon and her rider, not a man travelling on foot. Satisfied that he did not have to worry about an imminent attack, Aragon resumed his previous pace, a steady, effortless stride that he could maintain for the entire day. Above him the sun gleamed gold and white. Before him, trackless wilderness extended for many leagues before lapping against the outbuildings of some village. And in his heart, a new joy and hope flared. At last, the Razak were dead. At last, his quest for vengeance was complete. At last, he had fulfilled his duty to Garrow and to Brom. And at last he had cast off the pall of fear and anger that he had laboured beneath ever since the Razak first appeared in Carvajal. Killing them had taken far longer than he expected, but now the deed was done, and a mighty deed it was. 
he allowed himself to revel in satisfaction over having accomplished such a difficult feat, albeit with assistance from Roran and Sephira. Yet, to his surprise, his triumph was bittersweet, tainted by an unexpected sense of loss. His hunt for the Razak had been one of his last ties to his life in Palankar Valley, and he was loath to relinquish that bond gruesome as it was. Moreover, the task had given him a purpose in life when he had none. It was the reason why he had originally left his home. Without it, a hole gaped inside of him where he had nurtured his hate for the Razak. That he could mourn the end of such a terrible mission appalled Aragon, and he vowed to avoid making the same mistake twice. I refuse to become so attached to my struggle against the Empire and Murtag and Galbatorix that I won't want to move on to something else, when and if the time comes. Or worse, that I'll try to prolong the conflict rather than adapt to whatever happens next. He chose then to push away his misbegotten regret and to concentrate instead on his relief. Relief that he was free of the grim demands of his self-imposed quest, and that his only remaining obligations were those born of his current position. Elation lightened his steps. With the Razak gone, Aragon felt as if he could finally make a life for himself, based not on who he had been, but on who he had become. A dragon rider. He smiled at the uneven horizon and laughed as he ran, indifferent as to whether anyone might hear him. His voice rolled up and down the draw and around him. Everything seemed new and beautiful and full of promise. To Walk the Land Alone Aragon's stomach gurgled. He was lying on his back, legs folded under at the knees, stretching his thighs after running farther and with more weight than he ever had before, when the loud, liquid rumble erupted from his innards. The sound was so unexpected, Aragon bolted upright, groping for his staff. Wind whistled across the empty land. The sun had set, and in its absence everything was blue and purple. Nothing moved save for the blades of grass that fluttered, and Sloane, whose fingers slowly opened and closed, in response to some vision in his enchanted slumber. A bone-biting cold heralded the arrival of true night. Aragon relaxed, and allowed himself a small smile. His amusement soon vanished as he considered the source of his discomfort. Battling the Razak, Casting numerous spells and bearing Sloane upon his shoulders for most of the day had left Aragon so ravenous he imagined that if he could travel back in time he could eat the entire feast the dwarves had cooked in his honour during his visit to Tarnag. The memory of how the roast Nagra, the giant boar, had smelled. Hot, pungent, seasoned with honey and spices and dripping with lard— was enough to make his mouth water. The problem was he had no supplies. Water was easy enough to come by. He could draw moisture from the soil whenever he wanted. Finding food in that desolate place, however, was not only far more difficult, it presented him with a moral dilemma 
that he had hoped to avoid. Oramis had devoted many of his lessons to the various climates and geographic regions that existed throughout Alagazia. Thus, when Aragon left their camp to investigate the surrounding area, he was able to identify most of the plants he encountered. Few were edible and of those none were large or bountiful enough for him to gather a meal for two grown men in a reasonable amount of time. The local animals were sure to have hidden away caches of seeds and fruit, but he had no idea where to begin searching for them. Nor did he think it was likely that a desert mouse would have amassed more than a few mouthfuls of food. That left him with two options, neither of which appealed to him. He could, as he had before, drain the energy from the plants and insects around their camp. The price of doing so would be to leave a death spot upon the earth, a blight where nothing, not even the tiny organisms in the soil, still lived. And while it might keep him and Sloane on their feet, transfusions of energy were far from satisfying, as they did nothing to fill one's stomach. Or he could hunt. Aragon scowled and twisted the butt of his staff into the ground. After sharing the thoughts and desires of numerous animals, it revolted him to consider eating one. Nevertheless, he was not about to weaken himself and perhaps allow the Empire to capture him just because he went without supper in order to spare the life of a rabbit. As both Saphira and Roran had pointed out, every living thing survived by eating something else. Ours is a cruel world, he thought, and I cannot change how it is made. The elves may be right to avoid flesh, but at the moment my need is great. I refuse to feel guilty if circumstances drive me to this. It is not a crime to enjoy some bacon or a trout or what have you. He continued to reassure himself with various arguments, yet disgust at the concept still squirmed within his gut. For almost half an hour he remained rooted to the spot, unable to do what logic told him was necessary. Then he became aware of how late it was and swore at himself for wasting time. He needed every minute of rest he could get. Stealing himself, Aragon sent out tendrils from his mind and probed the land until he located two large lizards and curled in a sandy den a colony of rodents that reminded him of a cross between a rat, a rabbit, and a squirrel. Deia, said Aragon, and killed the lizards and one of the rodents. They died instantly and without pain, but he still gritted his teeth as he extinguished the bright flames of their minds. The lizards he retrieved by hand, flipping over the rocks they had been hiding underneath. The rodent, however, he extracted from the den with magic. He was careful to not wake the other animals as he maneuvered the body up to the surface. It seemed cruel to terrify them with the knowledge that an invisible predator could kill them in their most secret havens. He gutted, skinned, and otherwise cleaned the lizards and rodent, burying the offal deep enough to hide it from scavengers. Gathering thin, flat stones, he built a small oven lit a fire within, and started the meat cooking. Without salt he could not properly season any sort of food, but some of the native plants released a pleasant smell when he crushed them between his fingers, 
and those he rubbed over and packed into the carcasses. The rodent was ready first, being smaller than the lizards. Lifting it off the top of the makeshift oven, Aragon held the meat in front of his mouth. He grimaced and would have remained locked in the grip of his revulsion, except that he had to continue tending the fire and the lizards. Those two activities distracted him enough that without thinking, he obeyed the strident command of his hunger and ate. The initial bite was the worst. It stuck in his throat, and the taste of hot grease threatened to make him sick. Then he shivered and dry-swallowed twice, and the urge passed. After that, it was easier. He was actually grateful the meat was rather bland, for the lack of flavor helped him to forget what he was chewing. He consumed the entire rodent, and then part of a lizard. Tearing the last bit of flesh off a thin leg bone, he heaved a sigh of contentment, and then hesitated. Chagrined to realize that in spite of himself, he had enjoyed the meal. He was so hungry, the meager supper had seemed delicious once he overcame his inhibitions. Perhaps, he mused, perhaps when I return, if I am at Nasuada's table or King Orin's and meat is served, perhaps, if I feel like it, and it would be rude to refuse, I might have a few bites. I won't eat the way I used to, but neither shall I be as strict as the elves. Moderation is a wiser policy than zealotry, I think. By the light from the coals in the oven, Aragon studied Sloane's hands. The butcher lay a yard or two away where Aragon had placed him. Dozens of thin white scars crisscrossed his long, bony fingers with their oversized knuckles and long fingernails that while they had been meticulous in Carvajal, were now ragged, torn, and blackened with accumulated filth. The scars testified to the relatively few mistakes Sloane had made during the decades he had spent wielding knives. His skin was wrinkled and weathered and bulged with worm-like veins, yet the muscles underneath were hard and lean. Aragon sat on his haunches and crossed his arms over his knees. I can't just let him go, he murmured. If he did, Sloane might track down Roran and Katrina, a prospect that Aragon considered unacceptable. Besides, even though he was not going to kill Sloane, he believed the butcher should be punished for his crimes. Aragon had not been close friends with Bert, but he had known him to be a good man, honest and steadfast, and he remembered Bird's wife, Felder, and their children with some fondness. For Garrow, Roran, and Aragon had eaten and slept in their house on several occasions. Bird's death, then, struck Aragon as being particularly cruel, and he felt the watchman's family deserved justice, even if they never learned about it. What, however, would constitute proper punishment? I refuse to become an executioner, thought Aragon only to make myself an arbiter. What do I know about the law? Rising to his feet, he walked over to Sloane and bent toward his ear and said, Wagner. With a jolt, Sloane woke, scrabbling at the ground with his sinewy hands. The remnants of his eyelids quivered as by instinct the butcher tried to lift them and look at his surroundings. Instead, he remained trapped 
in his own personal night. Aragon said, Here, eat this. He thrust the remaining half of his lizard toward Sloane, who, although he could not see it, surely must have smelled the food. Where am I? asked Sloane. With trembling hands he began to explore the rocks and plants in front of him. He touched his torn wrists and ankles, and appeared confused to discover that his fetters were gone. The elves, and also the riders in days gone by, called this place Myrnathor. The dwarves referred to it as Wergharden, and humans as the Grey Heath. If that does not answer your question, then perhaps it will if I say we are a number of leagues southeast of Helgrind, where you were imprisoned. Sloane mouthed the word Helgrind. You rescued me? I did. What about— Leave your questions. Eat this first. His harsh tone acted like a whip on the butcher. Sloane cringed and reached with fumbling fingers for the lizard. Releasing it, Aragon retreated to his place next to the rock oven and scooped handfuls of dirt onto the coals, blotting out the glow so that it would not betray their presence in the unlikely event that anyone else was in the vicinity. After an initial tentative lick to determine what it was Aragon had given him, Sloane dug his teeth into the lizard and ripped a thick gobbet from the carcass. With each bite, he crammed as much flesh into his mouth as he could and only chewed once or twice before swallowing and repeating the process. He stripped each bone clean with the efficiency of a man who possessed an intimate understanding of how animals were constructed and what was the quickest way to disassemble them. The bones he dropped into a neat pile on his left. As the final morsel of meat from the lizard's tail banished down Sloane's gullet, Aragon handed him the other reptile, which was yet whole. Sloane grunted in thanks and continued to gorge himself, making no attempt to wipe the fat from his mouth and chin. The second lizard proved to be too large for Sloane to finish. He stopped two ribs above the bottom of the chest cavity and placed what was left of the carcass on the cairn of bones. Then he straightened his back, drew his hand across his lips, tucked his long hair behind his ears and said, Thank you, strange sir, for your hospitality. It has been so long since I had a proper meal. I think I prize your food even above my own freedom, if I may ask. Do you know of my daughter, Katrina, and what has happened to her? She was imprisoned with me in Helgrind. His voice contained a complex mixture of emotions, respect, fear, and submission in the presence of an unknown authority, hope and trepidation as to his daughter's fate, and determination as unyielding as the mountains of the spine. The one element Aragon expected to hear but did not was the sneering disdain Sloane had used with him during their encounters in Carvajal. She is with Roran. Sloane gaped. Roran? How did he get here? Did the Razak capture him as well? Or did... The Razak and their steeds are dead. You killed them? How? Who? For an instant Sloane froze as if he was stuttering with his entire body, and then his cheeks and mouth went slack and his shoulders caved in, and he clutched at a bush to steady himself.
He shook his head. No, no, no. No, it can't be. The Razak spoke of this. They demanded answers I didn't have, but I thought, that is, who would believe? His sides heaved with such violence Aragon wondered if he would hurt himself. In a gasping whisper, as if he were forced to speak after being punched in the middle, Sloane said, You can't be Aragon. A sense of doom and destiny descended upon Aragon. He felt as if he were the instrument of those two merciless overlords, and he replied in accordance, slowing his speech so each word struck like a hammer blow and carried all the weight of his dignity, station, and anger. I am Aragon, and far more. I am Arjatlam, and Shade Slayer, and Fire Sword. My dragon is Saphira, she who is also known as Biartskula and Flame Tongue. We were taught by Brom, who was a rider before us, and by the dwarves and by the elves. We have fought the Urgles and a Shade and Murtag, who is Morzan's son. We served the Varden and the peoples of Alagasia, and I have brought you here, Sloane Aldenson, to pass judgment upon you for murdering Bird and for betraying Carvajal to the Empire. You lie! You cannot be— Lie! roared Aragon. I do not lie! Thrusting out with his mind, he engulfed Sloane's consciousness in his own and forced the butcher to accept memories that confirmed the truth of his statements. He also wanted Sloane to feel the power that was now his, and to realise that he was no longer entirely human. And while Aragon was reluctant to admit it, he enjoyed having control over a man who had often made trouble for him, and also tormented him with jibes, insulting both him and his family. He withdrew a half-minute later. Sloane continued to quiver, but he did not collapse and grovel as Aragon thought he might. Instead, the butcher's demeanour became cold and flinty. Blast you, he said. I don't have to explain myself to you, Aragon, son of Nun. Understand this, though. I did what I did for Katrina's sake and nothing else. I know. That's the only reason you're still alive. Do what you want with me, then. I don't care, so long as she's safe. Well, go on. What's it to be, a beating, a branding? They already had my eyes, so one of my hands? Or will you leave me to starve or to be recaptured by the Empire? I have not decided yet. Sloane nodded with a sharp motion and pulled his tattered clothes tight around his limbs to ward off the night cold. He sat with military precision gazing with blank, empty eye sockets into the shadows that ringed their camp. He did not beg. He did not ask for mercy. He did not deny his acts or attempt to placate Aragon. He but sat and waited, armoured by his perfect, stoic fortitude. His bravery impressed Aragon. The dark landscape around them seemed immense beyond reckoning to Aragon and he felt as if the entire hidden expanse was converging upon him, 
a notion that heightened his anxiety over the choice that confronted him. My verdict will shape the rest of his life, he thought. Abandoning for the moment the question of punishment, Aragon considered what he knew about Sloane. The butcher's overriding love for Katrina, obsessive, selfish, and generally unhealthy as it was, although it had once been something wholesome, his hate and fear of the spine which were the offspring of his grief for his late wife, Ismira, who had fallen to her death among those cloud-rending peaks, his estrangement from the remaining branches of his family, his pride in his work, the stories Aragon had heard about Sloane's childhood, and Aragon's own knowledge of what it was like to live in Carvajal. Aragon took that collection of scattered, fragmented insights and turned them over in his mind, pondering their significance. Like the pieces of a puzzle, he tried to fit them together. He rarely succeeded, but he persisted, and gradually he traced a myriad of connections between the events and emotions of Sloane's life, and thereby he wove a tangled web, the patterns of which represented who Sloane was. Throwing the last line of his web, Aragon felt as if he finally comprehended the reasons for Sloane's behaviour. Because of that, he empathised with Sloane. More than empathy, he felt he understood Sloane, that he had isolated the core elements of Sloane's personality, those things one could not remove without irrevocably changing the man. There occurred to him then three words in the ancient language that seemed to embody Sloane, and without thinking about it, Aragon whispered the words under his breath. The sound could not have reached Sloane, yet he stirred, his hands gripping his thighs, and his expression became one of unease. A cold tingle crawled down Aragon's left side, and goosebumps appeared on his arms and legs as he watched the butcher. He considered a number of different explanations for Sloane's reaction, each more elaborate than the last, but only one seemed plausible, and even it struck him as being unlikely. He whispered the trio of words again. As before, Sloane shifted in place, and Aragon heard him mutter, Someone walking on my grave. Aragon released a shaky breath. It was difficult for him to believe, but his experiment left no room for doubt. He had, quite by accident, chanced upon Sloane's true name. The discovery left him rather bewildered. Knowing someone's true name was a weighty responsibility, for it granted you absolute power over that person. Because of the inherent risks, the elves rarely revealed their true names, and when they did, it was only to those whom they trusted without reservation. Aragon had never learned anyone's true name before. He had always expected that if he did, it would be as a gift from someone he cared about a great deal. Gaining Sloane's true name without his consent was a turn of events Aragon was unprepared for and uncertain how to deal with. It dawned upon Aragon that in order to guess Sloane's true name, he must understand the butcher better than he did himself, for he had not the slightest inkling what his own might be. The realisation was an uncomfortable one. He suspected that given the nature of his enemies, not knowing everything he could about himself might well prove fatal. He vowed then 
to devote more time to introspection and to uncovering his true name. Perhaps Oramis and Glader could tell me what it is, he thought. Whatever the doubts and confusion Sloane's true name roused within him, it gave Eragon the beginning of an idea for how to deal with the butcher. Even once he had the basic concept, it still took him another ten minutes to thrash out the rest of his plan and make sure that it would work in the manner he intended. Sloane tilted his head in Aragon's direction as Aragon rose and walked out of their camp into the starlit land beyond. Where are you going? asked Sloane. Aragon remained silent. He wandered through the wilderness until he found a low, broad rock covered with scabs of lichen and with a bowl-like hollow in the middle. A Durna riser, said he. Around the rock, countless minuscule droplets of water filtered up through the soil and coalesced into flawless silver tubes that arched over the edge of the rock and down into the hollow. When the water started to overflow and return to the earth, only to be again ensnared by his spell, Aragon released the flow of magic. He waited until the surface of the water became perfectly still, so that it acted like a mirror, and he stood before what looked like a basin of stars. And then he said, Draumor Cooper, and many other words besides, reciting a spell that would allow him to not only see, but speak with others at a distance. Oramis had taught him the variation on scrying, two days before he and Sephira had left Elasmira for Surda. The water went completely black, as if someone had extinguished the stars like candles. A moment or two later, an oval shape brightened in the middle of the water, and Aragon beheld the interior of a large white tent, illuminated by the flameless light from a red Eristar, one of the elves' magical lanterns. Normally, Aragon would be unable to scry a person or place he had not seen before. But the elves seeing glass was enchanted to transmit an image of its surroundings to anyone who contacted the glass. Likewise, Aragon's spell would project an image of himself and his surroundings onto the surface of the glass. The arrangement allowed strangers to contact each other from any location in the world, which was an invaluable ability in times of war. A tall elf with silver hair and battle-worn armour entered Aragon's field of vision, and he recognised Lord Daethoda, who advised Queen Islanzadi and was a friend of Arya's. If Daethoda was surprised to see Aragon, he did not show it. He inclined his head, touched the first two fingers of his right hand to his lips, and said in his lilting voice, Atra sterni onotheldwin. Aragon Shurtugal? Mentally making the shift to conversing in the ancient language, Aragon duplicated the gesture with his fingers and replied, Atra du Evarinya ono Varda, Daethodor Vodor. Continuing in his native tongue, Daethodor said, I am glad to know you are well, Shadeslayer. Arya Drotningu informed us of your mission some days ago and we have been much concerned on your behalf and Sephira's. I trust nothing has gone amiss. No, but I encountered an unforeseen problem, and if I may, 
I would consult with Queen Islanzadi and seek her wisdom in this matter. Daythada's cat-like eyes drifted nearly shut, becoming two angled slashes that gave him a fierce and unreadable expression. I know you would not ask this unless it is important, Aragon Vodor. But beware, a drawn bow may just as easily snap and injure the archer as it may send the arrow flying. If it so please you, wait, and I shall inquire after the queen. I shall wait. Your assistance is most welcome, Daythada Vodor. As the elf turned away from the seeing-glass, Aragon grimaced. He disliked the elves' formality, but most of all he hated trying to interpret their enigmatic statements. Was he warning me that scheming and plotting around the queen is a dangerous pastime, or that Islanzadi is a drawn bow about to snap, or did he mean something else entirely? At least I'm able to contact the elves, thought Aragon. The elves' wards prevented anything from entering Duweldenvarden by magical means, including the far sight of scrying. So long as elves remained in their cities, one could communicate with them only by sending messengers into their forest. But now that the elves were on the move and had left the shade of their black-needled pine trees, their great spells no longer protected them, and it was possible to use devices such as the seeing-glass. Aragon became increasingly anxious as first one minute and then another trickled past. Come on, he murmured. He quickly glanced around to make sure that no person or beast was creeping up on him while he gazed into the pool of water. With a sound akin to ripping cloth, the entrance flap to the tent flew open as Queen Islanzadi thrust it aside and stormed toward the seeing-glass. She wore a bright corselet of golden-scale armor, augmented with mail and greaves, and a beautifully decorated helm, set with opals and other precious gemstones, that held back her flowing black tresses. A red cape trimmed with white billowed from her shoulders. It reminded Aragon of a looming storm front. In her left hand, Islanzadi wielded a naked sword. Her right hand was empty, but it appeared gloved in crimson, and after a moment Aragon realized that dripping blood coated her fingers and wrist. Islanzadi's slanting eyebrows narrowed as she looked upon Aragon. With that expression, she bore a striking resemblance to Arya, although her stature and bearing were even more impressive than her daughter's. She was beautiful and terrible, like a frightful goddess of war. Aragon touched his lips with his fingers, then twisted his right hand over his chest in the elves' gesture of loyalty and respect, and recited the opening line of their traditional greeting, speaking first as was proper when addressing one of higher rank. Islanzadi made the expected response, and in an attempt to please her and demonstrate his knowledge of their customs, Aragon concluded with the optional third line of the salutation, And may peace live in your heart. The ferocity of Islanzadi's pose diminished somewhat, and a faint smile touched her lips, as if to acknowledge his manoeuvre. And yours as well, Shade Slayer. Her low, rich voice 
contained hints of rustling pine needles and gurgling brooks and music played on reed pipes. Sheathing her sword, she moved across the tent to the folding table and stood at an angle to Aragon as she washed the blood of her skin with water from a pitcher. Peace is difficult to come by these days, I fear. The fighting is heavy, your majesty? It will be soon. My people are massing along the western edge of Duweldenvarden, where we may prepare to kill and be killed while we are close to the trees we love so much. We are a scattered race and do not march in rank and file like others do, on account of the damage it inflicts upon the land, and so it takes time for us to assemble from the distant reaches of the forest. I understand. Only... He searched for a way to ask his question without being rude. If the fighting has not started yet, I cannot help but wonder why your hand is dyed with gore. Shaking water droplets off her fingers, Islanzadi lifted her perfect gold-brown forearm for Eragon's inspection, and he realized that she had been the model for the sculpture of two intertwined arms that stood in the entryway to his treehouse in Ellesmira. Died no more. The only stain blood leaves on a person is on her soul, not her body. I said the fighting would escalate in the near future, not that we had yet to start. She pulled the sleeve of her corselet and the tunic underneath back down to her wrist. From the jeweled belt wrapped around her slim waist, she removed a gauntlet stitched with silver thread and worked her hand into it. We have been observing the city of Siunon, for we intend to attack there first. Two days ago, our rangers spotted teams of men and mules traveling from Siunon into Duweldenvarden. We thought they wished to collect timber from the edge of the forest, as is often done. Tis a practice we tolerate, for the humans must have wood and the trees within the fringe are young and nearly beyond our influence, and we have not wanted to expose ourselves before. The teams did not stop at the fringe, however. They burrowed far into Duweldenvarden, following game trails they were obviously familiar with. They were searching for the tallest, thickest trees, trees as old as Allegasia itself trees that were already ancient and fully grown when the dwarves discovered Fardendur. When they found them, they began to saw them down. Her voice rippled with rage. From their remarks we learned why they were here. Galbatorix wanted the largest trees he could acquire to replace the siege engines and battering rams he lost during the battle on the burning plains. If their motive had been pure and honest, we might have forgiven the loss of one monarch of our forest, maybe even two, but not eight and twenty. A chill crept through Aragon. What did you do? he asked, although he already suspected the answer. Islanzadi lifted her chin, and her face grew hard. I was present with two of our rangers. Together we corrected the human's mistake. In the past, the people of Siunon knew better than to intrude upon our lands. Today we reminded them why that was so. 
Without seeming to notice, she rubbed her right hand as if it pained her, and she gazed past the seeing glass, looking at some vision of her own. You have learned what it is like, Eragon Finiarel, to touch the life force of the plants and animals around you. Imagine how you would cherish them if you had possessed that ability for centuries. We give of ourselves to sustain Du Weldenvarden, and the forest is an extension of our bodies and minds. Any hurt it suffers is our hurt as well. We are a slow people to rouse, but once roused we are like the dragons. We go mad with anger. It has been over a hundred years since I, or most any elf, shed blood in battle. The world has forgotten what we are capable of. Our strength may have declined since the riders fall, but we shall still give a full reckoning of ourselves. To our enemies it will seem as if even the elements have turned against them. We are an elder race, and our skill and knowledge far exceed that of mortal men. Let Galbatorix and his allies beware, for we elves are about to forsake our forest, and we shall return in triumph, or never again. Aragon shivered. Even during his confrontations with Durza, he had never encountered such implacable determination and ruthlessness. It's not human, he thought, then laughed mockingly to himself. Of course not, and I would do well to remember that. However much we may look alike, and in my case nigh on identical, we are not the same. If you take Siunon, he said, how will you control the people there? They may hate the Empire more than death itself, but I doubt they will trust you, if only because they are humans and you are elves. Islanzadi waved a hand. That is unimportant. Once we are within the city walls, we have ways to ensure that no one will oppose us. This is not the first time we have fought your kind. She removed her helm then and her hair fell forward and framed her face between raven locks. I was not pleased to hear of your raid on Helgrind, but I take it the assault is already over and was successful? Yes, your majesty. Then my objections are for naught. I warn you, however, Aragon Schurtegel, do not imperil yourself on such needlessly dangerous ventures. It is a cruel thing, I must say, but true nevertheless, and it is this. Your life is more important than your cousin's happiness. I swore an oath to Roran that I would help him. Then you swore recklessly, without considering the consequences. Would you have me abandon those I care about? If I did that, I would become a man to despise and distrust an ill-formed vehicle for the hopes of the people who believe I will, somehow, bring low Galbatorix. And also, while Katrina was Galbatorix's hostage, Roran was vulnerable to his manipulation. The queen lifted one dagger-sharp eyebrow. A vulnerability that you could have prevented Galbatorix from exploiting by tutoring Roran in certain oaths in this the language of magic. I do not counsel you to cast away your friends or family, 
that would be folly indeed. But keep you firmly in mind what is at stake, the entirety of Allegasia. If we fail now, then Galbatorix's tyranny will extend over all the races, and his reign shall have no conceivable end. You are the tip of the spear that is our effort, and if the tip should break and be lost, then our spear shall bounce off the armor of our foe, and we too shall be lost. Folds of lichen cracked underneath Aragon's fingers as he gripped the edge of the rock basin and suppressed the urge to make an impertinent remark about how any well-equipped warrior ought to have a sword or another weapon to rely upon besides a spear. He was frustrated by the direction the conversation had taken and eager to change the topic as quickly as he could. He had not contacted the queen so she could berate him as if he were a mere child. Nevertheless, allowing his impatience to dictate his actions would do nothing to further his cause. So he remained calm and replied, Please believe me, your majesty, I take your concerns very, very seriously. I can only say that if I hadn't helped Roran, I would have been as miserable as he, and more so if he attempted to rescue Katrina by himself and died as a result. In either case, I would have been too upset to be of any use to you or anyone. Cannot we at least agree to differ on the subject? Neither of us shall convince the other. Very well, said Islanzadi. We shall lay the matter to rest, for the present. But do not think you have escaped a proper investigation of your decision, Aragon Dragon Rider. It seems to me you display a frivolous attitude toward your larger responsibilities, and that is a serious matter. I shall discuss it with Oromis. He will decide what is to be done about you. Now tell me, why did you seek this audience? Aragon clenched his teeth several times before he could bring himself to, in a civil tone, explain the day's events, the reasons for his actions in regard to Sloane, and the punishment he envisioned for the butcher. When he finished, Islanzadi whirled around and paced the circumference of the tent, her movements as lithe as a cat's, then stopped and said, You chose to stay behind in the middle of the empire to save the life of a murderer and a traitor. You are alone with this man, on foot, without supplies or weapons, save for magic, and your enemies are close behind. I see my earlier admonishments were more than justified. You, your majesty, if you must be angry with me, be angry with me later. I want to resolve this quickly so I can get some rest before dawn. I have many miles to cover tomorrow. The queen nodded. Your survival is all that matters. I shall be furious after we are done speaking. As for your request... Such a thing is unprecedented in our history. If I had been in your place, I would have killed Sloane and rid myself of the problem then and there. I know you would have. I once watched Arya slay a Jurfalcon who was injured, for she said its death was inevitable, and by killing it, she saved the bird hours of suffering. Perhaps I should have done the same with Sloane, but I couldn't. I think it would have been a choice I would have regretted for the rest of my life. Or worse, one that would have made it easier for me to kill in the future. Islanzadi sighed, and suddenly she appeared tired. 
Aragon reminded himself that she, too, had been fighting that day. Oromis may have been your proper teacher, but you have proved yourself Brom's heir, not Oromis's. Brom is the only other person who managed to entangle himself in as many predicaments as you. Like him, you seem compelled to find the deepest patch of quicksand and then dive into it. Aragon hid a smile, pleased by the comparison. What of Sloane? he asked. His fate rests with you now. Slowly, Islanzadi sat upon a stool next to the folding table, placed her hands in her lap, and gazed to one side of the seeing glass. Her countenance became one of enigmatic observation, a beautiful mask that concealed her thoughts and feelings, and one that Aragon could not penetrate, no matter how hard he strove. When she spoke, she said, As you have seen fit to save this man's life at no little trouble and effort on your own part, I cannot refuse your request and thereby render your sacrifice meaningless. If Sloane survives the ordeal you have set before him, then Gilderian the Wise shall allow him to pass, and Sloane shall have a room and a bed and food to eat. More I cannot promise, for what happens afterward will depend on Sloane himself, but if the conditions you named are met, then yes. We shall light his darkness. Thank you, your majesty. You are most generous. No, not generous. This war does not allow me to be generous, only practical. Go and do what you must, and be you careful, Aragon Shadeslayer. Your majesty, he bowed, if I may ask one last favor, would you Please refrain from telling Arya, Nasawada, or any of the Varden of my current situation. I don't want them to worry about me any longer than they have to, and they'll learn of it soon enough from Sephira. I shall consider your request. Aragon waited, but when she remained silent and it became clear she had no intention of announcing her decision, he bowed a second time and again said, Thank you. The glowing image on the surface of the water flickered and then vanished into darkness as Aragon ended the spell he had used to create it. He leaned back on his heels and gazed up at the multitude of stars, allowing his eyes to readjust to the faint, glimmering light they provided. Then he left the crumbling rock with the pool of water and retraced his path across the grass and scrub to the camp, where Sloane still sat upright rigid as cast iron. Aragon struck a pebble with his foot and the resulting noise revealed his presence to Sloane, who snapped his head around quick as a bird. Have you made up your mind? demanded Sloane. I have, said Aragon. He stopped and squatted in front of the butcher, steadying himself with one hand on the ground. Hear me well, for I don't intend to repeat myself. You did what you did because of your love for Katrina, or so you say. Whether you admit it or not, I believe you also had other, baser motives in wanting to separate her from Roran. Anger, hate, vindictiveness, and your own hurt. Sloane's lips hardened into thin white lines. You wrong me. No, I don't think so. Since my conscience prevents me from killing you, 
Your punishment is to be the most terrible I could invent short of death. I'm convinced that what you said before is true, that Katrina is more important to you than anything else. Therefore, your punishment is this. You shall not see, touch, or talk with your daughter again, even unto your dying day, and you shall live with the knowledge that she is with Roran, and they are happy together, without you. Sloane inhaled through his clenched teeth. That is your punishment? Ha! You cannot enforce it. You have no prison to put me in. I'm not finished. I will enforce it by having you swear oaths in the elves' tongue, in the language of truth and magic, to abide by the terms of your sentence. You can't force me to give my word, Sloane growled. Not even if you torture me. I can, and I won't torture you. Furthermore, I will lay upon you a compulsion to travel northward until you reach the elf city of Ellesmira, which stands deep in the heart of Duweldenvarden. You can try to resist the urge if you want, but no matter how long you fight it, the spell will irritate you like an unscratched itch until you obey its demands and travel to the elves' realm. Don't you have the guts to kill me yourself? asked Sloane. You're too much of a coward to put a blade to my neck, so you'll make me wander the wilderness blind and lost until the weather or the beasts do me in. He spat to the left of Aragon. You're nothing but the yellow-bellied offspring of a canker-ridden bunter. You're a bastard, you are, and an unlicked cub, a dung-splattered, tallow-faced rock-nasher, a puking villain and a noxious toad, the runty, mewling spawn of a greasy sow. I wouldn't give you my last crust if you were starving, or a drop of water if you were burning, or a beggar's grave if you were dead. You have pus for marrow and fungus for brains, and you're a scug-backed cheek-biter. There was, Aragon thought, something rather obscenely impressive about Sloane swearing, although his admiration did not prevent him from wanting to strangle the butcher, or at least respond in kind. What stayed his desire for retaliation, however, was his suspicion that Sloane was deliberately trying to infuriate him enough to strike down the older man, and thus give him a quick and undeserved end. Aragon said, Bastard, I may be, but not a murderer. Sloane drew a sharp breath. Before he could resume his torrent of abuse, Aragon added, Wherever you go, you shall not want for food, nor will wild animals attack you. I will place certain enchantments around you that will keep men and beasts from troubling you and will cause animals to bring you sustenance when you need it. You can't do this, whispered Sloane. Even in the starlight, Aragon could see the last remnants of colour drain from his skin, leaving him bone white. You don't have the means. You don't have the right. I am a dragon rider. I have as much right as any king or queen. Then Aragon, who had no interest in continuing to chastise Sloane, 
uttered the butcher's true name loud enough for him to hear. An expression of horror and revelation crawled across Sloane's face, and he threw his arms up before him and howled as if he had been stabbed. His cry was raw and jagged and desolate, the scream of a man condemned by his own nature to a fate he could not escape. He fell forward onto the palms of his hands and remained in that position and began to sob, his face obscured by shocks of hair. Aragon watched, transfixed by Sloane's reaction. Does learning your true name affect everyone like this? Would this happen to me as well? Hardening his heart to Sloane's misery, Aragon set about doing what he said he would. He repeated Sloane's true name and word by word schooled the butcher in the ancient language oaths that would ensure Sloane never met or contacted Katrina again. Sloane resisted with much weeping and wailing and grinding of his teeth, but no matter how vigorously he struggled, he had no choice but to obey whenever Aragon invoked his true name. And when they finished with the oaths, Aragon cast the five spells that would drive Sloane toward Elasmira, would protect him from unprovoked violence, and would entice the birds and the beasts and the fish that dwelled in the rivers and lakes to feed him. Aragon fashioned the spells so they would derive their energy from Sloane and not himself. Midnight was a fading memory by the time Aragon completed the final incantation. Drunk with weariness, he leaned against the hawthorn staff. Sloane lay curled at his feet. Finished, said Aragon. A garbled moan drifted up from the figure below. It sounded as if Sloane were attempting to say something. Frowning, Aragon knelt beside him. Sloane's cheeks were red and bloody where he had scraped them with his fingers. His nose ran, and tears dripped from the corner of his left eye socket, which was the less mutilated of the two. Pity and guilt welled up inside of Aragon. It gave him no pleasure to see Sloane reduced to such a low state. He was a broken man, stripped of everything he valued in life, including his self-delusions, and Aragon was the one who had broken him. The accomplishment left Aragon feeling soiled, as if he had done something shameful. It was necessary, he thought, but no one should have to do what I did. Another moan emanated from Sloane, and then he said, Only a piece of rope. I didn't mean to. Is Mira? No, no, please, no. The butcher's rambling subsided, and in the intervening silence, Aragon placed his hand on Sloane's upper arm. Sloane stiffened at the contact. Aragon, he whispered, Aragon, I am blind, and you send me to walk the land, to walk the land alone. I am forsaken and forsworn. I know who I am, and I cannot bear it. Help me, kill me. Free me of this agony. On an impulse, Aragon pressed the hawthorn rod into Sloane's right hand and said, Take my staff. Let it guide you on your journey. Kill me. No. A cracked shout burst from Sloane's throat, and he thrashed from side to side and pounded the earth with his fists, 
cruel, cruel you are. His meager strength depleted. He curled into an even tighter ball, panting and whimpering. Bending over him, Aragon placed his mouth close to Sloane's ear and whispered, I am not without mercy, so I give you this hope. If you reach Elasmira, you will find a home waiting for you. The elves will care for you and allow you to do whatever you want for the rest of your life, with one exception. Once you enter Duweldenvarden, you cannot leave. Sloane, listen to me. When I was among the elves, I learned that a person's true name often changes as they age. Do you understand what that means? Who you are is not fixed for all of eternity. A man could forge himself anew if he so wanted. Sloane made no reply. Aragon left the staff next to Sloane and crossed to the other side of the camp and stretched out his full length on the ground. His eyes already closed. He mumbled a spell that would rouse him before dawn and then allowed himself to drift into the soothing embrace of his waking rest. The grey heath was cold, dark and inhospitable, when a low buzz sounded inside Aragon's head. Let her, he said, and the buzzing ceased. Groaning as he stretched sore muscles, he got to his feet and lifted his arms over his head, shaking them to get the blood flowing. His back felt so bruised he hoped it would be a long while before he had to swing a weapon again. He lowered his arms and then looked for Sloane. The butcher was gone. Aragon smiled as he saw a set of tracks accompanied by the round imprint of the staff leading away from the camp. The trail was confused and meandering, and yet its general direction was northward, toward the great forest of the elves. I want him to succeed, Aragon thought with mild surprise. I want him to succeed, because it will mean we may all have a chance to redeem ourselves from our mistakes. And if Sloane can mend the flaws in his character, and come to terms with the evil he wrought, he will find his plight is not so bleak as he believes. For Aragon had not told Sloane that if the butcher demonstrated that he truly regretted his crimes, reformed his ways and lived as a better person, Queen Islanzadi would have her spellweavers restore his vision. However, it was a reward Sloane had to earn without knowing about its existence, else he might seek to trick the elves into bestowing it prematurely. Aragon stared at the footprints for a long while, then lifted his gaze to the horizon and said, Good luck. Tired, but also content, he turned his back on Sloane's trail and began to run across the grey heath. To the southwest, he knew there stood the ancient sandstone formations where Brom lay encased in his diamond tomb. He longed to divert his path and to go pay his respects, but dared not, for if Galbatorix had discovered the site, he would send his agents there to look for Aragon. I'll return, he said. I promise you, Brom, some day... I'll return. He sped onward. The Trial of the Long Knives But we are your people, Thadawar, 
a tall, high-nosed, black-skinned man, spoke with the same heavy emphasis and altered vowels Nasawada remembered hearing during her childhood in Farthandur, when emissaries from her father's tribe would arrive, and she would sit on Arjahad's lap and doze while they talked and smoked Cardus weed. Nasawada gazed up at Fadawa and wished she was six inches taller, so that she could look the warlord and his four retainers straight in the eyes. Still, she was accustomed to men looming over her. She found it rather more disconcerting to be among a group of people who were as dark as she was. It was a novel experience not to be the object of people's curious stares and whispered comments. She was standing in front of the carved chair where she held her audiences, one of the only solid chairs the Varden had brought with them on their campaign, inside her red command pavilion. The sun was close to setting, and its rays filtered through the right side of the pavilion as through stained glass and gave the contents a ruddy glow. A long, low table, covered with scattered reports and maps, occupied one half of the pavilion. Just outside the entrance to the large tent, she knew the six members of her personal guard, two humans, two dwarves and two urgles, were waiting with drawn weapons, ready to attack if they received the slightest indication she was in peril. Jormunder, her oldest and most trusted commander, had saddled her with guards since the day Arjihad died, but never so many for so long. However, the day after the battle on the burning plains, Jormunda expressed his deep and abiding concern for her safety, a concern, he said, that often kept him up nights with a burning stomach, as an assassin had tried to kill her in Aberon, and Murtag had actually accomplished the deed in regard to King Hrothgar less than a week past. It was Jormunda's opinion that Nasawada ought to create a force dedicated to her own defence. She had objected that such a measure would be an overreaction, but had been unable to convince Jormunder. He had threatened to abdicate his post if she refused to adopt what he considered to be proper precautions. Eventually, she acceded, only to spend the next hour haggling over how many guards she was to have. He had wanted twelve or more at all times. She wanted four or fewer. They settled on six which still struck Nasawada as too many. She worried about appearing afraid, or worse, as if she were attempting to intimidate those she met. Again, her protestations had failed to sway Jormunda. When she accused him of being a stubborn old worrywart, he laughed and said, Better a stubborn old worrywart than a foolhardy youngling dead before his time! As the members of her guard changed every six hours, the total number of warriors assigned to protect Nasawada was four and thirty, including the ten additional warriors who remained in readiness to replace their comrades in case of sickness, injury, or death. It was Nasawada who had insisted upon recruiting the force from each of the three mortal races arrayed against Galbatorix. By doing so, she hoped to foster greater solidarity among them, as well as to convey that she represented the interests of all the races under her command, not just the humans. She would have included the elves as well, but at the moment Arya was the only elf who fought alongside the Varden and their allies, 
and the twelve spellcasters Islanzadi had sent to protect Aragon had yet to arrive. To Nasawada's disappointment, her human and dwarf guards had been hostile to the Urgals they served with, a reaction she anticipated but had been unable to avert or mitigate. It would, she knew, take more than one shared battle to ease the tensions between races that had fought and hated each other for more generations than she cared to count. Still, she viewed it as encouraging that the warriors chose to name their corps the Nighthawks, for the title was a play upon both her colouring and the fact that the Urgals invariably referred to her as Lady Nightstalker. Although she would never admit it to Jormunda, Nasawada had quickly come to appreciate the increased sense of security her guards provided. In addition to being masters of their chosen weapons, whether they were the human swords, the dwarves' axes, or the Urgals' eccentric collection of instruments, many of the warriors were skilled spellweavers, and they had all sworn their undying loyalty to her in the ancient language. Since the day the Nighthawks first assumed their duties, they had not left Nasawada alone with another person, save for Ferica, her handmaid. That was until now. Nasawada had sent them out of the pavilion because she knew her meeting with Fadawa might lead to the type of bloodshed the Nighthawk sense of duty would require them to prevent. Even so, she was not entirely defenseless. She had a dagger hidden in the folds of her dress and an even smaller knife in the bodice of her undergarments, and the prescient witch-child Elva was standing just behind the curtain that backed Nasuada's chair, ready to intercede if need be. Fadoa tapped his four-foot-long scepter against the ground. The chased rod was made of solid gold, as was his fantastic array of jewellery. Gold bangles covered his forearms, a breastplate of hammered gold armoured his chest. Long, thick chains of gold hung around his neck. Embossed discs of white gold stretched the lobes of his ears, and upon the top of his head rested a resplendent gold crown of such huge proportions Nasawada wondered how Fadawa's neck could support the weight without buckling, and how such a monumental piece of architecture remained fixed in place. It seemed one would have to bolt the edifice, which was at least two and a half feet tall, to its bony bedrock in order to keep it from toppling over. Fadawa's men were garbed in the same fashion, although less opulently. The gold they wore served to proclaim not only their wealth, but also the status and deeds of each individual, and the skill of their tribe's far-famed craftsmen. As either nomads or city-dwellers, the dark-skinned peoples of Alagazia had long been renowned for the quality of their jewellery which at its best rivaled that of the dwarves. Nasawada owned several pieces of her own, but she had chosen not to wear them. Her poor raiment could not compete with Fadawa's splendor. Also, she believed it would not be wise to affiliate herself with any one group, no matter how rich or influential, when she had to deal with and speak for all the differing factions of the Varden. If she displayed partiality toward one or another, her ability to control the whole lot of them would diminish. Which was the basis of her argument with Fadawa? Fadawa again jabbed his scepter into the ground. Blood is the most important thing. First come your responsibilities to your family, then to your tribe, 
then to your warlord, then to the gods above and below, and only then to your king and to your nation, if you have them. That is how Unulukuna intended men to live, and that is how we should live if we want to be happy. Are you brave enough to spit on the shoes of the old one? If a man does not help his family, whom can he depend upon to help him? Friends are fickle, but family is forever. You ask me, said Nasawada, to give positions of power to your fellow kinsmen because you are my mother's cousin and because my father was born among you. This I would be happy to do if your kinsmen could fulfill those positions better than anyone else in the Varden. But nothing you have said thus far has convinced me that is so. And before you squander more of your guilt-tongued eloquence, you should know that appeals based upon our shared blood are meaningless to me. I would give your request greater consideration if ever you had done more to support my father than send trinkets and empty promises to Father Ndur. Only now that victory and influence are mine have you made yourself known to me. Well, my parents are dead, and I say I have no family but myself. You are my people, yes, but nothing more. Thadawa narrowed his eyes and lifted his chin and said, A woman's pride is always without sense. You shall fail without our support. He had switched to his native language, which forced Nasawada to respond in kind. She hated him for it. Her halting speech and uncertain tones exposed her unfamiliarity with her birth tongue, emphasizing that she had not grown up in their tribe, but was an outsider. The ploy undermined her authority. I always welcome new allies, she said. However, I cannot indulge in favoritism, nor should you have need of it. Your tribes are strong and well-gifted. They should be able to rise quickly through the ranks of the Varden without having to rely upon the charity of others. Are you starving dogs to sit whining at my table, or are you men who can feed themselves? If you can, then I look forward to working with you, to better the Varden's lot, and to defeat Galbatorix. Ma! exclaimed Fadawa. Your offer is as false as you are. We shall not do servants' work. We are the chosen ones. You insult us, you do. You stand there and you smile, but your heart is full of scorpion's poison. Stifling her anger, Nasuada attempted to calm the warlord. It was not my intent to cause offence. I was only trying to explain my position. I have no enmity for the wandering tribes nor have I any special love for them. Is that such a bad thing? It is worse than bad. It is bald-faced treachery. Your father made certain requests of us based upon our relation, and now you ignore our service and turn us away like empty-handed beggars. A sense of resignation overwhelmed Nasuada. So Elva was right. It is inevitable she thought. A thrill of fear and excitement coursed through her. If it must be, then I have no reason to maintain this charade. Allowing her voice to ring forth, she said, 
requests that you did not honour half the time. We did. You did not. And even if you were telling the truth, the Varden's position is too precarious for me to give you something for nothing. You ask for favours, yet tell me, what do you offer in return? Will you help fund the Varden with your gold and jewels? Not directly, but... Will you give me the use of your craftsmen free of charge? We could not. How, then, do you intend to earn these boons? You cannot pay with warriors. Your men already fight for me, whether in the Varden or in King Orin's army. Be content with what you have, warlord, and do not seek more than is rightfully yours. You twist the truth to suit your own selfish goals. I seek what is rightfully ours. That is why I am here. You talk and you talk, yet your words are meaningless, for by your actions you have betrayed us. The bangles on his arms clattered together as he gestured, as if before an audience of thousands. You admit we are your people. Then do you still follow our customs and worship our gods? Here is the turning point, thought Nasuada. She could lie and claim she had abandoned the old ways. But if she did, the Varden would lose Fadawa's tribes and other nomads besides once they heard of her statement. We need them. We need everyone we can get if we're to have the slightest chance of toppling Galbatorix. I do, she said. Then I say you are unfit to lead the Varden. And, as is my right, I challenge you to the trial of the long knives. If you are triumphant, we shall bow to you and never again question your authority. But if you lose, then you shall step aside and I shall take your place as head of the Varden. Nasawada noted the spark of glee that lit Fadawa's eyes. This is what he wanted all along, she realized. He would have invoked the trial even if I had complied with his demands. She said, Perhaps I am mistaken, but I thought it was tradition that whoever won assumed command of his rival's tribes as well as his own. Is that not so? She almost laughed at the expression of dismay that flashed across Fadawa's face. You didn't expect me to know that, did you? It is. I accept your challenge, then, with the understanding that should I win, your crown and scepter will be mine. Are we agreed? Fadawa scowled and nodded. We are. He stabbed his scepter deep enough into the ground that it stood upright by itself, then grasped the first bangle on his left arm and began to work it down over his hand. Wait, said Nasawada. Going to the table that filled the other side of the pavilion, she picked up a small brass bell and rang it twice, paused, and then rang it four times. Only a moment or two passed before Ferica entered the tent. She cast a frank gaze at Nasawada's guests, then curtsied to the lot of them and said, Yes, mistress. Nasawada gave Fadawar a nod. We may proceed. Then she addressed her handmaid. Help me out of my dress. I don't want to ruin it. The older woman looked shocked by the request. 
Here, ma'am? In front of these men? Yes, here, and be quick about it, too. I shouldn't have to argue with my own servant. Nasawada was harsher than she meant to be, but her heart was racing, and her skin was incredibly, terribly sensitive. The soft linen of her undergarments seemed as abrasive as canvas. Patience and courtesy were beyond her now. All she could concentrate on was her upcoming ordeal. Nasawada stood motionless as Ferika picked and pulled at the laces to her dress, which extended from her shoulder blades to the base of her spine. When the cords were loose enough, Ferika lifted Nasawada's arms out of the sleeves, and the shell of bunched fabric dropped in a pile around Nasawada's feet, leaving her standing almost naked in her white chemise. She fought back a shiver as the four warriors examined her, feeling vulnerable beneath their covetous looks. Ignoring them, she stepped forward out of the dress, and Ferika snatched the garment out of the dirt. Across from Nasawada, Fadawa had been busy removing the bangles from his forearms, revealing the embroidered sleeves of his robes underneath. Finished, he lifted off his massive crown and handed it to one of his retainers. The sound of voices outside the pavilion delayed further progress. Marching through the entrance, a message boy, Jasha was his name, Nasawada remembered, planted himself a foot or two inside and proclaimed, King Orin of Surda, Jormunda of the Varden, Triana of Duvrangargata, and Narko and Ramosewa of the Inner Pashuna tribe. Jasha very pointedly kept his eyes fixed on the ceiling while he spoke. Snapping about, Jasha departed, and the congregation he had announced entered, with Orin at the vanguard. The king saw Fadawa first and greeted him, saying, Ah, warlord, this is unexpected. I trust you and... Astonishment suffused his youthful face as he beheld Nasawada. Why, Nasawada, what is the meaning of this? I should like to know that as well, rumbled Jormunder. He gripped the hilt of his sword and glowered at anyone who dared stare at her too openly. I have summoned you here, she said, to witness the trial of the long knives between Fadawa and myself, and to afterward speak the truth of the outcome to everyone who asks. The two grey-haired tribesmen, Narko and Ramosewa, appeared alarmed by her revelation. They leaned close together and began to whisper. Triana crossed her arms, bearing the snake bracelet coiled around one slim wrist, but otherwise betrayed no reaction. Jormunder swore and said, Have you taken leave of your senses, my lady? This is madness. You cannot... I can, and I will. My lady, if you do, I... Your concern is noted, but my decision is final, and I forbid anyone from interfering. She could tell he longed to disobey her order, but as much as he wanted to shield her from harm, loyalty had ever been Jormunder's predominant trait. But Nasuwada, said King Orin, this trial, is not it where it is? Blast it, then. Why don't you give up this mad venture? You would have to be addled to carry it out. I have already given my word to Fadawa. The mood in the pavilion became even more somber. That she had given her word 
meant she could not rescind her promise without revealing herself to be an honorless oath-breaker that fair-minded men would have no choice but to curse and shun. Orin faltered for a moment, but he persisted with his questions. To what end? That is, if you should lose. If I should lose, the Varden shall no longer answer to me, but to Fadawa. Nasawada had expected a storm of protest. Instead, there came a silence, wherein the hot anger that animated King Orin's visage cooled and sharpened and acquired a brittle temper. I do not appreciate your choice to endanger our entire cause. To Fadawa, he said, Will you not be reasonable and release Nasawada from her obligation? I will reward you richly if you agree to abandon this ill-conceived ambition of yours. I am rich already, said Fadawa. I have no need for your tin-tainted gold. No, nothing but the trial of the long knives can compensate me for the slander Nasawada has aimed at my people and me. Bear witness now said Nasawada. Orin clenched tight the folds of his robes, but he bowed and said, I, I will bear witness. From within their voluminous sleeves, Fadawa's four warriors produced small, hairy, goat-hide drums. Squatting, they placed the drums between their knees and struck up a furious beat, pounding so fast their hands were sooty smudges in the air. The rough music obliterated all other sound, as well as the host of frantic thoughts that had been bedeviling Nasuada. Her heart felt as if it were keeping pace with the manic tempo that assaulted her ears. Without missing a single note, the oldest of Fadawa's men reached inside his vest, and from there drew two long curved knives that he tossed toward the peak of the tent. Nasuada watched the knives tumble halved over blade, fascinated by the beauty of their motion. When it was close enough, she lifted her arm and caught her knife. The opal-studded hilt stung her palm. Fadawa successfully intercepted his weapon as well. He then grasped the left cuff of his garment and pushed the sleeve past his elbow. Nasawada kept her eyes fixed upon Fadawa's forearm as he did. His limb was thick and muscled, but she deemed that of no importance. Athletic gifts would not help him win their contest. What she looked for instead were the tell-tale ridges that, if they existed, would lie across the belly of his forearm. She observed five of them. Five, she thought. So many! Her confidence wavered as she contemplated the evidence of Fadawa's fortitude. The only thing that kept her from losing her nerve altogether was Elva's prediction. The girl had said that in this, Nasawada would prevail. Nasawada clung to the memory as if it were her only child. She said, I can do this, so I must be able to outlast Fadawa. I must be able to. As he was the one who had issued the challenge, Fadawa went first. He held his left arm straight out from his shoulder, palm upward placed the blade of his knife against his forearm just below the crease of his elbow and drew the mirror-polished edge across his flesh. 
his skin split like an overripe berry, blood welling from within the crimson crevice. He locked gazes with Nasawada. She smiled and set her own knife against her arm. The metal was as cold as ice. Theirs was a test of wills to discover who could withstand the most cuts. The belief was that whoever aspired to become the chief of a tribe or even a warlord should be willing to endure more pain than anyone else for the sake of his or her people. Otherwise, how could the tribes trust their leaders to place the concerns of the community before their own selfish desires? It was Nasuada's opinion that the practice encouraged extremism, but she also understood the ability of the gesture to earn people's trust. Although the trial of the long knives was specific to the dark-skinned tribes, besting Fadua would solidify her standing among the Vardan, and, she hoped, King Orin's followers. She offered a quick plea for strength to Gokukara, the praying mantis goddess, and then pulled on the knife. The sharpened steel slid through her skin so easily she struggled to avoid cutting too deeply. She shuddered at the sensation. She wanted to fling the knife away and clutch her wound and scream. She did none of those things. She kept her muscles slack. If she tensed, the process would hurt all the more. And she kept smiling as slowly the blade mutilated her body. The cut ended after only three seconds, but in those seconds her outraged flesh delivered a thousand shrieking complaints, and each one nearly made her stop. As she lowered the knife, she noticed that while the tribesmen still beat upon their drums, she heard naught but the pounding of her pulse. Then Fadua slashed himself a second time. The cords in his neck stood in high relief, and his jugular vein bulged as if it would burst while the knife carved its bloody path. Nasawada saw it was her turn again. Knowing what to expect only increased her fear. Her instinct for self-preservation, an instinct that had served her well on all other occasions, warred against the commands she sent to her arm and hand. Desperate, she concentrated upon her desire to preserve the Varden and overthrow Galbatorix, the two causes to which she had devoted her entire being. In her mind, she saw her father and Jormunda and Eragon and the people of the Varden, and she thought, For them, I do this for them. I was born to serve, and this is my service. She made the incision. A moment later, Fadawa opened up a third gash on his forearm, as did Nasawada on her own. The fourth cut followed soon thereafter, and the fifth. A strange lethargy overtook Nasawada. She was so very tired and cold as well. It occurred to her then that tolerance of pain might not decide the trial, but rather who would faint first from loss of blood. Shifting streams of it ran across her wrist and down her fingers, splashing into the thick pool by her feet. A similar, if larger, puddle gathered around Fadawa's boots. The row of gaping red slits on the warlord's arm reminded Nasawada of the gills of a fish, 
a thought that for some reason seemed incredibly funny to her. She had to bite her tongue to keep from giggling. With a howl, Fadowa succeeded in completing his sixth cut. Best that, your feckless witch! He shouted over the noise of the drums and dropped to one knee. She did. Fadowa trembled as he transferred his knife from his right hand to his left. Tradition dictated a maximum of six cuts per arm, else you risked severing the veins and tendons close to the wrist. As Nasuada imitated his movement, King Orin sprang between them and said, Stop! I won't allow this to continue! You're going to kill yourselves! He reached toward Nasuada, then jumped back as she stabbed at him. Don't meddle, she growled between her teeth. Now Fadowa started on his right forearm, releasing a spray of blood from his rigid muscles. He's clenching, she realized. She hoped the mistake would be enough to break him. Nasawada could not help herself. She uttered a wordless cry when the knife parted her skin. The razor edge burned like a white-hot wire. Halfway through the cut, her traumatized left arm twitched. The knife swerved as a result, leaving her with a long, jagged laceration twice as deep as the others. Her breath stopped while she weathered the agony. I can't go on, she thought. I can't. I can't. It's too much to bear. I'd rather die. Oh, please, let it end. It gave her some relief to indulge in those and other desperate complaints. But in the depths of her heart, she knew she would never give up. For the eighth time, Fadowa positioned his blade above one of his forearms. And there he held it, the pale metal suspended a quarter of an inch away from his sable skin. He remained thus as sweat dripped over his eyes and his wounds shed ruby tears. It appeared as though his courage might have failed him. But then he snarled and with a quick yank sliced his arm. His hesitation bolstered Nasawada's flagging strength. A fierce exhilaration overtook her, transmuting her pain into an almost pleasurable sensation. She matched Fadowa's effort, and then, spurred onward by her sudden heedless disregard for her own well-being, brought the knife down again. Best that, she whispered. The prospect of having to make two cuts in a row, one to equal the number of Nasuadas and one to advance the contest, seemed to intimidate Fadowa. He blinked, licked his lips, and adjusted his grip on his knife three times before he raised the weapon over his arm. His tongue darted out and moistened his lips again. A spasm distorted his left hand, and the knife dropped from his contorted fingers, burying itself upright in the ground. He picked it up. Underneath his robe, his chest rose and fell with frantic speed. Lifting the knife, he touched it to his arm. It promptly drew a small trickle of blood. Fadawa's jaw knotted and writhed, and then a shudder ran the length of his spine, and he doubled over, pressing his injured arms against his belly. I submit, he said. The drums stopped. 
The ensuing silence lasted for only an instant before King Orin, Jormunda, and everyone else filled the pavilion with their overlapping exclamations. Nasawada paid no attention to their remarks. Groping behind herself, she found her chair and sank into it, eager to take the weight off her legs before they gave way beneath her. She strove to remain conscious as her vision dimmed and flickered. The last thing she wanted to do was pass out in front of the tribesmen. A gentle pressure on her shoulder alerted her to the fact that Ferica was standing next to her, holding a pile of bandages. My lady, may I tend to you? asked Ferica, her expression both concerned and hesitant, as if she were uncertain how Nasawada would react. Nasawada nodded her approval. As Ferica began to wind strips of linen around her arms, Narko and Ramosewa approached. They bowed, and Ramosewa said, Never before has anyone endured so many cuts in the trial of the long knives. Both you and Fadawa proved your mettle. But you are undoubtedly the victor. We shall tell our people of your achievement, and they shall give you their fealty. Thank you said Nasawada. She closed her eyes as the throbbing in her arms increased. My lady. Around her, Nasawada heard a confused medley of sounds, which she made no effort to decipher, preferring instead to retreat deep inside herself, where her pain was no longer so immediate and menacing. She floated in the womb of a boundless black space, illuminated by formless blobs of ever-changing color. Her respite was interrupted by the voice of Triana, as the sorceress said, Leave off what you're doing, handmaid, and remove those bandages so I can heal your mistress. Nasawada opened her eyes to see Jormunda, King Orin, and Triana standing over her. Fadowar and his men had departed the pavilion. No, said Nasawada. The group looked at her with surprise, and then Jormunda said, Nasawada, your thoughts are clouded. The trial is over. You don't have to live with these cuts any longer. In any event, we have to stanch your bleeding. Ferica is doing that well enough as is. I shall have a healer stitch my wounds and make a poultice to reduce the swelling. And that is all. But why? The trial of the long knives requires participants to allow their wounds to heal at their natural pace. Otherwise, we won't have experienced the full measure of pain the trial entails. If I violate the rule, Fadawa will be declared the victor. Will you at least allow me to alleviate your suffering? asked Triana. I know several spells that can eliminate any amount of pain. If you had consulted me beforehand, I could have arranged it so that you could lop off an entire limb without the slightest discomfort. Nasawada laughed and allowed her head to loll to the side, feeling rather giddy. My answer would have been the same then as it is now. Trickery is dishonorable. I had to win the trial without deceit, so no one can question my leadership in the future. In a deadly soft tone, King Orin said, 
But what if you had lost? I could not lose. Even if it meant my death, I never would have allowed Fadowa to gain control of the Varden. Grave, Orin studied her for a long while. I believe you. Only is the tribe's loyalty worth such a great sacrifice? You are not so common that we can easily replace you. The tribe's loyalty, no. But this will have an effect far beyond the tribes, as you must know. It should help unify our forces, and that is a prize valuable enough for me to willingly brave a host of unpleasant deaths. Pray tell, what would the Varden have gained if you had died today? No benefit would exist then. Your legacy would be discouragement, chaos, and likely ruin. Whenever Nasuada drank wine, mead, and especially strong spirits, she became most cautious with her speech and motions, for even if she did not notice it at once, she knew the alcohol degraded her judgment and coordination, and she had no desire to behave inappropriately or to give others an advantage in their dealings with her. Pain drunk as she was, she later realized she should have been as vigilant in her discussion with Orin as if she had imbibed three tankards of the dwarves' blackberry honey mead. If she had, her well-developed sense of courtesy would have prevented her from replying so, You worry like an old man, Orin. I had to do this, and it is done. Tis bootless to fret about it now. I took a risk, yes but we cannot defeat Galbatorix unless we dance along the very cliff edge of disaster. You are a king. You ought to understand that danger is the mantle a person assumes when he or she has the arrogance to decide the fates of other men. I understand well enough, growled Orin. My family and I have defended Surda against the Empire's encroachment every day of our lives for generations, while the Varden merely hid in Fardendur and leeched off Hrothgar's generosity. His robes swirled about him as he turned and stalked out of the pavilion. That was badly handled, my lady, observed Jormunder. Nasuada winced as Ferica tugged on her bandages. I know, she gasped. I'll mend his broken pride tomorrow. Winged Tidings A gap appeared then in Nasuada's memories, an absence of sensory information so complete she only became aware of the missing time when it dawned upon her that Jormunder was shaking her shoulder and saying something loudly. It took her several moments to decipher the sounds coming out of his mouth, and then she heard, Keep looking at me, blast it! That's the thing! Don't go to sleep again! You won't wake up again if you do! You can let go of me, Jormunder, she said, and mustered a weak smile. I'm all right now. And my uncle Unset was an elf, 
wasn't he? Bah, you are the same as your father, always ignoring caution when it comes to your own safety. The tribes can rot in their bloody old customs for all I care. Let a healer at you. You're in no condition to make decisions. That's why I waited until it was evening. See, the sun is almost down. I can rest tonight, and tomorrow I will be able to deal with the affairs that require my attention. Ferrika appeared from the side and hovered over Nasuada. Oh, Mum, you gave us quite a fright there. Still are, as a matter of fact, muttered Jormunda. Well, I'm better now. Nasawada pushed herself upright in the chair, ignoring the heat from her forearms. You can both go. I shall be fine. Jormunda, send word to Fadawa that he may remain chief of his own tribe, so long as he swears loyalty to me as his warlord. He is too skilled a leader to waste. And Ferrica, on your way back to your tent, please inform Angela the herbalist that I require her services. She agreed to mix some tonics and poultices for me. I won't leave you alone in this condition, declared Jormunda. Ferrica nodded. Begging your pardon, my lady, but I agree with him. It's not safe. Nasawada glanced toward the entrance to the pavilion to ensure none of the nighthawks were close enough to overhear and then dropped her voice into a low whisper. I shall not be alone. Jormunda's eyebrows shot up and an alarmed expression crossed Ferrica's face. I am never alone. Do you understand? You have taken certain precautions, my lady? asked Jormunda. I have. Both her caretakers appeared uneasy with her assurance, and Jormunda said, Nasawada, your safety is my responsibility. I need to know what additional protection you may have, and who exactly has access to your person. No, she said gently. Seeing the hurt and indignation that appeared in Jormunda's eyes, she continued, it's not that I doubt your loyalty, far from it. Only this I must have for myself. For the sake of my own peace of mind, I need to have a dagger no one else can see. A hidden weapon tucked up my sleeve, if you will. Consider it a flaw in my character, but do not torment yourself by imagining my choice is in any way a criticism of how you perform your duties. My lady... Jormunda bowed, a formality he almost never used with her. Nasawada lifted her hand, indicating her permission for them to leave, and Jormunda and Ferrica hurried from the Red Pavilion. For a long minute, perhaps two, the only sound Nasawada heard was the harsh cry of gore-crows circling above the Vardens' encampment. Then from behind her there came a slight rustling, like that of a mouse nosing about for food. Turning her head, she saw Elva slip out of her hiding place, emerging between two panels of fabric into the main chamber of the pavilion. Nasuada studied her. The girl's unnatural growth had continued. When Nasuada first met her but a short while ago, Elva had appeared between three and four years old. 
Now she looked closer to six. Her plain dress was black, with a few folds of purple around the neck and shoulders. Her long, straight hair was even darker, a liquid void that flowed down to the small of her back. Her sharp-angled face was bone-white, for she rarely ventured outside. The dragon mark on her brow was silver, and her eyes, her violet eyes, contained a jaded, cynical air, the result of Aragon's blessing that was a curse, for it forced her to both endure other people's pain and also try to prevent it. The recent battle had almost killed her, what with the combined agony of thousands beating upon her mind. Even though one of Duvrangargata had placed her in an artificial slumber for the duration of the fighting in an attempt to protect her, only recently had the girl begun to speak and take interest in her surroundings again. She wiped her rosebud mouth with the back of her hand, and Nasawada asked, Were you ill? Elva shrugged. The pain I'm used to, but it never gets any easier to resist Aragon's spell. I am hard to impress, Nasuada, but you are a strong woman to withstand so many cuts. Even though Nasuada had heard it many times, Elva's voice still inspired a thrill of alarm in her, for it was the bitter, mocking voice of a world-weary adult, not that of a child. She struggled to ignore it as she responded, You are stronger. I did not have to suffer through Fadawa's pain as well. Thank you for staying with me. I know what it must have cost you, and I'm grateful. Grateful? Ha! There's an empty word for me, Lady Nightstalker. Elva's small lips twisted in a misshapen smile. Have you anything to eat? I'm famished. Ferica left some bread and wine behind those scrolls, said Nasuara, pointing across the pavilion. She watched the girl make her way to the food and begin wolfing down the bread, cramming large chunks into her mouth. At least you won't have to live like this for much longer. As soon as Eragon returns, he'll remove the spell. Perhaps. After she had devoured half a loaf, Elva paused. I lied about the trial of the long knives. What do you mean? I foresaw that you would lose, not win. What? If I had allowed events to take their course, your nerve would have broken on the seventh cut, and Fadawa would be sitting where you are now. So I told you what you needed to hear in order to prevail. A chill crept over Nasawada. If what Elva said was true, then she was in the witch-child's debt more than ever. Still, she disliked being manipulated, even if it was for her own benefit. I see. It seems I must thank you once again. Elva laughed then, a brittle sound. And you hate every moment of it, don't you? No matter... You need not worry about offending me, Nasuada. We are useful to each other, no more. Nasuada was relieved when one of the dwarves guarding the pavilion, the captain of that particular watch, banged his hammer against his shield and proclaimed, The herbalist Angela requests an audience with you, Lady Nightstalker. 
granted, said Nasawada, raising her voice. Angela bustled into the pavilion, carrying several bags and baskets looped over her arms. As always, her curly hair formed a stormy cloud around her face, which was pinched with concern. At her heels padded the weircat Solombum in his animal form. He immediately angled toward Elva and began to rub against her legs, arching his back as he did. Depositing her luggage on the ground, Angela rolled her shoulders and said, Really? Between you and Aragon, I seem to spend most of my time among the Varden healing people too silly to realize they need to avoid getting chopped into tiny little pieces. While she spoke, the short herbalist marched over to Nasuada and began unwinding the bandages around her right forearm. She clucked with disapproval. Normally, this is when the healer asks her patient how she is, and the patient lies through her teeth and says, Oh, not too bad. And the healer says, Good, good. Be cheery and you'll make a fine recovery. I think it's obvious, however, you're not about to start running around and leading charges against the Empire. Far from it. I will recover, won't I? asked Nasuada. You would, if I could use magic to seal up these wounds. Since I can't, it's a bit harder to tell. You'll have to muddle along like most people do and hope none of these cuts gets infected. She paused in her work and gazed directly at Nasawada. You do realize these will scar? It will be what it will be. True enough. Nasawada stifled a groan and gazed upward as Angela stitched each of her wounds and then covered them with a thick, wet mat of pulped plants. Out of the corner of her eye she saw Solombum jump onto the table and sit next to Elva. Extending a large, shaggy paw, the weircat hooked a piece of bread off Elva's plate and nibbled on the morsel, his white fangs flashing. The black tassels on his oversized ears quivered as he swiveled his ears from side to side, listening to metal-clad warriors walking past the red pavilion. Barzul, muttered Angela. Only men would think of cutting themselves to determine who the pack leader is. Idiots. It hurt to laugh, but Nasawada could not help herself. Indeed, she said, after her fit subsided. Just as Angela finished retying the last strip of cloth around Nasawada's arms, the dwarf captain outside the pavilion shouted, Halt! and there came a chorus of shimmering bell-like notes as the human guards crossed their swords, barring the way to whoever sought entrance. Without pausing to think, Nasawada drew the four-inch knife from the sheath sewn within the bodice of her chemise. It was difficult for her to grasp the hilt as her fingers felt thick and clumsy, and the muscles in her arm were slow to respond. It was as if the limb had fallen asleep, save for the sharp, burning lines scribed into her flesh. Angela also pulled a dagger from somewhere in her clothes, and she placed herself before Nasawada and muttered a line of the ancient language. Leaping to the ground, Solombum crouched next to Angela. His fur stood on end, making him appear larger than most dogs. He growled low in his throat. Elva continued eating, seemingly unperturbed by the commotion. 
She examined the morsel of bread she was holding between her thumb and index finger as one might inspect a strange species of insect, and then dipped it into a goblet of wine and popped the bread into her mouth. My lady! shouted a man. Aragon and Sephira fast approach from the northeast! Nasawada sheathed her knife. Pushing herself out of her chair, she said to Angela, Help me dress. Angela held the garment open in front of Nasawada, who stepped into it. Then Angela gently guided Nasawada's arms into the sleeves, and when they were in place, set about lacing up the back of the dress. Elva joined her. Together they soon had Nasawada properly attired. Nasawada surveyed her arms and saw no trace of her bandages. Should I hide or reveal my injuries? she asked. That depends, said Angela. Do you think showing them will increase your standing or encourage your enemies because they assume you are weak and vulnerable? The question is actually a rather philosophical one, predicated on whether when looking at a man who has lost a big toe you say, oh, he's a cripple, or, oh, he was smart or strong or lucky enough to escape worse injury. You make the strangest comparisons. Thank you. The trial of the long knives is a contest of strength, said Elva. That is well known among the Varden and Surdens. Are you proud of your strength, Nasuada? Cut off the sleeves, said Nasuada. When they hesitated, she said, Go on, at the elbows. Don't mind the dress, I shall have it repaired later. With a few deft movements, Angela removed the sections Nasuada had identified and dropped the excess fabric on the table. Nasuada lifted her chin. Elva, if you sense I am about to faint, please tell Angela and have her catch me. Shall we, then? The three of them gathered into a tight formation with Nasuada at the lead. Solombum walked alone. As they exited the Red Pavilion, the dwarf captain barked, Stations! And the six present members of the Nighthawks ranged themselves around Nasawada's group. The humans and dwarves fore and aft, and the hulking cull, Urgles, who stood eight feet and taller, on either side. Dusk spread its gold and purple wings over the Varden's encampment, lending a sense of mystery to the rows of canvas tents that extended beyond the limits of Nasawada's sight. Deepening shadows presaged the advent of night, and countless torches and watchfires already glowed pure and bright in the warm twilight. The sky was clear to the east. South, a long, low cloud of black smoke hid the horizon and the burning plains, which were a league and a half away. West, a line of beaches and aspens marked the path of the Jeet River, upon which floated the dragon wing, the ship Jode and Roran and the other villages from Carvajal had pirated. But Nasuada had eyes only for the north, and the glittering shape of Sephira descending thence. Light from the fading sun still illuminated her, cloaking her in a blue halo. She appeared like a cluster of stars falling from the heavens. The sight was so majestic, Nasuada stood transfixed for a moment thankful she was fortunate enough to witness it. They're safe, she thought, and breathed a sigh of relief. 
the warrior who had brought word of Safira's arrival, a thin man with a large untrimmed beard, bowed and then pointed. My lady, as you can see, I spoke the truth. Yes, you did well. You must have exceedingly sharp eyes to have spotted Safira earlier. What is your name? Fletcher, son of Harden, my lady. You have my thanks, Fletcher. You may return to your post now. With another bow, the man trotted off toward the edge of the camp. Keeping her gaze fixed upon Safira, Nasawada picked her way between the rows of tents toward the large clearing set aside as a place for Safira to land and take off. Her guards and companions accompanied her, but she paid them little heed, eager as she was to rendezvous with Aragon and Safira. She had spent much of the previous days worrying about them, both as the leader of the Varden and, somewhat to her surprise, as a friend. Safira flew as fast as any hawk or falcon Nasawada had seen, but she was still a number of miles away from the camp, and it took her almost ten minutes to traverse the remaining distance. In that time a massive crowd of warriors gathered around the clearing, humans, dwarves, and even a contingent of grey-skinned urgles led by Nar Garjvog, who spit at the men closest to them. Also in the congregation were King Orin and his courtiers, who positioned themselves opposite Nasawada. Narheem, the dwarf ambassador, who had assumed Oric's duties since Oric left for Farthandur, Jormundur, the other members of the Council of Elders, and Arya. The tall elf woman wove her way through the crowd toward Nasawada. Even with Sephira nigh upon them, men and women alike tore their gaze from the sky to watch Arya's progress. She presented such a striking image. Dressed all in black, she wore leggings like a man, a sword on her hip, and a bow and quiver on her back. Her skin was the color of light honey. Her face was as angular as a cat's, and she moved with a slinking, muscular grace that bespoke her skill with a blade, and also her supernatural strength. Her eccentric ensemble had always struck Nasuada as slightly indecent. It revealed so much of her form. But Nasuada had to admit that even if Arya donned a gown of rags, she would still appear more regal and dignified than any mortal-born noble. Halting before Nasuada, Arya gestured with one elegant finger at Nasuada's wounds. As the poet Tiani said, to place yourself in harm's way for the sake of the people and the country you love is the finest thing one can do. I have known every leader of the Varden, and they were all mighty men and women, and none so much as Arjahad. In this, though, I believe you have surpassed even him. You honour me, Arya, but I fear that if I burn so brightly, too few shall remember my father as he deserves. The deeds of the children are a testament of the upbringing they received from their parents. Burn like the sun, Nasawada, for the brighter you burn, the more people there shall be who will respect Ajihad for teaching you how to bear the responsibilities of command at such a tender age. Nasawada dipped her head, taking to heart Arya's advice. Then she smiled and said, A tender age? I am a grown woman by our reckoning. 
Amusement gleamed in Arya's green eyes. True, but if we judge by years and not wisdom, no human would be considered an adult among my kind. Except for Galbatorix, that is. And me, Angela chimed in. Come now, said Nasawada. You can't be much older than I am. Ha! You're confusing appearances with age. You ought to have more sense than that after being around Arya so long. Before Nasawada could ask just how old Angela really was, she felt a hard tug on the back of her dress. Looking around, she saw that it was Elva who had taken such a liberty, and that the girl was beckoning. Bending, Nasuada placed an ear close to Elva, who muttered, Aragon's not on Safira. Nasuada's chest tightened, restricting her breathing. She peered upward. Safira circled directly over the camp, some thousands of feet high. Her huge, bat-like wings were black against the sky. Nasawada could see Safira's underside and her talons white against the lapped scales of her belly, but nothing of whoever might be riding her. How do you know? she asked, keeping her voice low. I cannot feel his discomfort nor his fears. Roran is there, and a woman I guess is Katrina, no one else. Straightening, Nasawada clapped her hands and said, Jormunda! allowing her voice to ring forth. Jormunda, who was almost a dozen yards away, came running, shoving aside those who got in his way. He was experienced enough to know when an emergency was at hand. My lady? Clear the field. Get everyone away from here before Safira lands. Including Orin and Nahim and Garjvog? She grimaced. No, but allow no one else to remain. Hurry! As Jormunda began shouting orders, Arya and Angela converged upon Nasawada. They appeared as alarmed as she felt. Arya said, Safira would not be so calm if Aragon was hurt or dead. Where is he then? demanded Nasawada. What trouble has he gotten himself into now? A raucous commotion filled the clearing as Jormunda and his men directed the onlookers back to their tents laying about them with swagger sticks whenever the reluctant warriors lingered or protested. Several scuffles broke out, but the captains under Jormunda quickly overwhelmed the culprits so as to prevent the violence from taking root and spreading. Fortunately, the Urgles, at the word of their war chief, Garjvag, left without incident. Although Garjvag himself advanced toward Nasawada, as did King Orin and the dwarf Nahim, Nasawada felt the ground tremble under her feet as the eight-and-a-half-foot-tall Urgle approached her. He lifted his bony chin, baring his throat as was the custom of his race, and said, What means this, Lady Nightstalker? The shape of his jaws and teeth, coupled with his accent, made it difficult for Nasawada to understand him. Yes, I'd bloody well like an explanation myself, said Orin. His face was red. And I, said Nahim. It occurred to Nasawada as she regarded them that this was probably the first time in thousands of years that members of so many of the races of Alagasia had gathered together in peace. The only ones missing were the Razak and their mounts, 
and Nasuada knew no sane being would ever invite those foul creatures into their secret councils. She pointed at Sephira and said, She shall provide the answers you desire. Just as the last stragglers quit the clearing, a torrent of air rushed across Nasuada as Sephira swooped to the ground, raking her wings to slow herself before alighting upon her rear legs. She dropped to all fours, and a dull boom resounded across the camp. Unbuckling themselves from her saddle, Roran and Katrina quickly dismounted. Striding forward, Nasawada examined Katrina. She was curious to see what kind of woman could inspire a man to undertake such extraordinary feats in order to rescue her. The young woman before her was strong-boned, with the pallid complexion of an invalid, a mane of copper hair, and a dress so torn and filthy it was impossible to determine what it might have looked like originally. In spite of the toll her captivity had taken, it was apparent to Nasuada that Katrina was attractive enough, but not what the bards would call a great beauty. However, she possessed a certain force of gaze and bearing that made Nasuada think that if Roran had been the one captured, Katrina would have been just as capable of rousing the villagers of Carvajal, getting them south to Surda, fighting in the Battle of the Burning Plains, and then continuing on to Helgrind, all for the sake of her beloved. Even when she noticed Garjvag, Katrina did not flinch or quail, but remained standing where she was, next to Roran. Roran bowed to Nasuada, and swivelling, also to King Orin. My lady, he said, his face grave. Your Majesty, if I may, this is my betrothed, Katrina. She curtsied to them both. Welcome to the Vardan, Katrina, said Nasuada. We have all heard your name here, on account of Roran's uncommon devotion. Songs of his love for you already spread across the land. You are most welcome, added Orin. Most welcome indeed. Nasuada noticed that the king had eyes only for Katrina, as did every man present, including the dwarves, and Nasawada was certain they would be recounting tales of Katrina's charms to their comrades-in-arms before the night was out. What Roran had done on her behalf elevated her far above ordinary women. It made her an object of mystery, fascination, and allure to the warriors. That anyone should sacrifice so much for another person meant by reason of the price paid, that person must be unusually precious. Katrina blushed and smiled. Thank you, she said. Along with her embarrassment at such attentions, a hint of pride coloured her expression, as if she knew how remarkable Roran was and delighted in having captured his heart. Of all the women in Alagazia, he was hers, and that was all the status or treasure she desired. A pang of loneliness shot through Nasawada. I wish I had what they have, she thought. Her responsibilities prevented her from entertaining girlish dreams of romance and marriage, and certainly children, unless she were to arrange a marriage of convenience for the good of the Varden. She had often considered doing that with Orin, but her nerve always failed her. 
Still, she was content with her lot, and did not begrudge Katrina and Roran their happiness. Her cause was what she cared about. Defeating Galbatorix was far more important than something as trifling as marriage. Most everyone got married, but how many had the opportunity to oversee the birth of a new age? I am not myself this evening, realized Nasawada. My wounds have set my thoughts a-humming like a nest of bees. Shaking herself, she looked past Roran and Katrina to Safira. Nasawada opened up the barriers she usually maintained around her mind so she might hear what Safira had to say, and then asked, Where is he? With the dry rustle of scales sliding over scales, Safira crept forward and lowered her neck so her head was directly in front of Nasawada, Arya, and Angela. The dragon's left eye sparkled with blue fire. She sniffed twice, and her crimson tongue darted out of her mouth. Hot, moist breath ruffled the lace collar on Nasawada's dress. Nasawada swallowed as Safira's consciousness brushed against her own. Safira felt unlike any other being Nasawada had encountered, ancient, alien, and both ferocious and gentle. That, along with Safira's imposing physical presence, always reminded Nasawada that if Safira wanted to eat them, she could. It was impossible, Nasawada believed, to be complacent around a dragon. I smell blood, said Safira. Who has hurt you, Nasawada? Name them, and I shall tear them from neck to groin and bring you their heads for trophies. There's no need for you to tear anyone apart. Not yet, at least. I wielded the knife myself. However, this is the wrong time to delve into the matter. Right now, all I care about is Aragon's whereabouts. Aragon, said Sophira, decided to remain in the Empire. For a few seconds, Nasawada was unable to move or think. Then a mounting sense of doom replaced her stunned denial of Sophira's revelation. The others reacted in various ways as well from which Nasawada deduced Safira had spoken to them all at once. How, how could you allow him to stay? she asked. Small tongues of fire rippled in Safira's nostrils as she snorted. Aragon made his own choice. I could not stop him. He insists upon doing what he thinks is right, no matter the consequences for him or the rest of Alagazia. I could shake him like a hatchling, but I'm proud of him. Fear not, he can take care of himself. So far no misfortune has befallen him. I would know if he was hurt. Arya spoke. And why did he make this choice, Safira? It would be faster for me to show you rather than explain with words. May I? They all indicated their consent. A river of Safira's memories poured into Nasawada. She saw black hellgrind from above a layer of clouds, heard Aragon, Roran, and Safira discussing how best to attack, watched them discover the Razak's lair, and experienced Safira's epic battle with the leather blucker. The procession of images fascinated Nasawada. She had been born in the Empire 
but could remember nothing of it. This was the first time as an adult that she had looked upon anything besides the wild fringes of Galbatorix's holdings. Lastly came Aragon and his confrontation with Sephira. Sephira attempted to hide it, but the anguish she felt over leaving Aragon was still so raw and piercing, Nasawada had to dry her cheeks with the bandages on her forearms. However, the reasons Aragon gave for staying, killing the last Razak and exploring the remainder of Helgrind, were reasons Nasawada deemed inadequate. She frowned. Aragon may be rash, but he's certainly not foolish enough to endanger everything we seek to accomplish merely so he could visit a few caves and drain the last bitter dregs of his revenge. There must be another explanation. She wondered whether she should press Sephira for the truth, but she knew Sephira would not withhold such information on a whim. Perhaps she wants to discuss it in private, she thought. Blast it! exclaimed King Orin. Aragon could not have picked a worse time to set off on his own. What matters a single Razak when Galbatorix's entire army resides but a few miles from us? We have to get him back. Angela laughed. She was knitting a sock using five bone needles, which clicked and clacked and scraped against each other with a steady, if peculiar, rhythm. How? He'll be travelling during the day, and Sephira daren't fly around searching for him when the sun's up, and anyone might spot her and alert Galbatorix. Yes, but he's our rider. We cannot sit by idly while he remains in the midst of our enemies. I agree, said Nahim. However it is done, we must ensure his safe return. Grimston's Boris Hrothgar adopted Aragon into his family and clan. That is mine own clan, as you know, and we owe him the loyalty of our law and our blood. Arya knelt, and to Nasawada's surprise, began to unlace and retie the upright sections of her boots. Holding one of the cords between her teeth, Arya said, Sephira, where exactly was Aragon when you last touched his mind? In the entrance to Hellgrind. And have you any idea what path he intended to follow? He did not yet know himself. Springing to her feet, Arya said, Then I shall have to look everywhere I can. Like a deer, she bounded forward and ran across the clearing, vanishing among the tents beyond as she sped northward as fast and light as the wind itself. Arya, no! shouted Nasawada, but the elf was already gone. Hopelessness threatened to engulf Nasawada as she stared after her. The center is crumbling, she thought. Grasping the edges of the mismatched pieces of armor that covered his torso as if to tear them off, Garjvag said to Nasawada, Do you want me to follow, Lady Night Stalker? I cannot run as fast as little elves, but I can run as long. No, no, stay. Arya can pass for human at a distance, but soldiers would hunt you down the moment some farmer caught sight of you. I am used to being hunted. But not in the middle of the Empire, with hundreds of Galbatorix's men wandering the countryside. No, Arya will have to fend for herself. 
I pray that she can find Aragon and keep him safe, for without him we are doomed. Escape and Evasion Aragon's feet drummed against the ground. The pounding beat of his stride originated in his heels and ran up his legs, through his hips and along his spine, until it terminated at the base of his skull, where the recurring impact jarred his teeth and exacerbated the headache that seemed to worsen with every passing mile. The monotonous music of his running had annoyed him at first, but before long it lulled him into a trance-like state, where he did not think, but moved. As Aragon's boots descended, he heard brittle stalks of grass snap like twigs and glimpsed puffs of dirt rising from the cracked soil. He guessed it had been at least a month since it last rained in this part of Allegasia. The dry air leached the moisture from his breath, leaving his throat raw. No matter how much he drank, he could not compensate for the amount of water the sun and the wind stole from him. Thus his headache. Halgrind was far behind him. However, he had made slower progress than he had hoped. Hundreds of Galbatorix's patrols, containing both soldiers and magicians, swarmed across the land, and he often had to hide in order to avoid them. That they were searching for him, he had no doubt. The previous evening he had even spotted Thorn riding low on the western horizon. He had immediately shielded his mind, thrown himself into a ditch and stayed there for half an hour until Thorn dipped back down below the edge of the world. Aragon had decided to travel on established roads and trails wherever possible. The events of the past week had pushed him to the limits of his physical and emotional endurance. He preferred to allow his body to rest and recover, rather than strain himself forging through brambles over hills and across muddy rivers. The time for desperate, violent exertion would come again, but now was not it. So long as he held to the roads, he dared not run as fast as he was capable. Indeed, it would be wiser to avoid running altogether. A fair number of villages and outbuildings were scattered throughout the area. If any of the inhabitants observed a lone man sprinting across the countryside as if a pack of wolves were chasing him, the spectacle would be sure to arouse curiosity and suspicion, and might even inspire a frightened crofter to report the incident to the Empire. That could prove fatal for Aragon, whose greatest defence was the cloak of anonymity. He only ran now because he encountered no living creatures except a long snake sunning itself for over a league. Returning to the Varden was Aragon's primary concern, and it rankled him to plod along like a common vagabond. Still, he appreciated the opportunity to be by himself. He had not been alone, truly alone, since he found Sephira's egg in the spine. Always her thoughts had rubbed against his, or Brom or Murtag or someone else had been at his side. In addition to the burden of constant companionship, Aragon had spent all the months since he had left Palancar Valley engaged in arduous training, breaking only for travel or to take part in the tumult of battle. Never before had he concentrated so intensely for so long, 
or dealt with such huge amounts of worry and fear. He welcomed his solitude then, and the peace it brought. The absence of voices, including his own, was a sweet lullaby that for a short while washed away his fear of the future. He had no desire to scry Sephira. Although they were too far apart to touch each other's minds, his bond with her would tell him if she was hurt, or to contact Arya or Nasuada and hear their angry words. Far better, he thought, to listen to the songs of the flitting birds and the sighing of the breeze through the grass and leafy branches. The sound of jingling harnesses, plomping hooves and men's voices jarred Aragon out of his reverie. Alarmed, he stopped and glanced around, trying to determine from what direction the men were approaching. A pair of cackling jackdaws spiralled upward from a nearby ravine. The only cover close to Aragon was a small thicket of juniper trees. He sprinted toward it and dove under the drooping branches just as six soldiers emerged from the ravine and rode cantering out onto the thin dirt road not ten feet away. Normally Aragon would have sensed their presence long before they got so close, but since Thorn's distant appearance he had kept his mind walled off from his surroundings. The soldiers reined in their horses and milled around in the middle of the road, arguing among themselves. I'm telling you, I saw something, one of them shouted. He was of medium height, with ruddy cheeks and a yellow beard. His heart hammering, Aragon struggled to keep his breathing slow and quiet. He touched his brow to ensure the cloth strip he had tied around his head still covered his upswept eyebrows and pointed ears. I wish I was still wearing my armor, he thought. In order to avoid attracting unwanted attention, he had made himself a pack, using dead branches and a square of canvas he had bartered from a tinker and placed his armor within it. Now he dared not remove and don his armor for fear the soldiers would hear. The soldier with the yellow beard climbed down from his bay charger and walked along the edge of the road, studying the ground and the juniper trees beyond. Like every member of Galbatorix's army, the soldier wore a red tunic, embroidered with gold thread in the outline of a jagged tongue of fire. The thread sparkled as he moved. His armor was simple, a helmet, a tapered shield, and a leather brigandine, indicating he was little more than a mounted footman. As for arms, he bore a spear in his right hand and a longsword on his left hip. As the soldier approached his location, spurs clinking, Aragon began to whisper a complex spell in the ancient language. The words poured off his tongue in an unbroken stream until, to his alarm, he mispronounced a particularly difficult cluster of vowels and had to start the incantation anew. The soldier took another step toward him. And another. Just as the soldier paused in front of him, Aragon completed the spell and felt his strength ebb as the magic took effect. He was an instant too late, however, to completely escape detection, for the soldier exclaimed, Aha! and brushed aside the branches, exposing Aragon. Aragon did not move. The soldier peered directly at him and frowned. What the? he muttered. He jabbed his spear into the thicket, missing Aragon's face by less than an inch. Aragon dug his nails into his palms as a tremor racked his clenched muscles. Now ah, blast it, said the soldier, and released the branches which sprang back to their original positions, hiding Aragon once more. What was it? called another of the men. 
Nothing, said the soldier, returning to his companions. He removed his helmet and wiped his brow. My eyes are playing tricks on me. What does that bastard Breathen expect of us? We've hardly gotten a wink of sleep these past two days. Aye, the king must be desperate to drive us so hard. To be honest, I'd rather not find whoever it is we're searching for. It's not that I'm faint-hearted, but anyone who gives Galbatorix pause is best avoided by the likes of us. Let Murtag and his monster of a dragon catch our mysterious fugitive, eh? Unless we be searching for Murtag, suggested a third man. You heard what Morzan Spawn said well as I did. An uncomfortable silence settled over the soldiers. Then the one who was on the ground vaulted back onto his charger, wrapped the reins around his left hand and said, Keep your yap shut, Durwood. You talk too much. With that, the group of six spurred their steeds forward and continued north on the road. As the sound of the horses faded, Aragon ended the spell, then rubbed his eyes with his fists and rested his hands on his knees. A long, low laugh escaped him, and he shook his head, amused by how outlandish his predicament was compared with his upbringing in Palancar Valley. I certainly never imagined this happening to me, he thought. The spell he had used contained two parts. The first bent rays of light around his body so he appeared invisible, and the second hopefully prevented other spellweavers from detecting his use of magic. The spell's main drawbacks were that it could not conceal footprints. Therefore one had to remain stone still while using it, and it often failed to completely eliminate a person's shadow. Picking his way out of the thicket, Aragon stretched his arms high over his head, and then faced the ravine from whence the soldiers had emerged. A single question occupied him as he resumed his journey. What had Murtag said? Ah! The gauze-like illusion of Aragon's waking dreams vanished as he tore at the air with his hands. He twisted nearly in half as he rolled away from where he had been lying. Scrabbling backward, he pushed himself to his feet and raised his arms in front of himself to deflect oncoming blows. The dark of night surrounded him. Above, the impartial stars continued to gyrate in their endless celestial dance. Below, not a creature stirred, nor could he hear anything but the gentle wind caressing the grass. Aragon stabbed outward with his mind, convinced that someone was about to attack him. He extended himself over a thousand feet in every direction, but found no one else in the vicinity. At last he lowered his hands. His chest heaved and his skin burned and he stank of sweat. In his mind a tempest roared, a whirlwind of flashing blades and severed limbs. For a moment he thought he was in Fardandur fighting the Urgles, and then on the burning plains crossing swords with men like himself. Each location was so real he would have sworn some strange magic had transported him backward through space and time. He saw standing before him the men and the Urgles whom he had slain. They appeared so real he wondered if they would speak. And while he no longer bore the scars of his wounds, his body remembered the many injuries he had suffered, and he shuddered as he again felt swords and arrows piercing his flesh. 
With a shapeless howl, Aragon fell to his knees and wrapped his arms around his stomach, hugging himself as he rocked back and forth. It's all right, it's all right. He pressed his forehead against the ground, curling into a hard, tight ball. His breath was hot against his belly. What's wrong with me? None of the epics Brom had recited in Carvajal mentioned that such visions had bedeviled the heroes of old. None of the warriors Aragon had met in the Varden seemed troubled by the blood they shed. And even though Roran admitted he disliked killing, he did not wake up screaming in the middle of the night. I'm weak, thought Aragon. A man should not feel like this. A rider should not feel like this. Garrow or Brom would have been fine, I know. They did what needed to be done, and that was that. No crying about it, no endless worrying or gnashing of teeth. I'm weak. Jumping up, he paced around his nest in the grass, trying to calm himself. After half an hour, when apprehension still clenched his chest in an iron grip, and his skin itched as if a thousand ants crawled underneath it, and he started at the slightest noise, Aragon grabbed his pack and set off at a dead run. He cared not what lay before him in the unknown darkness, nor who might notice his headlong flight. He only sought to escape his nightmares. His mind had turned against him, and he could not rely upon rational thought to dispel his panic. His one recourse then was to trust in the ancient animal wisdom of his flesh, which told him to move. If he ran fast and hard enough, perhaps he could anchor himself in the moment. Perhaps the thrashing of his arms, the thudding of his feet on dirt, the slick chill of sweat under his arms, and a myriad of other sensations would, by their sheer weight and number, force him to forget. Perhaps. A flock of starlings darted across the afternoon sky like fish through the ocean. Aragon squinted at them. In Palancar Valley, when the starlings returned after winter, they often formed groups so large they transformed day into night. This flock was not that large, yet it reminded him of evenings spent drinking mint tea with Garrow and Roran on the porch of their house, watching a rustling black cloud turn and twist overhead. Lost in memory, he stopped and sat on a rock so he could retie the laces on his boots. The weather had changed, it was cool now, and a grey smudge to the west hinted at the possibility of a storm. The vegetation was lusher, with moss and reeds and thick clumps of green grass. Several miles away, five hills dotted the otherwise smooth land. A stand of thick oak trees adorned the central hill. Above the hazy mounds of foliage, Aragon glimpsed the crumbling walls of a long-abandoned building, constructed by some race in ages past. Curiosity aroused, he decided to break his fast among the ruins. They were sure to contain plentiful game, and foraging would provide him with an excuse to do a bit of exploring before continuing on his way. Aragon arrived at the base of the first hill an hour later where he found the remnants of an ancient road paved with squares of stone. He followed it toward the ruins, wondering at its strange construction, for it was unlike any human, elf, or dwarf work he was familiar with. The shadows under the oak trees chilled Aragon as he climbed the central hill. Near the summit, 
the ground levelled off underneath his feet and the thicket opened up, and he entered a large glade. A broken tower stood there. The lower part of the tower was wide and ribbed, like the trunk of a tree. Then the structure narrowed and rose toward the sky for over thirty feet, ending in a sharp, jagged line. The upper half of the tower lay on the ground, shattered into innumerable fragments. Excitement stirred within Aragon. He suspected that he had found an elven outpost erected long before the destruction of the riders. No other race had the skill or inclination to build such a structure. Then he spotted the vegetable garden at the opposite side of the glade. A single man sat hunched among the rows of plants, weeding a patch of snap peas. Shadows covered his downturned face. His grey beard was so long it lay piled in his lap like a mound of uncombed wool. Without looking up, the man said, Well, are you going to help me finish these peas or not? There's a meal in it for you if you do. Aragon hesitated, unsure what to do. Then he thought, Why should I be afraid of an old hermit? And walked over to the garden. I'm Bergen, Bergen, son of Garrow. The man grunted, Tenga, son of Ingvar. The armour in Aragon's pack rattled as he dropped it to the ground. For the next hour, he laboured in silence along with Tenga. He knew he should not stay for so long, but he enjoyed the task. It kept him from brooding. As he weeded, he allowed his mind to expand and touch the multitude of living things within the glade. He welcomed the sense of unity he shared with them. When they had removed every last bit of grass, purslane and dandelions from around the peas, Aragon followed Tenga to a narrow door set into the front of the tower, through which was a spacious kitchen and dining room. In the middle of the room, a circular staircase coiled up to the second story. Books, scrolls and sheaves of loose-bound vellum covered every available surface, including a goodly portion of the floor. Tenga pointed at the small pile of branches in the fireplace. With a pop and a crackle, the wood burst into flame. Aragon tensed, ready to grapple physically and mentally with Tenga. The other man did not seem to notice his reaction, but continued to bustle about the kitchen, procuring mugs, dishes, knives, and various leftovers for their lunch. He muttered to himself in an undertone while he did. Every sense alert, Aragon sank onto the bare corner of a nearby chair. He didn't utter the ancient language, he thought. Even if he said the spell in his head, he still risked death or worse to start a mere cookfire. For, as Oromis had taught Aragon, words were the means by which one controlled the release of magic. To cast a spell without the structure of language binding that motive power was to risk having a stray thought or emotion distort the result. Aragon gazed around the chamber, searching for clues about his host. He spotted an open scroll that displayed columns of words from the ancient language and recognized it as a compendium of true names, similar to those he had studied in Elismira. Magicians coveted such scrolls and books and would sacrifice almost anything to obtain them, for with them, one could learn new words for a spell and also record therein words one had discovered. Few, however, 
were able to acquire a compendium, for they were exceedingly rare, and those who already owned them almost never parted with them willingly. It was unusual then for Tenga to possess one such compendium, but to Aragon's amazement he saw six others throughout the room, in addition to writings on subjects ranging from history to mathematics to astronomy to botany. A mug of ale and a plate with bread, cheese and a slice of cold meat pie appeared in front of him as Tenga shoved the dishes under his nose. Thank you, said Aragon, accepting them. Tenga ignored him and sat cross-legged next to the fireplace. He continued to grumble and mutter into his beard as he devoured his lunch. After Aragon had scraped his plate clean and drained the last drops of the fine harvest ale, and Tenga had also nearly completed his repast, Aragon could not help but ask, Did the elves build this tower? Tenga fixed him with a pointed gaze, as if the question made him doubt Aragon's intelligence. Aye, the tricky elves built Edurithindra. What is it you do here? Are you all alone, or— I search for the answer, exclaimed Tenga. A key to an unopened door, the secret of the trees and the plants. Fire, heat, lightning, light. Most do not know the question and wonder in ignorance. Others know the question but fear what the answer will mean. Bah! For thousands of years we have lived like savages, savages. I shall end that. I shall usher in the age of light, and all shall praise my deed. Pray tell, what exactly do you search for? A frown twisted Tenga's face. You don't know the question? I thought you might. But no, I was mistaken. Still, I see you understand my search. You search for a different answer, but you search nevertheless. The same brand burns in your heart as burns in mine. Who else but a fellow pilgrim can appreciate what we must sacrifice to find the answer? The answer to what? To the question we choose. He's mad, thought Aragon. Casting about for something with which he could distract Tenga, his gaze lit upon a row of small wood animal statues arranged on the sill below a teardrop-shaped window. Those are beautiful, he said, indicating the statues. Who made them? She did, before she left. She was always making things. Tenga bounded upright and placed the tip of his left index finger on the first of the statues. Here the squirrel, with his waving tail, he so bright and swift and full of laughing jibes. His finger drifted to the next statue in line. Here the savage boar, so deadly with his slashing tusks. Here the raven with... Tenga paid no attention as Aragon backed away, nor when he lifted the latch to the door and slipped out of Edurithindra. Shouldering his pack, Aragon trotted down through the crown of oak trees and away from the cluster of five hills and the demented spellcaster who resided among them. Throughout the rest of that day and the next, the number of people on the road increased, until it seemed to Aragon as if a new group was always appearing over a hill. Most were refugees, although soldiers and other men of business were also present. Aragon avoided those he could, 
and trudged along with his chin tucked against his collar the rest of the time. That practice, however, forced him to spend the night in the village of Eastcroft, twenty miles north of Melian. He had intended to abandon the road long before he arrived at Eastcroft and find a sheltered hollow or cave where he might rest until morn, but because of his relative unfamiliarity with the land, he misjudged the distance and came upon the village while in the company of three men-at-arms. Leaving then, less than an hour from the safety of Eastcroft's walls and gates and the comfort of a warm bed, would have inspired even the slowest dullard to ask why he was trying to avoid the village. So Aragon set his teeth and silently rehearsed the stories he had concocted to explain his trip. The bloated sun was two fingers above the horizon when Aragon first beheld Eastcroft, a medium-sized village enclosed by a tall palisade. It was almost dark by the time he finally arrived at the village and entered through the gate. Behind him, he heard a sentry ask the men-at-arms if anyone else had been close behind them on the road. Not that I could tell. That's good enough for me, replied the sentry. If there are laggards, they'll have to wait until tomorrow to get in. To another man on the opposite side of the gate, he shouted, Close it up! Together they pushed the fifteen-foot-tall iron-bound doors shut and barred them with four oak beams as thick as Aragon's chest. They must expect a siege, thought Aragon, and then smiled at his own blindness. Well, who doesn't expect trouble in these times? A few months ago he would have worried about being trapped in Eastcroft, but now he was confident he could scale the fortifications bare-handed, and if he concealed himself with magic, escape unnoticed in the gloom of night. He chose to stay, however, for he was tired, and casting a spell might attract the attention of nearby magicians if there were any. Before he took more than a few steps down the muddy lane that led to the town square, a watchman accosted him, thrusting a lantern toward his face. Hold there. You've not been to Eastcroft before, have you? This is my first visit, said Aragon. The stubby watchman bobbed his head. And have your family or friends here to welcome you? No, I don't. What brings you to Eastcroft, then? Nothing. I'm travelling south to fetch my sister's family and bring them back to Drasleona. Aragon's stories seem to have no effect on the watchman. Perhaps he doesn't believe me, Aragon speculated. Or perhaps he's heard so many accounts like mine they've ceased to matter to him. Then you want the wayfarer's house by the main well. Go there, and you will find food and lodging. And while you stay here in Eastcroft, let me warn you. We don't tolerate murder, thievery, or lechery in these parts. We have sturdy stocks and gallows and they have had their share of tenants. My meaning is clear. Yes, sir. Then go, and be you of good fortune. But wait, what is your name, stranger? Bergen. With that, the watchman strode away, returning to his evening rounds. Aragon waited until the combined mass of several houses concealed the lantern the watchman carried, before wandering over to the message board mounted to the left of the gates. There, nailed over a half-dozen posters of various criminals, were two sheets of parchment almost three feet long. One depicted Aragon, one depicted Roran, 
and both labeled them traitors to the crown. Aragon examined the posters with interest and marveled at the reward offered, an earldom apiece to whoever captured them. The drawing of Roran was a good likeness, and even included the beard he had grown since fleeing Carvajal. But Aragon's portrait showed him as he had been before the Blood Oath celebration, when he still appeared fully human. How things have changed, thought Aragon. Moving on, he slipped through the village until he located the wayfarer's house. The common room had a low ceiling with tar-stained timbers. Yellow tallow candles provided a soft, flickering light and thickened the air with intersecting layers of smoke. Sand and rushes covered the floor, and the mixture crunched underneath Aragon's boots. To his left were tables and chairs, and a large fireplace, where an urchin turned a pig on a spit. Opposite this was a long bar, a fortress with raised drawbridges that protected casks of lager, ale and stout from the horde of thirsty men who assailed it from all sides. A good sixty people filled the room, crowding it to an uncomfortable level. The roar of conversation would have been startling enough to Aragon after his time on the road, but with his sensitive hearing he felt as if he stood in the middle of a pounding waterfall. It was hard for him to concentrate upon any one voice. As soon as he caught hold of a word or a phrase, it was swept away by another utterance. Off in one corner, a trio of minstrels was singing and playing a comic version of Sweet Aethred O'Douth, which did nothing to improve the clamour. Wincing at the barrage of noise, Aragon wormed his way through the crowd until he reached the bar. He wanted to talk with the serving woman, but she was so busy, five minutes passed before she looked at him and asked, Your pleasure? Strands of hair hung over her sweaty face. Have you a room to let, or a corner where I could spend the night? I wouldn't know. The mistress of the house is the one you should speak to about that. She'll be down directly, said the serving woman, and flicked a hand at a rank of gloomy stairs. While he waited, Aragon rested against the bar and studied the people in the room. They were a motley assortment. About half, he guessed, were villagers from Eastcroft, come to enjoy a night of drinking. Of the rest, the majority were men and women, families oftentimes, who were migrating to safer parts. It was easy for him to identify them, by their frayed shirts and dirty pants, and by how they huddled in their chairs and peered at anyone who came near. However, they studiously avoided looking at the last and smallest group of patrons in the wayfarer's house, Galbatorix's soldiers. The men in red tunics were louder than anyone else. They laughed and shouted and banged on tabletops with their armoured fists while they quaffed beer and groped any maid foolish enough to walk by them. Do they behave like that because they know no one dares oppose them? and they enjoyed demonstrating their power? wondered Aragon. Or because they were forced to join Galbatorix's army and seek to dull their sense of shame and fear with their revels? Now the minstrels were singing, So with her hair a-flying, sweet Aethred O'Douth ran to Lord Adele and cried, Free my lover, else a witch shall turn you into a woolly goat. Lord Adele, he laughed and said, 
No witch shall turn me into a woolly goat. The crowd shifted and granted Aragon a view of a table pushed against one wall. At it sat a lone woman, her face hidden by the drawn hood of her dark traveling cloak. Four men surrounded her, big, beefy farmers with leathery necks and cheeks flushed with the fever of alcohol. Two of them were leaning against the wall on either side of the woman, looming over her, while one sat grinning in a chair turned around backward, and the fourth stood with his left foot on the edge of the table and was bent forward over his knee. The men spoke and gestured, their movements careless. Although Aragon could not hear or see what the woman said, it was obvious to him that her response angered the farmers, for they scowled and swelled their chests, puffing themselves up like roosters. One of them shook a finger at her. To Aragon they appeared decent, hard-working men, who had lost their manners in the depths of their tankards, a mistake he had witnessed often enough on feast days in Carvajal. Garrow had had little respect for men who knew they could not hold their beer, and yet insisted on embarrassing themselves in public. It's unseemly, he had said. What's more, if you drink to forget your lot in life and not for pleasure, you ought to do it where you won't disturb anyone. The man to the left of the woman suddenly reached down and hooked a finger underneath the edge of her hood, as if to toss it back. So quickly that Aragon barely saw, the woman lifted her right hand and grasped the man's wrist, but then released it and returned to her previous position. Aragon doubted that anyone else in the common room, including the man she touched, had noticed her actions. The hood collapsed around her neck, and Aragon stiffened, astounded. The woman was human, but she resembled Arya. The only differences between them were her eyes, which were round and level, not slanted like a cat's, and her ears, which lacked the pointed tips of an elf's. She was just as beautiful as the Arya Aragon knew, but in a less exotic, more familiar way. Without hesitation, Aragon probed toward the woman with his mind. He had to know who she really was. As soon as he touched her consciousness, a mental blow struck back at Aragon, destroying his concentration, and then, in the confines of his skull, he heard a deafening voice exclaim, Aragon! Arya? Their eyes met for a moment before the crowd thickened again and hid her. Aragon hurried across the room to her table, prying apart the bodies packed close together to clear himself a path. The farmers looked askance at him when he emerged from the press, and one said, You're awful rude, barging in on us uninvited like. Best make yourself scarce, eh? In as diplomatic a voice as he could muster, Aragon said, It seems to me, gentlemen, that the lady would rather be left alone. Now you wouldn't ignore the wishes of an honest woman, would you? An honest woman, laughed the nearest man. No honest woman travels alone. Then let me set your concern to rest, for I am her brother, and we are going to live with our uncle in Drasleona. The four men exchanged uneasy glances. Three of them began to edge away from Arya, 
but the largest planted himself a few inches in front of Aragon, and breathing upon his face said, I'm not sure I believe you, friend. You're just trying to drive us away so you can be with her yourself. He's not far off, thought Aragon. Speaking quietly enough that only the man could hear, Aragon said, I assure you she is my sister. Please, sir, I have no quarrel with you. Won't you go? Not when I think you're a lying milksop. Sir, be reasonable. There's no need for this unpleasantness. The night is young, and there's drink and music aplenty. Let's not quarrel about such a petty misunderstanding. It's beneath us. To Aragon's relief, the other man relaxed after a few seconds and uttered a scornful grunt. I wouldn't want to fight a youngling like you anyway, he said. Turning around, he lumbered toward the bar with his friends. Keeping his gaze fixed upon the crowd, Aragon slipped behind the table and sat next to Arya. What are you doing here? he asked, barely moving his lips. Searching for you. Surprised, he glanced at her, and she raised a curved eyebrow. He looked back at the throng of people and, pretending to smile, asked, Are you alone? No longer. Did you rent a bed for the night? He shook his head. Good. I already have a room. We can talk there. They rose in unison, and he followed her to the stairs at the back of the common room. The worn treads creaked under their feet as they climbed to a hallway on the second story. A single candle illuminated the dingy wood-panelled corridor. Arya led the way to the last door on the right, and from within the voluminous sleeve of her cloak she produced an iron key. Unlocking the door, she entered the room, waited for Aragon to cross the threshold after her, and then closed and secured the door again. A faint orange glow penetrated the lead-lined window across from Aragon. The glow came from a lantern hanging on the other side of Eastcroft's town square. By it he was able to make out the shape of an oil lamp on a low table to his right. Brissinger, whispered Aragon, and lit the wick with a spark from his finger. Even with the lamp burning, the room was still dark. The chamber contained the same panelling as the hallway, and the chestnut-coloured wood absorbed most of the light that struck it and made the room seem small and heavy, as if a great weight pressed inward. Aside from the table, the only other piece of furniture was a narrow bed, with a single blanket thrown over the ticking. A small bag of supplies rested on the mattress. Aragon and Arya stood facing each other. Then Aragon reached up and removed the cloth strip tied around his head, and Arya unfastened the brooch that held her cloak around her shoulders and placed the garment on the bed. She wore a forest green dress, the first dress Aragon had seen her in. It was a strange experience for Aragon to have their appearances reversed, so that he was the one who looked like an elf and Arya a human. The change did nothing to diminish his regard for her, but it did make him more comfortable in her presence, for she was less alien to him now. It was Arya who broke the silence.
Safira said you stayed behind to kill the last Razak, and to explore the rest of Helgrind. Is that the truth? It's part of the truth. And what is the whole truth? Aragorn knew that nothing less would satisfy her. Promise me that you won't share what I'm about to tell you with anyone unless I give you permission. I promise, she said in the ancient language. Then he told her about finding Sloane, why he decided not to bring him back to the Varden, the curse he had laid upon the butcher, and the chance he had given Sloane to redeem himself, at least partially, and to regain his sight. Aragon finished by saying, Whatever happens, Roran and Katrina can never learn that Sloane is still alive. If they do, there'll be no end of trouble. Arya sat on the edge of the bed and for a long while stared at the lamp and its jumping flame. Then, you should have killed him. Maybe, but I couldn't. Just because you find your task distasteful is no reason to shirk it. You were a coward. Aragon bridled at her accusation. Was I? Anyone with a knife could have killed Sloane. What I did was far harder. Physically, but not morally. I didn't kill him because I thought it was wrong. Aragon frowned with concentration as he searched for the words to explain himself. I wasn't afraid. Not that. Not after going into battle. It was something else. I will kill in war but I won't take it upon myself to decide who lives and who dies. I don't have the experience or the wisdom. Every man has a line he won't cross, Arya, and I found mine when I looked upon Sloane. Even if I had Galbatorix as my captive, I would not kill him. I would take him to Nasawada and King Orin, and if they condemned him to death, then I would happily lop off his head, but not before. Call it weakness, if you will but that is how I am made, and I won't apologize for it. You will be a tool, then, wielded by others? I will serve the people as best I can. I've never aspired to lead. Alagazia does not need another tyrant king. Arya rubbed her temples. Why does everything have to be so complicated with you, Aragon? No matter where you go, you seem to get yourself mired in difficult situations. It's as if you make an effort to walk through every bramble in the land. Your mother said much the same. I'm not surprised. Very well, let it be. Neither of us is about to change our opinions, and we have more pressing concerns than arguing about justice and morality. In the future, though, you would do well to remember who you are. And what do you mean to the races of Alagazia? I never forgot. Aragon paused, waiting for her response. But Arya let his statement pass unchallenged. Sitting on the edge of the table, he said, You didn't have to come looking for me, you know. I was fine. Of course I did. How did you find me? I guessed which route you would take from Helgrind. Luckily for me, my guess placed me forty miles west of here, and that was close enough for me to locate you by listening to the whispers of the land. I don't understand. A rider does not walk unnoticed in this world, Aragon. 
those who have the ears to hear and the eyes to see can interpret the signs easily enough. The birds sing of your coming, the beasts of the earth heed your scent, and the very trees and grass remember your touch. The bond between rider and dragon is so powerful that those who are sensitive to the forces of nature can feel it. You'll have to teach that trick to me sometime. It is no trick, merely the art of paying attention to what is already around you. Why did you come to Eastcroft, though? It would have been safer to meet me outside the village. Circumstances forced me here, as I assume they did you. You did not come here willingly, no? No. He rolled his shoulders, weary from the day's travelling. Pushing back sleep, he waved a hand at her dress and said, Have you finally abandoned your shirt and trousers? A small smile appeared on Arya's face. Only for the duration of this trip. I've lived among the Varden for more years than I care to recall, yet I still forget how humans insist upon separating their women from their men. I never could bring myself to adopt your customs, even if I did not conduct myself entirely as an elf. Who was to say yea or nay to me? My mother? She was on the other side of Alagazia. Arya seemed to catch herself then, as if she had said more than she intended. She continued, In any event, I had an unfortunate encounter with a pair of ox-herders soon after I left the Varden, and I stole this dress directly afterward. It fits well. One of the advantages of being a spellcaster is that you never have to wait for a tailor. Aragon laughed for a moment. Then he asked, What now? Now we rest. Tomorrow, before the sun rises, we shall slip out of Eastcroft, and no one shall be the wiser. That night, Aragon lay in front of the door, while Arya took the bed. Their arrangement was not the result of deference or courtesy on Aragon's part, although he would have insisted on giving Arya the bed in any event, but rather caution. If anyone were to barge into the room, it would seem odd to find a woman on the floor. As the empty hours crept by, Aragon stared at the beams above his head and traced the cracks in the wood, unable to calm his racing thoughts. He tried every method he knew to relax, but his mind kept returning to Arya, to his surprise at meeting her, to her comments about his treatment of Sloane, and above all else, to the feelings he had for her. What those were, exactly, he was unsure. He longed to be with her, but she had rejected his advances, and that tarnished his affection with hurt and anger, and also frustration. For while Aragon refused to accept that his suit was hopeless, he could not think of how to proceed. An ache formed in his chest as he listened to the gentle rise and fall of Arya's breathing. It tormented him to be so close and yet be unable to approach her. He twisted the edge of his tunic between his fingers and wished there was something he could do, instead of resigning himself to an unwelcome fate. He wrestled with his unruly emotions deep into the night, until finally he succumbed to exhaustion and drifted into the waiting embrace of his waking dreams. There he wandered for a few fitful hours, until the stars began to fade, and it was time for him and Arya to leave Eastcroft. Together they opened the window, 
and jumped from the sill to the ground twelve feet below. A small drop for one with an elf's abilities. As she fell, Arya grasped the skirt of her dress to keep it from billowing around her. They landed inches apart, and then set off, running between the houses toward the palisade. People will wonder where we went, said Aragon between strides. Maybe we should have waited and left like normal travellers. It's riskier to stay. I paid for my room. That's all the innkeeper really cares about, not whether we snuck out early. The two of them parted for a few seconds as they circumvented a decrepit wagon, and then Arya added, The most important thing is to keep moving. If we linger, the king will surely find us. When they arrived at the outer wall, Arya ranged along it until she found a post that protruded somewhat. She wrapped her hands around it and pulled, testing the wood with her weight. The post swayed and rattled against its neighbors, but otherwise held. You first said Arya. Please, after you. With a sigh of impatience, she tapped her bodice. A dress is somewhat breezier than a pair of leggings, Aragon. Heat flooded his cheeks as he caught her meaning. Reaching above his head, he got a good grip and then began to climb the palisade, bracing himself with his knees and feet during the ascent. At the top, he stopped and balanced on the tips of the sharpened posts. Go on, whispered Arya. Not until you join me. Don't be so... Watchman, said Aragon, and pointed. A lantern floated in the darkness between a pair of nearby houses. As the light approached, the gilded outline of a man emerged from the gloom. He carried a naked sword in one hand. Silent as a spectre, Arya grasped the post and, using only the strength of her arms, pulled herself hand over hand toward Aragon. She seemed to glide upward as if by magic. When she was close enough, Aragon seized her right forearm and lifted her above the remainder of the posts, setting her down next to him. Like two strange birds, they perched on the palisade, motionless and breathless, as the watchman walked underneath them. He swung the lantern in either direction, searching for intruders. Don't look at the ground, pleaded Aragon, and don't look up. A moment later the watchman sheathed his sword and continued on his rounds, humming to himself. Without a word, Aragon and Arya dropped to the other side of the palisade. The armor in Aragon's pack rattled as he struck the grass-covered bank below and rolled to dissipate the force of the impact. Springing to his feet, he bent low and dashed away from Eastcroft over the grey landscape, Arya close behind. They kept to hollows and dry stream beds as they skirted the farms that surrounded the village. A half dozen times indignant dogs ran out to protest the invasion of their territories. Aragon tried to calm them with his mind, but the only way he found to stop the dogs from barking was to assure them that their terrible teeth and claws had scared him and Arya away. Pleased with their success, the dogs pranced with wagging tails back to the barns, sheds and porches where they had been standing guard over their fiefdoms. Their smug confidence amused Aragon. Five miles from Eastcroft, when it became apparent they were utterly alone and no one was trailing them, Aragon and Arya drew to a halt by a charred stump. Kneeling, Arya scooped several handfuls of dirt from the ground in front of her. Adurna riser, she said. With a faint trickle, 
water welled out of the surrounding soil and poured into the hole she had dug. Arya waited until the water filled the cavity, and then said, Letter, and the flow ceased. She intoned a spell of scrying, and Nasawada's face appeared upon the surface of the still water. Arya greeted her. My lady, Aragon said, and bowed. Aragon, she replied. She appeared tired, hollow-cheeked, as if she had suffered a long illness. A lock snapped free of her bun and coiled itself into a tight knot at her hairline. Aragon glimpsed a row of bulky bandages on her arm as she slid a hand over her head, pressing the rebellious hair flat. You are safe, thank Gokukara. We were so worried. I'm sorry I upset you, but I had my reasons. You must explain them to me when you arrive. As you wish, he said. How were you hurt? Did someone attack you? Why haven't any of Duvrangargata healed you? I ordered them to leave me alone, and that I will explain when you arrive. Thoroughly puzzled, Aragon nodded and swallowed his questions. To Arya, Nasawada said, I'm impressed. You found him. I wasn't sure you could. Fortune smiled upon me. Perhaps. But I tend to believe your skill was as important as Fortune's generosity. How long until you rejoin us? Two, three days, unless we encounter unforeseen difficulties. Good. I will expect you then. From now on, I want you to contact me at least once before noon and once before nightfall. If I fail to hear from you, I'll assume you've been captured, and I'll send Safira with a rescue force. We may not always have the privacy we need to work magic. Find a way to get it. I need to know where you two are and whether you're safe. Arya considered for a moment and then said, If I can, I will do as you ask but not if it puts Aragon in danger. Agreed. Taking advantage of the ensuing pause in the conversation, Aragon said, Nasawada, is Safira near at hand? I would like to talk to her. We haven't spoken since Helgrind. She left an hour ago to scout our perimeter. Can you maintain this spell while I find out if she has returned? Go, said Arya. A single step carried Nasawada out of their field of view, leaving behind a static image of the table and chairs inside her red pavilion. For a good while, Aragon appraised the contents of the tent, but then restlessness overtook him and he allowed his eyes to drift from the pool of water to the back of Arya's neck. Her thick black hair fell to one side, exposing a strip of smooth skin just above the collar of her dress. That transfixed him for the better part of a minute, and then he stirred and leaned against the charred stump. There came the sound of breaking wood, and then a field of sparkling blue scales covered the pool as Sephira forced herself into the pavilion. It was hard for Aragon to tell what part of her he saw. It was such a small part. The scales slid past the pool, and he glimpsed the underside of a thigh, a spike on her tail, the baggy membrane of a folded wing, and then the gleaming tip of a tooth as she turned and twisted, trying to find a position from which she could comfortably view the mirror Dasawada used for arcane communications. 
From the alarming noises that originated behind Safira, Aragon guessed she was crushing most of the furniture. At last, she settled in place, brought her head close to the mirror, so that one large sapphire eye occupied the entire pool, and peered out at Aragon. They looked at each other for a full minute, neither of them moving. It surprised Aragon how relieved he was to see her. He had not truly felt safe since he and she had separated. I missed you, he whispered. She blinked once. Nasawada, are you still there? The muffled answer floated toward him from somewhere to the right of Safira. Yes, barely. Would you be so kind as to relay Safira's comments to me? I'm more than happy to, but at the moment I'm caught between a wing and a pole, and there's no path free, so far as I can tell. You may have difficulty hearing me. If you're willing to bear with me, though, I'll give it a try. Please do. Nasawada was quiet for several heartbeats, and then in a tone so like Sephira's that Aragon almost laughed, she said, You are well? I'm healthy as an ox, and you? To compare myself with a bovine would be both ridiculous and insulting, but I'm as fit as ever, if that is what you are asking. I'm pleased Arya is with you. It's good for you to have someone sensible around to watch your back. I agree. Help is always welcome when you're in danger. While Aragon was grateful that he and Sephira were able to talk, albeit in a roundabout fashion, he found the spoken word a poor substitute for the free exchange of thoughts and emotions they enjoyed when in close proximity. Furthermore, with Arya and Nasuada privy to their conversation, Aragon was reluctant to address topics of a more personal nature, such as whether Sephira had forgiven him for forcing her to leave him in Hellgrind. Sephira must have shared in his reluctance, for she too refrained from broaching the subject. They chatted about other inconsequential happenings, and then bade each other farewell. Before he stepped away from the pool, Aragon touched his fingers to his lips and silently mouthed, I'm sorry. A sliver of space appeared around each of the small scales that rimmed Sephira's eye as the underlying flesh softened. She blinked, long and slow, and he knew she understood his message and that she bore him no ill will. After Aragon and Arya took their leave of Nasawada, Arya terminated her spell and stood. With the back of her hand she knocked the dirt from her dress. While she did, Aragon fidgeted, impatient as he had not been before. Right then he wanted nothing else but to run straight to Sephira and curl up with her in front of a campfire. Let us be off, he said, already moving. A Delicate Matter the muscles of Roran's back popped and rippled as he heaved the boulder off the ground. He rested the large rock on his thighs for an instant, and then, grunting, pressed it overhead and locked his arms straight. For a full minute he held the crushing weight in the air. When his shoulders were trembling and about to fail, he threw the boulder onto the ground in front of him. It landed with a dull thud, leaving an indentation several inches deep in the dirt. 
On either side of Roran, twenty of the Varden's warriors struggled to lift boulders of similar size. Only two succeeded. The rest returned to the lighter rocks they were accustomed to. It pleased Roran that the months he had spent in Horst's forge and the years of farm work before had given him the strength to hold his own with men who had drilled with their weapons every day since they turned twelve. Roran shook the fire from his arms and took several deep breaths, the air cool against his bare chest. Reaching up, he massaged his right shoulder, cupping the round ball of muscle and exploring it with his fingers, confirming once again that no trace remained of the injury he had suffered when the Razak had bitten him. He grinned, glad to be whole and sound again, being as it had seemed no likelier to him than a cow dancing a jig. A yelp of pain caused him to look over at Albrake and Baldor, who were sparring with Lang, a swarthy, battle-scarred veteran who taught the arts of war. Even two against one, Lang held his own, and with his wooden practice sword, he had disarmed Baldor, knocked him across the ribs, and jabbed Albrecht so hard in the leg he fell sprawling, all in the span of a few seconds. Roran empathized with them. He had just finished his own session with Lang, and it had left him with several new bruises to go with his faded ones from Helgrind. For the most part, he preferred his hammer over a sword, but he thought he should still be able to handle a blade if the occasion called for it. Swords required more finesse than he felt most fights deserved. Bash a swordsman on the wrist, and armoured or not, he would be too preoccupied with his broken bones to defend himself. After the Battle of the Burning Plains, Nasawada had invited the villagers from Carvajal to join the Varden. They had all accepted her offer. Those who would have refused had already elected to stay in Surda when the villagers stopped in Douth on their way to the Burning Plains. Every able-bodied man from Carvajal had taken up proper arms, discarding their makeshift spears and shields, and had worked to become warriors equal to any in Alagazia. The people of Palancar Valley were accustomed to a hard life. Swinging a sword was no worse than chopping wood, and it was a far sight easier than breaking sod or hoeing acres of beets in the heat of summer. Those who knew a useful trade continued to ply their craft in service to the Varden, but in their spare time they still strove to master the weapons given to them, for every man was expected to fight when the call to battle sounded. Roran had devoted himself to the training with unwavering dedication since returning from Helgrind. Helping the Varden defeat the Empire and ultimately Galbatorix was the one thing he could do to protect the villagers and Katrina. He was not arrogant enough to believe that he alone could tip the balance of the war, but he was confident in his ability to shape the world and knew that if he applied himself, he could increase the Varden's chances of victory. He had to stay alive, though, and that meant conditioning his body and mastering the tools and techniques of slaughter so as to avoid falling to a more experienced warrior. As he crossed the practice field, on his way back to the tent he shared with Baldur, Roran passed a strip of grass sixty feet long, whereon lay a twenty-foot log stripped of its bark and polished smooth by the thousands of hands that rubbed against it every day. Without breaking his stride, Roran turned, slipped his fingers under the thick end of the log, lifted it, and, grunting from the strain, walked it upright, 
He gave the log a push then, and it toppled over. Grabbing the thin end, he repeated the process twice more. Unable to muster the energy to flip the log again, Roran left the field and trotted through the surrounding maze of grey canvas tents, waving to Loring and Fisk and others he recognised, as well as a half-dozen or so strangers who greeted him. Hail, Stronghammer! they cried in warm tones. Hail, he replied. It is a strange thing, he thought, to be known to people whom you have not met before. A minute later he arrived at the tent that had become his home, and ducking inside, stored away the bow, the quiver of arrows, and the short sword the Varden had given him. He snared his waterskin from beside his bedding, then hurried back into the bright sunlight, and unstoppering the skin, poured the contents over his back and shoulders. Baths tended to be sporadic and infrequent events for Roran, but today was an important day, and he wanted to be fresh and clean for what was to come. With the sharp edge of a polished stick, he scraped the grime off his arms and legs and out from under his fingernails, and then combed his hair and trimmed his beard. Satisfied that he was presentable, he pulled on his freshly washed tunic, stuck his hammer through his belt, and was about to head off through the camp when he became aware of Burgett watching him from behind the corner of the tent. She clenched a sheathed dagger with both hands. Roran froze, ready to draw his hammer at the slightest provocation. He knew that he was in mortal danger, and despite his prowess, he was not confident of defeating Burgett if she attacked, for like him, she pursued her enemies with single-minded determination. You once asked me to help you, said Burgett, and I agreed because I wanted to find the Razak and kill them for eating my husband. Have I not upheld my bargain? You have. And do you remember I promised that once the Razak were dead, I would have my compensation from you for your role in Quimby's death? I do. Burgett twisted the dagger with increasing urgency, the back of her fists ridged with tendons. The dagger rose out of its sheath a full inch, bearing the bright steel, and then slowly sank into darkness again. Good, she said. I would not want your memory to fail you. I will have my compensation, Garrison. Never you doubt that. With a swift, firm step she departed, the dagger hidden among the folds of her dress. Releasing his breath, Roran sat on a nearby stool and rubbed his throat, convinced that he had narrowly escaped being gutted by Burgett. Her visit had alarmed him, but it did not surprise him. He had been aware of her intentions for months, since before they left Carverhall, and he knew that one day he would have to settle his debt with her. A raven soared overhead, and as he tracked it, his mood lightened and he smiled. Well, he said to himself, a man rarely knows the day and hour when he will die. I could be killed at any moment, and there's not a blasted thing I can do about it. What will happen will happen, and I won't waste the time I have above ground worrying. Misfortune always comes to those who wait. The trick is to find happiness in the brief gaps between disasters. Burgett will do what her conscience tells her to.
and I will deal with it when I must. By his left foot he noticed a yellowish stone, which he picked up and rolled between his fingers. Concentrating on it as hard as he could, he said, Stenner, riser! The stone ignored his command and remained immobile between his thumb and forefinger. With a snort, he tossed it away. Standing, he strode north between the rows of tents. While he walked, he tried to untangle a knot in the lacing at his collar, but it resisted his efforts, and he gave up on it when he arrived at Horst's tent, which was twice as large as most. Hello in there, he said, and knocked on the pole between the two entrance flaps. Katrina burst out of the tent, copper hair flying, and wrapped her arms around him. Laughing, he lifted her by the waist and spun her in a circle, all the world a blur except her face, then gently set her down. She pecked him on the lips once, twice, three times. Growing still, he gazed into her eyes, more happy than he could ever remember being. You smell nice, she said. How are you? The only flaw in his joy was seeing how thin and pale imprisonment had left her. It made him want to resurrect the Razak so they could endure the same suffering they had inflicted upon her and his father. Every day you ask me, and every day I tell you, better. Be patient. I will recover, but it will take time. The best remedy for what ails me is being with you here under the sun. It does me more good than I can tell you. That was not all I was asking. Crimson spots appeared on Katrina's cheeks, and she tilted her head back, her lips curving in a mischievous smile. My, you are bold, dear sir, most bold indeed. I'm not sure I should be alone with you, for fear you might take liberties with me. The spirit of her reply set his concern to rest. Liberties, eh? Well, since you already consider me a scoundrel, I might as well enjoy some of these liberties. And he kissed her until she broke the contact, although she remained in his embrace. Oh, she said, out of breath, you're a hard man to argue with, Roar and Stronghammer. That I am. Nodding toward the tent behind her, he lowered his voice and asked, Does Elaine know? She would if she weren't so preoccupied with her pregnancy. I think the stress of the trip from Carvajal may cause her to lose the child. She's sick a good part of the day, and she has pains that, well, of an unfortunate nature. Gertrude has been tending her, but she can't do much to ease her discomfort. All the same, the sooner Aragon returns, the better. I'm not sure how long I can keep this secret. You'll do fine, I'm sure. He released her then, and tugged on the hem of his tunic to smooth out the wrinkles. How do I look? Katrina studied him with a critical eye, and then wet the tips of her fingers and ran them through his hair, pushing it back off his forehead. Spotting the knot at his collar, she began to pick at it, saying, You ought to pay closer attention to your clothes. Clothes haven't been trying to kill me. Well, things are different now. You're the cousin of a dragon rider, and you should look the part. People expect it of you. He allowed her to continue fussing with him until she was pleased with his appearance. 
Kissing her goodbye, he walked the half-mile to the centre of the Varden's massive camp, where Nasawada's Red Command Pavilion stood. The pennant mounted on the top bore a black shield and two parallel swords slanting underneath, and it whipped and snapped in a warm wind from the east. The six guards outside the pavilion, two humans, two dwarves and two ergles, lowered their weapons as Roran approached, and one of the ergles, a thick-set brute with yellowed teeth, challenged him, saying, Who goes there? His accent was nearly unintelligible. Roran Stronghammer, son of Garrow, Nasawada sent for me. Pounding his breastplate with one fist which produced a loud crash, the Urgul announced, Roran Stronghammer requests an audience with you, Lady Night Stalker. You may admit him, came the answer from inside. The warriors lifted their blades, and Roran carefully made his way past. They watched him, and he them, with the detached air of men who might have to fight each other at a moment's notice. Inside the pavilion, Roran was alarmed to see that most of the furniture was broken and overturned. The only pieces that seemed unharmed were a mirror mounted on a pole and the grand chair in which Nasuada was sitting. Ignoring their surroundings, he knelt and bowed to her. Nasawada's features and bearing were so different from those of the women Roran had grown up with, he was not sure how to act. She appeared strange and imperious, with her embroidered dress and the gold chains in her hair and her dusky skin, which at the moment had a reddish cast due to the colour of the fabric walls. In stark contrast to the rest of her apparel, linen bandages encased her forearms, a testament to her astounding courage during the trial of the long knives. Her feet had been a topic of constant discussion among the Varden ever since Roran had returned with Katrina. It was the one aspect of her he felt as if he understood, for he too would make any sacrifice in order to protect those he cared about. It just so happened that she cared about a group of thousands while he was committed to his family and his village. Please rise, said Nasawada. He did as he was instructed and rested a hand on the head of his hammer, then waited while she inspected him. My position rarely allows me the luxury of clear, direct speech, Roran, but I will be blunt with you today. You seem to be a man who appreciates candor, and we have much to discuss in a small amount of time. Thank you, my lady. I have never enjoyed playing word games. Excellent. To be blunt, then, you have presented me with two difficulties neither of which I can easily resolve. He frowned. What sort of difficulties? One of character and one of politics. Your deeds in Palankar Valley and during your flight thence with your fellow villagers are nigh-on incredible. They tell me that you have a daring mind and that you are skilled at combat, strategy, and inspiring people to follow you with unquestioning loyalty. They may have followed me, but they certainly never stopped questioning me. A smile touched her lips. Perhaps, but you still got them here, didn't you? You possess valuable talents, Roran, and the Varden could use you. I assume you wish to be of service? I do. As you know, Galbatorix has divided his army and sent troops south to reinforce the city of Aros, 
west toward Feinster and north toward Bellatona. He hopes to drag out this fight, to bleed us dry through slow attrition. Jormunda and I cannot be in a dozen locations at once. We need captains whom we can trust to deal with the myriad conflicts springing up around us. In this you could prove your worth to us. But... Her voice faded. But you do not yet know if you can rely upon me. Indeed. Protecting one's friends and family stiffens a person's spine. But I wonder how you will fare without them. Will your nerve hold? And while you can lead, can you also obey orders? I cast no aspersions on your character, Roran. But the fate of Alagasia is at stake, and I cannot risk putting someone incompetent in charge of my men. This war does not forgive such errors. Nor would it be fair to the men already with the Varden to place you over them without just cause. You must earn your responsibilities with us. I understand. What would you have me do, then? Ah, but it is not that easy. For you and Aragon are practically brothers and that complicates things immeasurably. As I'm sure you are aware, Aragon is the keystone of our hopes. It is important, then, to shelter him from distractions so he may concentrate upon the task before him. If I send you into battle and you die as a result, grief and anger might very well unbalance him. I've seen it happen before. Moreover, I must take great care with whom I allow you to serve for there are those who will seek to influence you because of your relation to Aragon. So, now you have a fair idea of the scope of my concerns. What have you to say about them? If the land itself is at stake and this war is as hotly contested as you imply, then I say you cannot afford to let me sit idle. Employing me as a common swordsman would be just as much a waste. But I think you know that already. As for politics, he shrugged, I don't care one whit whom you put me with. No one shall get to Aragon through me. My only concern is breaking the empire so that my kith and kin can return to our home and live in peace. You are determined. Very. Could you not allow me to remain in charge of the men from Carvajal? We are as close as family and we work well together. Test me that way. The Varden would not suffer, then, if I failed. She shook her head. No, perhaps in the future, but not yet. They require proper instruction, and I cannot judge your performance when you are surrounded by a group of people who are so loyal that at your urging they abandoned their homes and traversed the width of Alagasia. She considers me a threat, he realized. My ability to influence the villagers makes her wary of me. In an attempt to disarm her, he said, They had their own sense to guide them. They knew it was folly to stay in the valley. You cannot explain away their behaviour, Rora. What do you want of me, lady? Will you let me serve or not? And if so, how? Here is my offer. This morning... My magicians detected a patrol of twenty-three of Galbatorix's soldiers, due east. I am sending out a contingent under the command of Martland Redbeard, the Earl of Thune, to destroy them, and to do some scouting besides. If you are agreeable, you will serve under Martland.
you will listen to and obey him and hopefully learn from him. He, in turn, will watch you and report to me whether he believes you are suitable for advancement. Martland is very experienced, and I have every confidence in his opinion. Does this strike you as fair, Roran Stronghammer? It does. Only, when would I leave? And how long would I be gone? You would leave today and return within a fortnight. Then I must ask, could you wait and send me on a different expedition in a few days? I would like to be here when Aragon returns. Your concern for your cousin is admirable, but events move apace and we cannot delay. As soon as I know Aragon's fate, I will have one of Duvrangergata contact you with the tidings, whether they be good or ill. Roran rubbed his thumb along the sharp edges of his hammer, as he tried to compose a reply that would convince Nasawada to change her mind, and yet would not betray the secret he held. At last he abandoned the task as impossible, and resigned himself to revealing the truth. You're right, I am worried about Aragon, but of all people he can fend for himself. Seeing him safe and sound isn't why I want to stay. Why, then? Because Katrina and I wish to be married, and we would like Aragon to perform the ceremony. There was a cascade of sharp clicks as Nasawada tapped her fingernails against the arms of her chair. If you believe, I will allow you to loll about when you could be helping the Varden, just so you and Katrina can enjoy your wedding night a few days earlier, then you are sorely mistaken. It is a matter of some urgency, Lady Nightstalker. Nasawada's fingers paused in mid-air, and her eyes narrowed. How urgent! The sooner we are wed, the better it will be for Katrina's honour. If you understand me at all, Know that I would never ask favours for myself. Light shifted on Nasawada's skin as she tilted her head. I see. Why Aragon? Why do you want him to perform the ceremony? Why not someone else? An elder from your village, perhaps? Because he is my cousin, and I care for him, and because he is a rider. Katrina lost nearly everything on my account, her home, her father, and her dowry. I cannot replace those things, but I at least want to give her a wedding worth remembering. Without gold or livestock, I cannot pay for a lavish ceremony, so I must find some other means besides wealth to make our wedding memorable, and it seems to me nothing could be more grand than having a dragon rider marry us. Nasawada held her peace for so long, Roran began to wonder if she expected him to leave. Then, it would indeed be an honour to have a dragon rider marry you, but it would be a sorry day if Katrina had to accept your hand without a proper dowry. The dwarves furnished me with many presents of gold and jewellery when I lived in Tronchin. Some I have already sold to fund the Varden, but what I have left would still keep a woman clothed in mink and satin for many years to come. They shall be Katrina's, if you are amenable. Startled, Roran bowed again. Thank you. Your generosity is overwhelming. I don't know how I can ever repay you. Repay me by fighting for the Varden, 
as you fought for Carvajal. I will, I swear it. Galbatorix will curse the day he ever sent the Razak after me. I'm sure he already does. Now go. You may remain in camp until Aragon returns and marries you to Katrina. But then I expect you to be in the saddle the following morning. Bloodwolf What a proud man, thought Nasuada as she watched Roran leave the pavilion. It's interesting. He and Aragon are alike in so many ways, and yet their personalities are fundamentally different. Aragon may be one of the most deadly warriors in Alagazia, but he isn't a hard or cruel person. Roran, however, is made of sterner stuff. I hope that he never crosses me. I would have to destroy him in order to stop him. She checked her bandages, and satisfied that they were still fresh, rang for Ferica and ordered her to bring a meal. After her handmaid delivered the food and then retired from the tent, Nasuada signalled Elva, who emerged from her hiding place behind the false panel at the rear of the pavilion. Together, the two of them shared a mid-morning repast. Nasuada spent the next few hours reviewing the Varden's latest inventory reports, calculating the number of wagon trains she would need to move the Varden farther north, and adding and subtracting rows of figures that represented the finances of her army. She sent messages to the dwarves and ergles, ordered the bladesmiths to increase their production of spearheads, threatened the Council of Elders with dissolution, as she did most every week, and otherwise attended to the Varden's business. Then, with Elva at her side, Nasawada rode out on her stallion Battlestorm and met with Triana, who had captured and was busy interrogating a member of Galbatorix's spy network, the Black Hand. As she and Elva left Triana's tent, Nasawada became aware of a commotion to the north. She heard shouts and cheers. Then a man appeared from among the tents, sprinting toward her. Without a word, her guards formed a tight circle around her, save for one of the Urgles who planted himself in the path of the runner and hefted his club. The man slowed to a stop before the Urgle, and gasping, shouted, Lady Nasawada! The elves are here! The elves have arrived! For a wild, improbable moment, Nasawada thought he meant Queen Islanzadi and her army. But then she remembered Islanzadi was near Siunon. Not even the elves could move a host across the width of Alagazia in less than a week. It must be the twelve spellweavers Islanzadi sent to protect Aragon. Quick, my horse, she said, and snapped her fingers. Her forearms burned as she swung herself onto Battlestorm. She waited only long enough for the nearest Urgel to hand her Elva, then drove her heels into the stallion. His muscles surged beneath her as he sprang into a gallop. Bending low over his neck, she steered him down a crude lane between two rows of tents, dodging men and animals and jumping a rain barrel that barred her way. The men did not seem to take offence. They laughed and scrambled after her so they could see the elves with their own eyes. When she arrived at the northern entrance to the camp, she and Elva dismounted and scanned the horizon for motion. There, said Elva, and pointed. Nearly two miles away, twelve long, lean figures emerged from behind a stand of juniper trees, their outlines wavering in the morning heat. 
The elves ran in unison so light and fast their feet raised no dust, and they appeared to fly over the countryside. Nasawada's scalp prickled. Their speed was both beautiful and unnatural. They reminded her of a pack of predators chasing their prey. She felt the same sense of danger as when she had seen a shurg, a giant wolf in the Beor Mountains. Awe-inspiring, aren't they? Nasawada started to find Angela next to her. She was annoyed and mystified by how the herbalist had been able to sneak up on her. She wished Elva had warned her of Angela's approach. How is it you always manage to be present when something interesting is about to occur? Oh, well, I like to know what's going on, and being there is so much faster than waiting for someone to tell me about it afterward. Besides, people always leave out important pieces of information, like whether someone's ring finger is longer than their index finger, or whether they have magical shields protecting them, or whether the donkey they are riding happens to have a bald patch in the shape of a rooster's head. Don't you agree? Nasawada frowned. You never reveal your secrets, do you? Now what good would that do? Everyone would get all excited over some piffle of a spell, and then I'd have to spend hours trying to explain, and in the end King Orin would want to chop off my head, and I would have to fight off half your spellcasters during my escape. It's just not worth the effort, if you ask me. Your answer hardly inspires confidence, but... That's because you are too serious, Lady Night Stalker. But tell me, Nasawada persisted, why would you want to know if someone is riding a donkey with a ball patch shaped like a rooster's head? Ah, oh, that. Well, the man who owns that particular donkey cheated me at a game of knuckle bones out of three buttons and a rather interesting shard of enchanted crystal. Cheated you? Angela pursed her lips, obviously irked. The knuckle bones were loaded. I switched them on him, but then he replaced them with a set of his own when I was distracted. I'm still not quite sure how he tricked me. So you were both cheating. It was a valuable crystal. Besides, how can you cheat a cheater? Before Nasawada could respond, the six Nighthawks came pounding out of the camp and took up positions around her. She hid her distaste as the heat and smell of their bodies assailed her. The odor of the two Urgles was especially pungent. Then, somewhat to her surprise, the captain of the shift, a burly man with a crooked nose and the name of Garvin, accosted her. My lady, may I have a word with you in private? He spoke through close-set teeth as if struggling to contain a great emotion. Angela and Elva looked at Nasuada for confirmation that she wanted them to withdraw. She nodded, and they began walking west toward the Jeet River. Once Nasuada was confident they were out of hearing, she began to speak, but Garvin overrode her, exclaiming, Blast it, Lady Nasawada. You shouldn't have left us as you did. Peace, Captain, she replied. It was a small enough risk, 
and I felt it was important to be here in time to greet the elves. Garvin's mail rustled as he struck his leg with a bunched fist. A small risk. Not an hour ago you received proof that Galbatorix still has agents hidden among us. He has been able to infiltrate us again and again, and yet you see fit to abandon your escort and go racing through a host of potential assassins. Have you forgotten the attack in Arboron, or how the twins slew your father? Captain Garvin, you go too far. I'll go even further if it means ensuring your well-being. The elves, Nasawada observed, had halved the distance between them and the camp. Angry and eager to end the conversation, she said, I am not without my own protection, Captain. Flicking his eyes toward Elva, Garvin said, We have suspected as much, lady. A pause followed, as if he were hoping she would volunteer more information. When she remained silent, he forged onward. If you were actually safe, then I was wrong to accuse you of recklessness, and I apologize. Still, safety and the appearance of safety are two different things. For the Nighthawks to be effective, we have to be the smartest, toughest, meanest warriors in the land, and people have to believe that we're the smartest, the toughest, and the meanest. They have to believe that if they try to stab you or shoot you with a crossbow or use magic against you, that we will stop them. If they believe they have about as much chance of killing you as a mouse does a dragon, then they may very well give up the idea as hopeless, and we will have averted an attack without ever having to lift a finger. We cannot fight all your enemies, Lady Nesawada. That would take an army. Even Aragon couldn't save you if all who want you dead had the courage to act upon their hatred. You might survive a hundred attempts on your life, or a thousand, but eventually one would succeed. The only way to keep that from happening is to convince the majority of your enemies that they will never get past the Nighthawks. Our reputation can protect you just as surely as our swords and our armour. It does us no good, then, for people to see you riding off without us. No doubt we looked a right bunch of fools back there, frantically trying to catch up. After all, if you do not respect us, lady, why should anyone else? Garvin moved closer, dropping his voice. We will gladly die for you if we must. All we ask in return is that you allow us to perform our duties. It is a small favour, considering. And the day may come when you are grateful we are here. Your other protection is human, and therefore fallible, whatever her arcane powers may be. She has not sworn the same oaths in the ancient language that we of the Nighthawks have. Our sympathies could shift, and you would do well to ponder your fate if she turned against you. The Nighthawks, however, will never betray you. We are yours, Lady Nasawada, fully and completely. So please... Let the Nighthawks do what they are supposed to do. Let us protect you. Initially, Nasuada was indifferent to his arguments, but his eloquence and the clarity of his reasoning impressed her. He was, she thought, a man she might have use for elsewhere. I see Jormunda has surrounded me with warriors as skilled with their tongues as they are with their swords, she said with a smile. My lady. You are right. 
I should not have left you and your men behind, and I am sorry. It was careless and inconsiderate. I am still unaccustomed to having guards with me at all hours of the day, and sometimes I forget I cannot move about with the freedom I once did. You have my word of honour, Captain Garvin. It shall not happen again. I do not wish to cripple the Nighthawks any more than you. Thank you, my lady. Nasawada turned back toward the elves, but they were hidden from sight below the bank of a dry stream a quarter of a mile away. It strikes me, Garvin, that you may have invented a motto for the Nighthawks a moment ago. Did I? If so, I cannot recall. You did. The smartest, the toughest, and the meanest, you said. That would be a fine motto, although perhaps without the end. If the other Nighthawks approve of it, you should have Triana translate the phrase into the ancient language, and I will have it inscribed on your shields and embroidered on your standards. You are most generous, my lady. When we return to our tents, I shall discuss the matter with Jormunder and my fellow captains. Only... He hesitated then, and guessing at what troubled him, Nasawada said, But you are worried that such a motto may be too vulgar for men of your position, and you would prefer something more noble and high-minded, am I right? Exactly, my lady, he said, with a relieved expression. It's a valid concern, I suppose. The Nighthawks represent the Varden and you must interact with notables of every race and rank in the course of your duty. It would be regrettable if you were to convey the wrong impression. Very well. I leave it to you and your compatriots to devise an appropriate motto. I am confident you will do an excellent job. At that moment the twelve elves emerged from the dry streambed, and Garvin, after murmuring additional thanks, moved a discreet distance from Nasawada. Composing herself for a state visit, Nasawada signalled Angela and Elva to return. When he was still several hundred feet away, the lead elf appeared soot-black from head to toe. At first Nasawada assumed he was dark-skinned like herself and wearing dark attire, but as he drew closer she saw that the elf wore only a loincloth and a braided fabric belt with a small pouch attached. The rest of him was covered with midnight blue fur that glistened with a healthy sheen under the glare of the sun. On average, the fur was a quarter inch long, a smooth, flexible armor that mirrored the shape and movement of the underlying muscles, but on his ankles and the undersides of his forearms it extended a full two inches, and between his shoulder blades there was a ruffled mane that stuck out a hand's breadth from his body and tapered down along his back to the base of his spine. Jagged bangs shadowed his brow, and cat-like tufts sprouted from the tips of his pointed ears, but otherwise the fur on his face was so short and flat, only its color betrayed its presence. His eyes were bright yellow. Instead of fingernails, a claw protruded from each of his middle fingers, and as he slowed to a stop before her, Nasawada noticed that a certain odor surrounded him. A salty musk, reminiscent of dry juniper wood, oiled leather, and smoke. It was such a strong smell and so obviously masculine, Nasawada felt her skin go hot and cold and crawl with anticipation, and she blushed, 
and was glad it would not show. The rest of the elves were more as she had expected, of the same general build and complexion as Arya, with short tunics of dusky orange and pine-needle green. Six were men and six were women. They all had raven hair, save for two of the women whose hair was like starlight. It was impossible to determine their ages, for their faces were smooth and unlined. They were the first elves besides Arya that Nasawada had met in person, and she was eager to find out if Arya was representative of her race. Touching his first two fingers to his lips, the lead elf bowed, as did his companions, and then twisted his right hand against his chest and said, Greetings and felicitations, Nasuada, daughter of Arjehad. Atra esterni onotheldwin. His accent was more pronounced than Arya's, a lilting cadence that gave his words music. Atra duavarinya onovarda, replied Nasuada, as Arya had taught her. The elf smiled, revealing teeth that were sharper than normal. I am Blodgarm, son of Ildred the Beautiful. He introduced the other elves in turn before continuing, We bring you glad tidings from Queen Islanzadi. Last night our spellcasters succeeded in destroying the gates of Siunon. Even as we speak, our forces advance through the streets toward the tower where Lord Tarrant has barricaded himself. Some few still resist us, but the city has fallen, and soon we shall have complete control over Siunon. Nasawada's guards and the Varden gathered behind her burst into cheers at the news. She too rejoiced at the victory, but then a sense of foreboding and disquiet tempered her celebratory mood as she pictured elves, especially ones as strong as Blodgarm, invading human homes. What an earthly forces have I unleashed, she wondered. These are glad tidings indeed, she said, and I am well pleased to hear them. With Siunon captured, we are that much closer to Urubain, and thus to Galbatorix, and the fulfilment of our goals. In a more private voice, she said, I trust that Queen Islanzadi will be gentle with the people of Siunon with those who have no love for Galbatorix but lack the means or the courage to oppose the empire. Queen Islanzadi is both kind and merciful to her subjects, even if they are her unwilling subjects, but if anyone dares oppose us, we shall sweep them aside like dead leaves before an autumn storm. I would expect nothing less from a race as old and mighty as yours. Nasawada replied. After satisfying the demands of courtesy with several more polite exchanges of increasing triviality, Nasawada deemed it appropriate to address the reason for the elves' visit. She ordered the assembled crowd to disperse, then said, Your purpose here, as I understand it, is to protect Eragon and Sephira. Am I right? You are Nasawada Svitkona and we are aware that Eragon is still inside the Empire, but that he will return soon. Are you also aware that Arya left in search of him, and that they are now travelling together? Blodgarm flicked his ears. We were informed of that as well. It is unfortunate that they should both be in such danger, 
but hopefully no harm will befall them. What do you intend to do then? Will you seek them out and escort them back to the Varden? Or will you stay and wait, and trust that Aragon and Arya can defend themselves against Galbatorix's minions? We will remain as your guests, Nasawada, daughter of Aryad. Aragon and Arya are safe enough as long as they avoid detection. Joining them in the Empire could very well attract unwanted attention. Under the circumstances, it seems best to bide our time, where we can yet do some good. Galbatorix is most likely to strike here at the Varden, and if he does, and if Thorn and Murtag should reappear, Saphira will need all our help to drive them off. Nasawada was surprised. Aragon said you were among the strongest spellcasters of your race. But do you really have the wherewithal to thwart that accursed pair? Like Galbatorix, they have powers far beyond those of ordinary riders. With Saphira helping us, yes, we believe that we can match or overcome Thorn and Murtag. We know what the Forsworn were capable of. And while Galbatorix has probably made Thorn and Murtek stronger than any individual member of the Forsworn, he certainly won't have made them his equals. In that regard, at least, his fear of treachery is to our benefit. Even three of the Forsworn could not conquer the twelve of us and a dragon. Therefore we are confident that we can hold our own against all but Galbatorix. That is heartening. Since Aragon's defeat at the hands of Murtag, I have been wondering if we should retreat and hide until Aragon's strength increases. Your assurances convince me that we are not entirely without hope. We may have no idea how to kill Galbatorix himself, but until we batter down the gates of his citadel in Urubain, or until he chooses to fly out on Shrukan and confront us on the field of battle, nothing shall stop us. She paused. You have given me no reason to distrust you, Blodgarn, but before you enter our camp, I must ask that you allow one of my men to touch each of your minds to confirm that you are actually elves, and not humans Galbatorix has sent here in disguise. It pains me to make such a request, but we have been plagued by spies and traitors, and we dare not take you or anyone else at their word. It is not my intention to cause offence, but war has taught us these precautions are necessary. Surely you, who have ringed the entire leafy expanse of Duweldenwarden with protective spells, can understand my reasons. So I ask, will you agree to this? Blodgarm's eyes were feral, and his teeth were alarmingly sharp as he said, for the most part, the trees of Duweldenwarden have needles, not leaves. Test us if you must, but I warn you, whomever you assign the task should take great care he does not delve too deeply into our minds, else he may find himself stripped of his reason. It is perilous for mortals to wander among our thoughts. They can easily become lost and be unable to return to their bodies nor are our secrets available for general inspection. Nasawada understood. The elves would destroy anyone who ventured into forbidden territory. Captain Garvin, she said. Stepping forward, 
with the expression of a man approaching his doom, Garvin stood opposite Blodgarm, closed his eyes, and frowned intensely as he searched out Blodgarm's consciousness. Nasawada bit the inside of her lip as she watched. When she was a child, a one-legged man by the name of Hargrove had taught her how to conceal her thoughts from telepaths and how to block and divert the stabbing lances of a mental attack. At both those skills she excelled, and although she had never succeeded at initiating contact with the mind of another, she was thoroughly familiar with the principles involved. She empathized, then, with the difficulty and the delicacy of what Garvin was trying to do, a trial only made harder by the strange nature of the elves. Leaning toward her, Angela whispered, You should have had me check the elves. It would have been safer. Perhaps, said Nasawada. Despite all the help the herbalist had given her and the Varden, she still felt uncomfortable relying upon her for official business. For a few moments longer, Garvin continued his efforts, and then his eyes snapped open and he released his breath in an explosive burst. His neck and face were mottled from the strain and his pupils were dilated as if it were night. In contrast, Blodgarm appeared undisturbed. His fur was smooth, his breathing regular, and a faint smile of amusement flickered about the corners of his lips. Well? asked Nasawada. It seemed to take Garvin a longish while to hear her question. And then the burly captain with the crooked nose said, He is not human, my lady. Of that I have no doubt. No doubt whatsoever. Pleased and disturbed, for there was something uncomfortably remote about his reply, Nasawada said, Very well. Proceed. Thereafter, Garvin required less and less time to examine each elf, spending no more than a half-dozen seconds on the very last of the group. Nasawada kept a close eye on him throughout the process, and she saw how his fingers became white and bloodless, and the skin at his temples sank into his skull like the eardrums of a frog, and he acquired the languid appearance of a person swimming deep underwater. Having completed his assignment, Garvin returned to his post beside Nasawada. He was, she thought, a changed man. His original determination and fierceness of spirit had faded into the dreamy air of a sleepwalker. And while he looked at her when she asked if he was well, and he answered in an even enough tone, she felt as if his spirit was far away, ambling among dusty, sunlit glades somewhere in the elves' mysterious forest. Nasawada hoped he would soon recover. If he did not, she would ask Eragon or Angela, or perhaps the two of them together, to attend to Garvin. Until such time as his condition improved, she decided that he should no longer serve as an active member of the Nighthawks. Jormunder would give him something simple to do, so she would not suffer guilt at causing him any further injury, and he might at least have the pleasure of enjoying whatever visions his contact with the elves had left him with. Bitter at her loss, and furious with herself, with the elves, and with Galbatorix and the Empire for making such a sacrifice necessary, she had difficulty maintaining a soft tongue and good manners. When you spoke of peril, Blodgarm, you would have done well to mention that even those who return to their bodies do not escape entirely unscathed. My lady, I am fine, said Garvin. 
His protestation was so weak and ineffectual, hardly anyone noticed, and it only served to strengthen Nasawada's sense of outrage. The fur on Blodgarm's nape rippled and stiffened. If I failed to explain myself clearly enough before, then I apologize. However, do not blame us for what has happened. We cannot help our nature. And do not blame yourself either, for we live in an age of suspicion. To allow us to pass unchallenged would have been negligent on your part. It is regrettable that such an unpleasant incident should mar this historic meeting between us, but at least now you may rest easy, confident that you have established our origins, and that we are what we seem to be, elves of Duweldenvarden. A fresh cloud of his musk drifted over Nasawada, and even though she was hard with anger, her joints weakened, and she was assailed by thoughts of bowers draped in silk, goblets of cherry wine, and the mournful dwarf songs she had often heard echoing through the empty halls of Tronjim. Distracted, she said, I would Aragon or Arya were here, for they could have looked at your minds without fear of losing their sanity. Again she succumbed to the wanton attraction of Blodgarm's odour, imagining what it would feel like to run her hands through his mane. She only returned to herself when Elva pulled on her left arm, forcing her to bend over and place her ear close to the witch-child's mouth. In a low, harsh voice, Elva said, Whorehound, concentrate upon the taste of whorehound. Following her advice, Nasawada summoned a memory from the previous year, when she had eaten whorehound candy during one of King Hrothgar's feasts. Just thinking about the acrid flavor of the candy dried out her mouth and counteracted the seductive qualities of Blodgarm's musk. She attempted to conceal her lapse in concentration by saying, My young companion here is wondering why you look so different from other elves. I must confess to some curiosity on the subject as well. Your appearance is not what we have come to expect from your race. Would you be so kind as to share with us the reason for your more animalistic features? A shiny ripple flowed through Blodgarm's fur as he shrugged. This shape pleased me, he said. Some write poems about the sun and the moon. Others grow flowers or build great structures or compose music. As much as I appreciate those various art forms, I believe the true beauty only exists in the fang of a wolf, in the pelt of the forest cat, in the eye of an eagle. So I adopted those attributes for myself. In another hundred years I may lose interest in the beasts of the land, and instead decide that the beasts of the sea embody all that is good. And then I will cover myself with scales, transform my hands into fins and my feet into a tail, and I will vanish beneath the surface of the waves, and never again be seen in Alagazia. If he was jesting, as Nasawada believed, he showed no indication of it. Quite to the contrary, he was so serious, she wondered if he was mocking her. Most interesting, she said. I hope the urge to become a fish does not strike you in the near future, for we have need of you on dry ground. Of course, if Galbatorix should decide to also enslave the sharks and the rockfish, 
why then a spellcaster who can breathe underwater may be of some use. Without warning, the twelve elves filled the air with their clear, bright laughter, and birds for over a mile in every direction burst into song. The sound of their mirth was like water falling on crystal. Nasawada smiled without meaning to, and around her she saw similar expressions on the faces of her guards. Even the two urgles seemed giddy with joy. And when the elves fell silent and the world became mundane again, Nasawada felt the sadness of a fading dream. A film of tears obscured her vision for a clutch of heartbeats, and then that too was gone. Smiling for the first time and thereby presenting a visage both handsome and terrifying, Blodgarn said, It will be an honour to serve alongside a woman as intelligent, capable and witty as yourself, Lady Nasawada. One of these days, when your duties permit, I would be delighted to teach you our game of runes. You would make a formidable opponent, I'm sure. The elves' sudden shift in behaviour reminded her of a word she had occasionally heard the dwarves use to describe them. Capricious. It had seemed a harmless enough description when she was a girl. It reinforced her concept of the elves as creatures who flitted from one delight to another, like fairies in a garden of flowers. But she now recognised that what the dwarves really meant was, Beware, beware, for you never know what an elf will do. She sighed to herself, depressed by the prospect of having to contend with another group of beings intent on controlling her for their own ends. Is life always this complicated? she wondered, or do I bring it upon myself? From within the camp she saw King Orin riding toward them at the head of a massive train of nobles, courtiers, functionaries, major and minor, advisers, assistants, servants, men-at-arms, and a plethora of other species she did not bother identifying. While from the west, rapidly descending on outstretched wings, she saw Sephira. Girding herself for the loud tedium about to engulf them, she said, It may be some months before I have the opportunity to accept your offer, Blodgarn, but I appreciate it nevertheless. I would enjoy the distraction of a game after the work of a long day. For the present, however, it must remain a deferred pleasure. The entire weight of human society is about to crash down upon you. I suggest you prepare yourselves for an avalanche of names, questions, and requests. We humans are a curious lot, and none of us have seen so many elves before. We are prepared for this, Lady Nasuwada, said Blodgarm. As King Orin's thundering cavalcade drew near, and Sephira prepared to land, flattening the grass with the wind from her wings, Nasuwada's last thought was, Oh, dear, I'll have to put a battalion around Blodgarm to keep him from being torn apart by the women in the camp and even that might not solve the problem. Mercy, Dragon Rider It was mid-afternoon, the day after they had left Eastcroft, when Aragon sensed the patrol of fifteen soldiers ahead of them. He mentioned it to Arya, and she nodded. I noticed them as well. Neither he nor she voiced any concerns, 
but worry began to gnaw at Aragon's belly, and he saw how Arya's eyebrows lowered into a fierce frown. The land around them was open and flat, devoid of any cover. They had encountered groups of soldiers before, but always in the company of other travellers. Now they were alone on the faint trail of a road. We could dig a hole with magic, cover the top with brush and hide in it until they leave, said Aragon. Arya shook her head without breaking stride. What would we do with the excess dirt? They'd think they had discovered the biggest badger den in existence. Besides, I would rather save our energy for running. Aragon grunted. I'm not sure how many more miles I have left in me. He was not winded, but the relentless pounding was wearing him down. His knees hurt, his ankles were sore, his left big toe was red and swollen, and blisters continued to break out on his heels, no matter how tightly he bound them. The previous night he had healed several of the aches and pains troubling him, and while that had provided a measure of relief, the spells only exacerbated his exhaustion. The patrol was visible as a plume of dust for half an hour before Aragon was able to make out the shapes of the men and the horses at the base of the yellow cloud. Since he and Arya had keener eyesight than most humans, it was unlikely the horsemen could see them at that distance, so they continued to run for another ten minutes. Then they stopped. Arya removed her skirt from her pack and tied it over the leggings she wore while running, and Aragon stored Brom's ring in his own pack and smeared dirt over his right palm to hide his silvery Gedwe Ignazia. They resumed their journey with bowed heads, hunched shoulders, and dragging feet. If all went well, the soldiers would assume they were just another pair of refugees. Although Aragon could feel the rumble of approaching hoofbeats and hear the cries of the men driving their steeds, it still took the better part of an hour for their two groups to meet on the vast plain. When they did, Aragon and Arya moved off the road and stood looking down between their feet. Aragon caught a glimpse of horse legs from under the edge of his brow as the first few riders pounded past, but then the choking dust billowed over him, obscuring the rest of the patrol. The dirt in the air was so thick he had to close his eyes. Listening carefully, he counted until he was sure that more than half the patrol had gone by. They're not going to bother questioning us, he thought. His elation was short-lived. A moment later, someone in the swirling blizzard of dust shouted, Company, halt! A chorus of woes, steady theirs, and hey there, Nels, rang out as the fifteen men coaxed their mounts to form a circle around Aragon and Arya. Before the soldiers completed their maneuver and the air cleared, Aragon poured the ground for a large pebble, then stood back up. Be still, hissed Arya. While he waited for the soldiers to make their intentions known, Aragon strove to calm his racing heart by rehearsing the story he and Arya had concocted to explain their presence so close to the border with Surda. His efforts failed, for notwithstanding his strength, his training, the knowledge of the battles he had won and the half-dozen wards protecting him, his flesh remained convinced that imminent injury or death awaited him. His gut twisted, his throat constricted, and his limbs were light and unsteady. Oh, get on with it, he thought. He longed to tear something apart with his hands, as if an act of destruction would relieve the pressure building inside of him. 
but the urge only heightened his frustration, for he dared not move. The one thing that steadied him was Arya's presence. He would sooner cut off a hand than have her consider him a coward. And although she was a mighty warrior in her own right, he still felt the desire to defend her. The voice that had ordered the patrol to halt again issued forth. Let me see your faces! Raising his head, Aragon saw a man sitting before them on a roan charger, his gloved hands folded over the pommel of his saddle. Upon his upper lip there sprouted an enormous curly moustache that after descending to the corners of his mouth extended a good nine inches in either direction and was in stark contrast to the straight hair that fell to his shoulders. How such a massive piece of sculpted foliage supported its own weight puzzled Aragon, especially since it was dull and lustreless and obviously had not been impregnated with warm beeswax. The other soldiers held spears pointed at Aragon and Arya. So much dirt covered them, it was impossible to see the flames stitched on their tunics. Now then, said the man, and his moustache wobbled like an unbalanced set of scales. Who are you? Where are you going? And what is your business in the king's lands? Then he waved a hand. No, don't bother answering, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters nowadays. The world is coming to an end and we waste our days interrogating peasants. Bah! Superstitious vermin who scurry from place to place, devouring all the food in the land and reproducing at a ghastly rate. At my family's estate near Urubain, we would have the likes of you flogged if we caught you wandering around without permission, and if we learned that you had stolen from your master, why then we'd hang you. Whatever you want to tell me is lies. It always is. What have you got in that pack of yours, eh? Food and blankets, yes. But maybe a pair of gold candlesticks, eh? Silverware from the locked chest? Secret letters for the Varden? Eh? Cat got your tongue? Well, we'll soon sort the matter out. Langwood, why don't you see what treasures you can excavate from yonder knapsack? There's a good boy. Aragon staggered forward, as one of the soldiers struck him across the back with the haft of a spear. He had wrapped his armor in rags to keep the pieces from rubbing against each other. The rags, however, were too thin to entirely absorb the force of the blow and muffle the clang of metal. Aha! exclaimed the man with the mustache. Grabbing Aragon from behind, the soldier unlaced the top of his pack and pulled out his hauberk, saying, Look, sir! The man with the mustache broke out in a delighted grin. Armor! And a fine make as well! Very fine, I should say. Well, you are full of surprises. Going to join the Varden, were you? Intent on treason and sedition, hmm? His expression soured. Or are you one of those who generally give honest soldiers a bad name? If so, you are a most incompetent mercenary. You don't even have a weapon. Was it too much trouble to cut yourself a staff or a club, eh? Well, how about it? Answer me. No, sir. No, sir. Didn't occur to you, I suppose. It's a pity we have to accept such slow-minded wretches. 
But that's what this blasted war has reduced us to, scrounging for leftovers. Accept me where, sir? Silence, you insolent rascal! No one gave you permission to speak! His mustache quivering, the man gestured. Red lights exploded across Aragon's field of vision as the soldier behind him bashed him on the head. Whether you are a thief, a traitor, a mercenary, or merely a fool, your fate will be the same. Once you swear the oath of service, you will have no choice but to obey Galbatorix and those who speak for him. We are the first army in history to be free of dissent. No mindless blathering about what we should do. Only orders, clear and direct. You too shall join our cause, and you shall have the privilege of helping to make real the glorious future our great king has foreseen. As for your lovely companion, there are other ways she can be of use to the Empire, eh? Now tie them up. Eragon knew then what he had to do. Glancing over, he found Arya already looking at him, her eyes hard and bright. He blinked once. She blinked in return. His hand tightened around the pebble. Most of the soldiers Eragon had fought on the burning plains had possessed certain rudimentary wards intended to shield them from magical attacks, and he suspected these men were likewise equipped. He was confident he could break or circumvent any spells Galbatorix's magicians invented, but it would require more time than he now had. Instead, he cocked his arm, and with a flick of his wrist, threw the pebble at the man with the moustache. The pebble punctured the side of his helm. Before the soldiers could react, Aragon twisted around, yanked the spear from the hands of the man who had been tormenting him, and used it to knock him off his horse. As the man landed, Aragon stabbed him through the heart, breaking the blade of the spear on the metal plates of the soldier's gambeson. Releasing the spear, Aragon dove backward, his body parallel with the ground as he passed underneath seven spears that were flying toward where he had been. The lethal shafts seemed to float above him as he fell. The instant Aragon had released the pebble, Arya bounded up the side of the horse nearest her, jumping from stirrup to saddle, and kicked the head of the oblivious soldier who was perched on the mare. He went hurtling more than thirty feet. Then Arya leaped from the back of horse to horse, killing the soldiers with her knees, her feet, and her hands in an incredible display of grace and balance. Jagged rocks tore at Aragon's stomach as he tumbled to a stop. Grimacing, he sprang upright. Four soldiers who had dismounted confronted him with drawn swords. They charged. Dodging to the right, he caught the first soldier's wrist as the man swung his sword and punched him in the armpit. The man collapsed and was still. Eragon dispatched his next opponents by twisting their heads until their spines snapped. The fourth soldier was so close by then, running at him with sword held high, Eragon could not evade him. Trapped, he did the one thing he could. He struck the man in the chest with all his might. A fount of blood and sweat erupted as his fist connected. The blow staved in the man's ribs and propelled him more than a dozen feet over the grass, where he fetched up against another corpse. Eragon gasped and doubled over, cradling his throbbing hand. Four of his knuckles were disjointed and white cartilage showed through his mangled skin. Blast! he thought as hot blood poured from the wounds. His fingers refused to move when he ordered them to. 
he realized that his hand would be useless until he could heal it. Fearing another attack, he looked around for Arya and the rest of the soldiers. The horses had scattered. Only three soldiers remained alive. Arya was grappling with two of them some distance away while the third and final soldier fled south along the road. Gathering his strength, Aragon pursued him. As he narrowed the gap between them, the man began to plead for mercy, promising he would tell no one about the massacre and holding out his hands to show they were empty. When Aragon was within arm's reach, the man veered to the side and then a few steps later changed direction again, darting back and forth across the countryside like a frightened jackrabbit. All the while, the man continued to beg, tears streaming down his cheeks, saying that he was too young to die, that he had yet to marry and father a child, that his parents would miss him, and that he had been pressed into the army, and this was only his fifth mission. And why couldn't Aragon leave him alone? What have you against me? he sobbed. I only did what I had to. I'm a good person. Aragon paused and forced himself to say, You can't keep up with us. We can't leave you. You'll catch a horse and betray us. No, I won't. People will ask what happened here. Your oath to Galbatorix and the Empire won't let you lie. I'm sorry, but I don't know how to release you from your bond, except... Why are you doing this? You're a monster! screamed the man. With an expression of pure terror, he made an attempt to dash around Aragon and return to the road. Aragon overtook him in less than ten feet, and as the man was still crying and asking for clemency, Aragon wrapped his left hand around his neck and squeezed. When he relaxed his grip, the soldier fell across his feet, dead. Bile coated Aragon's tongue as he stared down at the man's slack face. Whenever we kill, we kill a part of ourselves, he thought. Shaking with a combination of shock, pain and self-loathing, he walked back to where the fight had begun. Arya was kneeling beside a body, washing her hands and arms with water from a tin flask one of the soldiers had been carrying. How is it? asked Arya. You could kill that man, but you could not bring yourself to lay a finger on Sloane. She stood and faced him, her gaze frank. Devoid of emotion, he shrugged. He was a threat. Sloane wasn't. Isn't it obvious? Arya was quiet for a while. It ought to be, but it isn't. I am ashamed to be instructed in morality by one with so much less experience. Perhaps I have been too certain, too confident of my own choices. Aragon heard her speak, but the words meant nothing to him, as his gaze drifted over the corpses. Is this all my life has become? he wondered. A never-ending series of battles? I feel like a murderer. I understand how difficult this is, said Arya. Remember, Aragon, you have experienced only a small part of what it means to be a dragon rider. Eventually this war will end and you will see that your duties encompass more than violence. The riders were not just warriors. They were teachers, healers, and scholars. His jaw muscles knotted for a moment. Why are we fighting these men, Arya? 
because they stand between us and Galbatorix. Then we should find a way to strike at Galbatorix directly. None exist. We cannot march to Urubain until we defeat his forces, and we cannot enter his castle until we disarm almost a century's worth of traps, magical and otherwise. There has to be a way, he muttered. He remained where he was as Arya strode forward and picked up a spear. But when she placed the tip of the spear under the chin of a slain soldier and thrust it into his skull, Aragorn sprang toward her and pushed her away from the body. What are you doing? he shouted. Anger flashed across Arya's face. I will forgive that only because you are distraught and not of your right mind. Think, Aragorn, it is too late in the day for anyone to be coddling you. Why is this necessary? The answer presented itself to him, and he grudgingly said, If we don't, the Empire will notice that most of the men were killed by hand. Exactly. The only ones capable of such a feat are elves, riders, and cull. And since even an imbecile could figure out a cull was not responsible for this, they'll soon know we are in the area and in less than a day Thorn and Murtag will be flying overhead, searching for us. There was a wet squelch as she pulled the spear out of the body. She held it out to him until he accepted it. I find this as repulsive as you do, so you might as well make yourself useful and help. Eragon nodded. Then Arya scavenged a sword, and together they set out to make it appear as if a troop of ordinary warriors had killed the soldiers. It was grisly work, but it went quickly, for they both knew exactly what kinds of wounds the soldier should have to ensure the success of the deception, and neither of them wished to linger. When they came to the man whose chest Aragon had destroyed, Arya said, There's little we can do to disguise an injury like that. We will have to leave it as is, and hope people assume a horse stepped on him. They moved on. The last soldier they dealt with was the commander of the patrol. His moustache was now limp and torn, and had lost most of its former splendour. After enlarging the pebble hole so it more closely resembled the triangular pit left by the spike of a warhammer, Aragon rested for a moment, contemplating the commander's sad moustache, then said, He was right, you know. About what? I need a weapon, a proper weapon. I need a sword. Wiping his palms on the edge of his tunic, he surveyed the plain around them, counting the bodies. That's it then, isn't it? We're done. He went and collected his scattered armor, rewrapped it in cloth and returned it to the bottom of his pack. Then he joined Arya on the low hillock she had climbed. We had best avoid the roads from now on, she said. We cannot risk another encounter with Galbatorix's men. Indicating his deformed right hand, which stained his tunic with blood, she said, You should tend to that before we set forth. She gave him no time to respond, but grasped his paralyzed fingers and said, We say heal. An involuntary groan escaped him as his fingers popped back into their sockets, and as his abraded tendons and crushed cartilage regained the fullness of their proper shapes, and as the flaps of skin hanging from his knuckles again covered the raw flesh below. When the spell ended, he opened and closed his hand to confirm that it was fully cured. Thank you, he said. 
It surprised him that she had taken the initiative when he was perfectly capable of healing his own wounds. Arya seemed embarrassed. Looking away out over the plains, she said, I am glad you were by my side today, Eragon. And you by mine. She favoured him with a quick, uncertain smile. They lingered on the hillock for another minute, neither of them eager to resume their journey. Then Arya sighed and said, We should be off. The shadows lengthen, and someone else is bound to appear and raise a hue and cry when they discover this crow's feast. Abandoning the hillock, they oriented themselves in a southwesterly direction, angling away from the road, and loped out across the uneven sea of grass. Behind them, the first of the carrion-eaters dropped from the sky. Shadows of the Past That night, Aragon sat staring at their meagre fire, chewing on a dandelion leaf. Their dinner had consisted of an assortment of roots, seeds, and greens that Arya had gathered from the surrounding countryside. Eaten uncooked and unseasoned, they were hardly appetizing. But he had refrained from augmenting the meal with a bird or rabbit, of which there was an abundance in the immediate vicinity, for he did not wish Arya to regard him with disapproval. Moreover, after their fight with the soldiers, the thought of taking another life, even an animal's, sickened him. It was late and they would have to get an early start the next morning. But he made no move to retire, nor did Arya. She was situated at right angles to him, her legs pulled up with her arms wrapped around them, and her chin resting on her knees. The skirt of her dress spread outward, like the wind-battered petals of a flower. His chin sunk low against his chest. Aragon massaged his right hand with his left, trying to dispel a deep-seated ache. I need a sword, he thought. Short of that, I could use some sort of protection for my hands so I don't cripple myself whenever I hit something. The problem is I'm so strong now I would have to wear gloves with several inches of padding, which is ridiculous. They would be too bulky, too hot. And what's more, I can't go around with gloves on for the rest of my life. He frowned, pushing the bones of his hand out of their normal positions he studied how they altered the play of light over his skin, fascinated by the malleability of his body. And what happens if I get in a fight while I'm wearing bronze ring? It's of elvish make, so I probably don't have to worry about breaking the sapphire. But if I hit anything with the ring on my finger, I won't just dislocate a few joints. I'll splinter every bone in my hand. I might not even be able to repair the damage. He tightened his hands into fists, and slowly turned them from side to side, watching the shadows deepen and fade between his knuckles. I could invent a spell that would stop any object that was moving at a dangerous speed from touching my hands. No, wait, that's no good. What if it was a boulder? What if it was a mountain? I'd kill myself trying to stop it. Well, if gloves and magic won't work, I'd like to have a set of the dwarves' Asgud Gamun, their fists of steel. With a smile, he remembered how the dwarf, Shurdnain, had a steel spike threaded into a metal base that was embedded in each of his knuckles, excluding those on his thumbs. The spikes allowed Shurdnain to hit whatever he wanted with little fear of pain, and they were convenient, too, for he could remove them at will. The concept appealed to Aragon, but he was not about to start drilling holes in his knuckles. 
Besides, he thought, my bones are thinner than dwarf bones, too thin, perhaps, to attach the base and still have the joints function as they should. So Askergamon are a bad idea, but maybe instead I can... Bending low over his hands, he whispered, Thayfathen. The backs of his hands began to crawl and prickle, as if he had fallen into a patch of stinging nettles. The sensation was so intense and so unpleasant, he longed to jump up and scratch himself as hard as he could. With an effort of will, he stayed where he was and watched as the skin on his knuckles bulged, forming a flat, whitish callus half an inch thick over each joint. They reminded him of the horn-like deposits that appear on the inside of horses' legs. When he was pleased with the size and density of the knobs, he released the flow of magic and set about exploring by touch and sight the mountainous new terrain that loomed over his fingers. His hands were heavier and stiffer than before, but he could still move his fingers through their full range of motion. It may be ugly, he thought, rubbing the rough protuberances on his right hand against the palm of his left, and people may laugh and sneer if they notice, but I don't care, for it will serve its purpose and may keep me alive. Brimming with silent excitement, he struck the top of a domed rock that rose out of the ground between his legs. The impact jarred his arm and produced a muted thud, but caused him no more discomfort than it would have to punch a board covered with several layers of cloth. Emboldened, he retrieved Brom's ring from his pack and slipped on the cool gold band, checking that the adjacent callus was higher than the face of the ring. He tested his observation by again ramming his fist against the rock. The only resulting sound was that of dry, compacted skin colliding with unyielding stone. What are you doing? asked Arya, peering at him through a veil of her black hair. Nothing. Then he held out his hands. I thought it would be a good idea, since I'll probably have to hit someone again. Arya studied his knuckles. You are going to have difficulty wearing gloves. I can always cut them open to make room. She nodded and returned to gazing at the fire. Aragon leaned back on his elbows and stretched out his legs, content that he was prepared for whatever fights might await him in the immediate future. Beyond that he dared not speculate, for if he did, he would begin to ask himself how he and Sephira could possibly defeat Murtag or Galbatorix and then panic would sink its icy claws into him. He fixed his gaze on the flickering depths of the fire. There, in that writhing inferno, he sought to forget his cares and responsibilities. But the constant motion of the flames soon lulled him into a passive state, where unrelated fragments of thoughts, sounds, images, and emotions drifted through him like snowflakes falling from a calm winter's sky. And amid that flurry, there appeared the face of the soldier who had begged for his life. Again Aragon saw him crying, and again he heard his desperate pleas, and again he felt how his neck snapped like a wet branch of wood. Tormented by the memories, Aragon clenched his teeth and breathed hard through flared nostrils. Cold sweat sprang up over his entire body. He shifted in place and strove to dispel the soldier's unfriendly ghost but to no avail. Go away, he shouted. It wasn't my fault. 
Galbatorix is the one you should blame, not me. I didn't want to kill you. Somewhere in the darkness surrounding them, a wolf howled. From various locations across the plains, a score of other wolves answered, raising their voices in a discordant melody. The eerie singing made Aragon's scalp tingle and goosebumps break out in his arms. Then, for a brief moment, the howls coalesced into a single tone that was similar to the battle cry of a charging cull. Aragon shifted, uneasy. What's wrong? asked Arya. Is it the wolves? They shall not bother us, you know. They are teaching their pups how to hunt, and they won't allow their younglings near creatures who smell as strangely as we do. It's not the wolves out there, said Aragon, hugging himself. It's the wolves in here. He tapped the middle of his forehead. Arya nodded, a sharp, bird-like motion that betrayed the fact she was not human, even though she had assumed the shape of one. It is always thus. The monsters of the mind are far worse than those that actually exist. Fear, doubt, and hate have hamstrung more people than beasts ever have. And love, he pointed out. And love, she admitted. Also greed and jealousy and every other obsessive urge the sentient races are susceptible to. Aragon thought of Tenga, alone in the ruined elf outpost of Edurithindra, hunched over his precious hoard of tomes, searching, always searching, for his elusive answer. He refrained from mentioning the hermit to Arya, for it was not in him to discuss that curious encounter at the present. Instead, he asked, Does it bother you when you kill? Arya's green eyes narrowed. Neither I nor the rest of my people eat the flesh of animals because we cannot bear to hurt another creature to satisfy our hunger, and you have the effrontery to ask if killing disturbs us? Do you really understand so little of us that you believe we are cold-hearted murderers? No, of course not, he protested. That's not what I meant. Then say what you mean, and do not give insult unless it is your intention. Choosing his words with greater care now, Aragon said, I asked this of Roran before we attacked Helgrind, or a question very like it. What I want to know is, how do you feel when you kill? How are you supposed to feel? He scowled at the fire. Do you see the warriors you have vanquished staring back at you, as real as you are before me? Arya tightened her arms around her legs, her gaze pensive. A flame jetted upward as the fire incinerated one of the moths circling the camp. Ganga, she murmured, and motioned with a finger. With a flutter of downy wings, the moth departed. Never lifting her eyes from the clump of burning branches, she said, Nine months after I became an ambassador, my mother's only ambassador, if truth be told, I travelled from the Varden in Farthandur to the capital of Surda which was still a new country in those days. Soon after my companions and I left the Beor Mountains, we encountered a band of roving urgles. We were content to keep our swords in their sheaths and continue on our way. But as is their wont, the urgles insisted on trying to win honour and glory to better their standing within their tribes. Our force was larger than theirs, for Weldon, the man who succeeded Brom as leader of the Varden, was with us, and it was easy for us to drive them off. 
That day was the first time I took a life. It troubled me for weeks afterward, until I realized I would go mad if I continued to dwell upon it. Many do, and they become so angry, so grief-ridden, they can no longer be relied upon, or their hearts turn to stone, and they lose the ability to distinguish right from wrong. How did you come to terms with what you had done? I examined my reasons for killing, to determine if they were just. Satisfied they were, I asked myself if our cause was important enough to continue supporting it, even though it would probably require me to kill again. Then I decided that whenever I began to think of the dead, I would picture myself in the gardens of Tildari Hall. Did it work? Brushing her hair out of her face, she tucked it behind one round ear. It did. The only antidote for the corrosive poison of violence is finding peace within yourself. It is a difficult cure to obtain, but well worth the effort. She paused and then added, Breathing helps too. Breathing? Slow, regular breathing, as if you were meditating. It is one of the most effective methods for calming yourself. Following her advice, Aragon began to consciously inhale and exhale, taking care to maintain a steady tempo and to expel all the air from his lungs with each breath. Within a minute, the knot inside his gut loosened, his frown eased, and the presence of his fallen enemies no longer seemed quite so tangible. The wolves howled again, and after an initial burst of trepidation, he listened without fear, for their baying had lost the power to unsettle him. Thank you, he said. Arya responded with a gracious tilt of her chin. Silence reigned for a quarter of an hour until Aragon said, Urgles. He let the statement stand for a while, a verbal monolith of ambivalence. What do you think about Nasawada allowing them to join the Varden? Arya picked up a twig by the edge of her splayed dress and rolled it between her aquiline fingers, studying the crooked piece of wood as if it contained a secret. It was a courageous decision, and I admire her for it. She always acts in the best interests of the Varden, no matter what the cost may be. She upset many of the Varden when she accepted Nargajvag's offer of support. And she won back their loyalty with the trial of the Long Knives. Nasawada is very clever when it comes to maintaining her position. Arya flicked the twig into the fire. I have no love for Urgles, but neither do I hate them. Unlike the Razak, they are not inherently evil, merely over-fond of war. It is an important distinction, even if it can provide no consolation to the families of their victims. We elves have treated with Urgles before, and we shall again when the need arises. It is a futile prospect, however. She did not have to explain why. Many of the scrolls Oromis had assigned Aragon to read were devoted to the subject of Urgles, and one in particular, the travels of Gnevaldorskald, had taught him that the Urgle's entire culture was based upon feats of combat. Male Urgles could only improve their standing by raiding another village, whether Urgle, human, elf, or dwarf mattered little, or by fighting their rivals one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes to the death. And when it came to picking a mate, 
Urgle females refused to consider a ram eligible unless he had defeated at least three opponents. As a result, each new generation of Urgles had no choice but to challenge their peers, challenge their elders, and scour the land for opportunities to prove their valor. The tradition was so deeply ingrained, every attempt to suppress it had failed. At least they are true to who they are, mused Aragon. That's more than most humans can claim. How is it, he asked, that Durza was able to ambush you, Glenwing, and Feolin with Urgles? Didn't you have wards to protect yourself against physical attacks? The arrows were enchanted. Were the Urgles spellcasters, then? Closing her eyes, Arya sighed and shook her head. No, it was some dark magic of Durza's invention. He gloated about it when I was in Gilead. I don't know how you managed to resist him for so long. I saw what he did to you. It, it was not easy. I viewed the torments he inflicted on me as a test of my commitment, as a chance to demonstrate that I had not made a mistake and I was indeed worthy of the Yahweh symbol. As such, I welcomed the ordeal. But still, even elves are not immune to pain. It's amazing you could keep the location of Elasmira hidden from him all those months. A touch of pride colored her voice. Not just the location of Elasmira, but also where I had sent Sephira's egg, my vocabulary in the ancient language, and everything else that might be of use to Galbatorix. The conversation lapsed, and then Aragon said, Do you think about it much? What you went through in Gilead? When she did not respond, he added, You never talk about it. You recount the facts of your imprisonment readily enough, but you never mention what it was like for you, nor how you feel about it now. Pain is pain, she said. It needs no description. True, but ignoring it can cause more harm than the original injury. No one can live through something like that and escape unscathed. Not on the inside, at least. Why do you assume I have not already confided in someone? Who? Does it matter? Arjihad, my mother, a friend in Elasmira. Perhaps I am wrong, he said. But you do not seem that close to anyone. Where you walk, you walk alone, even among your own people. Arya's countenance remained impassive. Her lack of expression was so complete, Aragon began to wonder if she would deign to respond, a doubt that had just transformed into conviction when she whispered, It was not always so. Alert, Aragon waited without moving, afraid that whatever he might do would stop her from saying more. Once I had someone to talk to, someone who understood what I was and where I came from. Once. He was older than I, but we were kindred spirits, both curious about the world outside our forest, eager to explore and eager to strike against Galbatorix. Neither of us could bear to stay and do Weldenvarden, studying, working magic, pursuing our own personal projects, when we knew the dragon-killer, the bane of the riders, was searching for a way to conquer our race. He came to that conclusion later than I decades after I assumed my position as ambassador, and a few years before Hefring stole Sephira's egg. But the moment he did, he volunteered to accompany me wherever Islanzadi's orders might take me.
she blinked, and her throat convulsed. I wasn't going to let him, but the Queen liked the idea, and he was so very convincing. She pursed her lips and blinked again, her eyes brighter than normal. As gently as he could, Aragon asked, Was it Phelan? Yes, she said, releasing the confirmation almost as a gasp. Did you love him? Casting back her head, Arya gazed up at the twinkling sky, her long neck gold with firelight, her face pale with the radiance of the heavens. Do you ask out of friendly concern, or your own self-interest? She gave an abrupt, choked laugh, the sound of water falling over cold rocks. Never mind. The night air has addled me. It has undone my sense of courtesy, and left me free to say the most spiteful things that occur to me. No matter. It does matter, because I regret it, and I shall not tolerate it. Did I love Phaelin? How would you define love? For over twenty years we travelled together, the only immortals to walk among the short-lived races. We were companions and friends. A pang of jealousy afflicted Aragon. He wrestled with it, subdued it, and tried to eliminate it, but was not altogether successful. A slight remnant of the feeling continued to aggravate him like a splinter burrowing underneath his skin. Over twenty years, repeated Arya. Persisting in her survey of the constellations, she rocked back and forth, seemingly oblivious to Aragon. And then, in a single instant, Durza tore that away from me. Phaolin and Glenwing were the first elves to die in combat for nearly a century. When I saw Phaolin fall, I understood then that the true agony of war isn't being wounded yourself, it's having to watch those you care about being hurt. It was a lesson I thought I had already learned during my time with the Varden, when one after another the men and women I had come to respect died from swords, arrows, poison, accidents, and old age. The loss had never been so personal, however, and when it happened I thought, now I must surely die as well. For whatever danger we had encountered before, Phaelin and I had always survived it together, and if he could not escape, then why should I? Aragon realized she was crying, thick tears rolling from the outer corners of her eyes, down her temples and into her hair. By the stars her tears appeared like rivers of silvered glass. The intensity of her distress startled him. He had not thought it was possible to elicit such a reaction from her, nor had he intended to. Then Gilead, she said, those days were the longest of my life. Phaelin was gone. I did not know whether Sephira's egg was safe or if I had inadvertently returned her to Galbatorix, and Durza, Durza sated the bloodlust of the spirits that controlled him by doing the most horrible things he could imagine to me. Sometimes if he went too far, he would heal me, so he could begin anew the following morning. If he had given me a chance to collect my wits, I might have been able to fool my jailer as you did and avoid consuming the drug that kept me from using magic. But I never had more than a few hours' respite. 
Dozer needed sleep no more than you or I, and he kept at me whenever I was conscious and his other duties permitted. While he worked on me, every second was an hour, every hour a week and every day an eternity. He was careful not to drive me mad. Galbatorix would have been displeased with that. But he came close. He came very, very close. I began to hear birdsong where no birds could fly, and to see things that could not exist. Once, when I was in my cell, gold light flooded the room, and I grew warm all over. When I looked up, I found myself lying on a branch high in a tree, near the centre of Elismira. The sun was about to set, and the whole city glowed as if it were on fire. The Aethelvard were chanting on the path below, and everything was so calm, so peaceful, so beautiful. I would have stayed there forever. But then the light faded, and I was again on my cot. I had forgotten, but once there was a soldier who left a white rose in my cell. It was the only kindness anyone ever showed me in Gilead. That night the flower took root and matured into a huge rosebush that climbed the wall, forced its way between the blocks of stone in the ceiling, breaking them, and pushed its way out of the dungeon and into the open. It continued to ascend until it touched the moon and stood as a great twisting tower that promised escape if I could but lift myself off the floor. I tried with every ounce of my remaining strength, but it was beyond me, and when I glanced away, the rosebush vanished. That was my state of mind when you dreamed of me, and I felt your presence hovering over me. Small wonder I disregarded the sensation as another delusion. She gave him a wan smile. And then you came, Aragon, you and Sephira. After hope had deserted me and I was about to be taken to Galbatorix in Urubain, a rider appeared to rescue me, a rider and dragon. And Morzan's son, he said, both of Morzan's sons. Describe it how you will. It was such an improbable rescue, I occasionally think that I did go mad and that I've imagined everything since. Would you have imagined me causing so much trouble by staying behind at Helgrind? No, she said. I suppose not. With the cuff of her left sleeve she dabbed her eyes, drying them. When I awoke in Farthendur, there was too much that needed doing for me to dwell on the past. But events of late have been dark and bloody, and increasingly I have found myself remembering that which I should not. It makes me grim and out of sorts, without patience for the ordinary delays of life. She shifted into a kneeling position, and placed her hands on the ground on either side of her, as if to steady herself. You say I walk alone. Elves do not incline toward the open displays of friendship humans and dwarves favour, and I have ever been of a solitary disposition. But if you had known me before Gilead, if you had known me as I was— you would not have considered me so aloof. Then I could sing and dance, and not feel threatened by a sense of impending doom. Reaching out, Aragon placed his right hand over her left. The stories about the heroes of old never mention that this is the price you pay when you grapple with the monsters of the dark and the monsters of the mind. 
keep thinking about the gardens of Tildari Hall, and I'm sure you will be fine. Arya permitted the contact between them to endure for almost a minute, a time not of heat or passion for Aragon, but rather of quiet companionship. He made no attempt to press his suit with her, for he cherished her trust more than anything besides his bond with Zephira, and he would sooner march into battle than endanger it. Then, with a slight lift of her arm, Arya let him know the moment had passed, and without complaint he withdrew his hand. Eager to lighten her burden however he could, Aragon glanced about the ground nearest him, and then murmured, so softly as to be inaudible, Loifissa. Guided by the power of the true name, he sifted through the earth by his feet until his fingers closed upon what he sought, a thin, papery disc half the size of his smallest fingernail. Holding his breath, he deposited it in his right palm, centering it over his gateway Ignazia with as much delicacy as he could muster. He reviewed what Oromis had taught him concerning the sort of spell he was about to cast to ensure he would not make a mistake, and then he began to sing after the fashion of the elves, smooth and flowing. Eldrinner Oloivissa Nuanen, Dotor Aberdeloi, Eldrinner Nen Ono Weonate Medesolus Untrinka, Eldrinner Unforta Onorfeon Vara, Weol Alarsion. Again and again, Aragon repeated the same four lines, directing them toward the brown flake in his hand. The flake trembled and then swelled and bulged, becoming spherical. White tendrils an inch or two long sprouted from the bottom of the peeling globe, tickling Aragon, while a thin green stem poked its way out of the tip, and at his urging, shot nearly a foot in the air. A single leaf, broad and flat, grew from the side of the stem. Then the tip of the stem thickened, drooped, and after a moment of seeming inactivity, split into five segments that expanded outward to reveal the waxy petals of a deep-throated lily. The flower was pale blue and shaped like a bell. When it reached its full size, Aragon released the magic and examined his handiwork. Singing plants into shape was a skill most every elf mastered at an early age, but it was one Aragon had practised only a few times, and he had been uncertain whether his efforts would meet with success. The spell had exacted a heavy toll from him. The lily required a surprising amount of energy to feed what was the equivalent of a year and a half of growth. Satisfied with what he had wrought, he handed the lily to Arya. It's not a white rose, but... He smiled and shrugged. You should not have, she said. But I am glad you did. She caressed the underside of the blossom and lifted it to smell. The lines on her face eased. For several minutes she admired the lily. Then she scooped a hole in the soil next to her and planted the bulb, pressing down the soil with the flat of her hand. She touched the petals again and kept glancing at the lily as she said, Thank you. Giving flowers is a custom both our races share, but we elves attach greater importance to the practice than do humans. 
it signifies all that is good, life, beauty, rebirth, friendship, and more. I explain so you understand how much this means to me. You did not know, but... I knew. Arya regarded him with a solemn countenance, as if to decide what he was about. Forgive me. That is twice now I have forgotten the extent of your education. I shall not make the mistake again. She repeated her thanks in the ancient language, and, joining her in her native tongue, Aragon replied that it was his pleasure, and he was happy she enjoyed his gift. He shivered, hungry despite the meal they had just eaten. Noticing, Arya said, You used too much of your strength. If you have any energy left in Arran, use it to steady yourself. It took Aragon a moment to remember that Arran was the name of Brom's ring, he had heard it uttered only once before, from Islanzadi on the day he arrived in Elasmira. My ring now, he told himself. I have to stop thinking of it as Brom's. He cast a critical gaze at the large sapphire that sparkled in its gold setting on his finger. I don't know if there is any energy in Arran. I've never stored any there myself, and I never checked if Brom had. Even as he spoke, he extended his consciousness toward the sapphire. The instant his mind came into contact with the gem, he felt the presence of a vast, swirling pool of energy. To his inner eye the sapphire thrummed with power. He wondered that it did not explode from the amount of force contained within the boundaries of its sharp-edged facets. After he used the energy to wash away his aches and pains and restore strength to his limbs, the treasure trove inside Aaron was hardly diminished. His skin tingling, Aragon severed his link with the gem. Delighted by his discovery and his sudden sense of well-being, he laughed out loud, then told Arya what he had found. Brom must have squirreled away every bit of energy he could spare the whole time he was hiding in Carvajal. He laughed again, marvelling. All those years! With what's in Arran, I could tear apart an entire castle with a single spell! He knew he would need it to keep the new rider safe when Sephira hatched, observed Arya. Also, I am sure Aaron was a way for him to protect himself if he had to fight a shade or some other similarly powerful opponent. It was not by accident that he managed to frustrate his enemies for the better part of a century. If I were you, I would save the energy he left you for your hour of greatest need, and I would add to it whenever I could. It is an incredibly valuable resource. You should not squander it. No, thought Aragon. That I will not. He twirled the ring around his finger, admiring how it gleamed in the firelight. Since Murtag stole Zarok, this Sephira's saddle and Snowfire are the only things I have of Brom. And even though the dwarves brought Snowfire from Dur, I rarely ride him nowadays. Aaron is really all I have to remember him by, my only legacy of him, my only inheritance. I wish he was still alive. I never had a chance to talk with him about Oromis, Murtag, my father. Oh, the list is endless. What would he have said about my feelings for Arya? Aragon snorted to himself. I know what he would have said. He would have berated me for being a love-struck fool and for wasting my energy on a hopeless cause. And he would have been right, too, I suppose. But, oh, how can I help it? 
She is the only woman I wish to be with. The fire cracked. A flurry of sparks flew upward. Aragon watched with half-closed eyes, contemplating Arya's revelations. Then his mind returned to a question that had been bothering him ever since the battle on the burning plains. Arya, do male dragons grow any faster than female dragons? No. Why do you ask? Because of Thorn. He's only a few months old, and yet he's already nearly as big as Sephira. I don't understand it. Picking a dry blade of grass, Arya began sketching in the loose soil, tracing the curved shapes of glyphs from the elves' script, the Liduan Cavadi. Most likely Galbatorix accelerated his growth so Thorn would be large enough to hold his own with Sephira. Ah, isn't that dangerous, though? Oramis told me that if he used magic to give me the strength, speed, and endurance and other skills I needed, I would not understand my new abilities as well as if I had gained them in the ordinary way, by hard work. He was right, too. Even now, the changes the dragons made to my body during the Agate Blodron still sometimes catch me by surprise. Arya nodded and continued sketching glyphs in the dirt. It is possible to reduce the undesirable side effects by certain spells, but it is a long and arduous process. If you wish to achieve true mastery of your body, it is still best to do so through normal means. The transformation Galbatorix has forced upon Thorn must be incredibly confusing for him. Thorn now has the body of a nearly grown dragon, and yet his mind is still that of a youngling. Aragon fingered the newly formed calluses on his knuckles. Do you also know why Murtag is so powerful? More powerful than I am? If I did, no doubt I would also understand how Galbatorix has managed to increase his own strength to such unnatural heights. But alas, I do not. But Oramis does, Aragon thought. Or at least the elf had hinted as much. However, he had yet to share the information with Aragon and Sephira. As soon as they were able to return to Duweldenvarden, Aragon intended to ask the elder rider for the truth of the matter. He has to tell us now. Because of our ignorance, Murtag defeated us, and he could have easily taken us to Galbatorix. Aragon almost mentioned Oromis's comments to Arya, but held his tongue, for he realized that Oromis would not have concealed such an important fact for over a hundred years unless secrecy was of the utmost importance. Arya signed a stop to the sentence she had been writing on the ground. Bending over, Aragon read, Adrift upon the sea of time, the lonely god wanders from shore to distant shore, upholding the laws of the stars above. What does it mean? I don't know, she said, and smoothed out the line with a sweep of her arm. Why is it? he asked, speaking slowly as he organized his thoughts that no one ever refers to the dragons of the Forsworn by name. We say Morzan's dragon or Kielandi's dragon, but we never actually name the dragon. Surely they were as important as their riders. I don't even remember seeing their names in the scrolls Oromis gave me, although they must have been there. Yes, I'm certain they were. But for some reason they don't stick in my head. Isn't that strange? Arya started to answer, but before she could do more than open her mouth, he said, For once I'm glad Sophia is not here. 
I'm ashamed I haven't noticed this before. Even you, Arya, and Oromis, and every other elf I've met, refuse to call them by name, as if they were dumb animals, undeserving of the honour. Do you do it on purpose? Is it because they were your enemies? Did none of your lessons speak of this? asked Arya. She seemed genuinely surprised. I think, he said, Glader mentioned something about it to Sephira, but I'm not exactly sure. I was in the middle of a backbend during the dance of Snake and Crane, so I wasn't really paying attention to what Sephira was doing. He laughed a little, embarrassed by his lapse, and feeling as if he had to explain himself. It got confusing at times. Oromus would be talking to me while I was listening to Sephira's thoughts while she and Glader communicated with their minds. What's worse, Glader rarely uses a recognisable language with Sephira. He tends to use images, smells and feelings rather than words. Instead of names, he sends impressions of the people and objects he means. Do you recall nothing of what he said, whether with words or not? Aragon hesitated. Only that it concerned a name that was no name or some such. I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. What he spoke of, said Arya, was Dunalmer Orboda, the banishing of the names. The banishing of the names? Touching her dry blade of grass to the ground, she resumed writing in the dirt. It is one of the most significant events that happened during the fighting between the riders and the Forsworn. When the dragons realized that thirteen of their own had betrayed them, that those thirteen were helping Galbatorix to eradicate the rest of their race, and that it was unlikely anyone could stop their rampage. The dragons grew so angry, every dragon not of the Forsworn combined their strength and wrought one of their inexplicable pieces of magic. Together they stripped the thirteen of their names. Awe crawled over Aragon. How is that possible? Did I not just say it was inexplicable? All we know is that after the dragons cast their spell, no one could utter the names of the thirteen. Those who remembered the names soon forgot them, and while you can read the names in scrolls and letters where they are recorded, and even copy them, if you look at only one glyph at a time, they are as gibberish. The dragons spared Janu-Vosk, Galbatorix's first dragon, for it was not his fault he was killed by Urgals, and also Shrukan, for he did not choose to serve Galbatorix, but was forced to by Galbatorix and Morzan. What a horrible fate to lose one's name, thought Aragon. He shivered. If there's one thing I've learned since becoming a rider, it's that you never, ever want to have a dragon for an enemy. What about their true names, he asked. Did they erase those as well? Arya nodded. True names, birth names, nicknames, family names, titles, everything. And as a result, the thirteen were reduced to little more than animals. No longer could they say, I like this, or I dislike that, or I have green scales, for to say that would be to name themselves. They could not even call themselves dragons. Word by word, the spell obliterated everything that defined them as thinking creatures, and the Forsworn had no choice but to watch in silent misery as their dragons descended into complete ignorance. The experience was so disturbing at least five of the thirteen, and several of the four sworn went mad as a result. 
Arya paused, considering the outline of a glyph, then rubbed it out and redrew it. The banishing of the names is the main reason so many people now believe that dragons were nothing more than animals to ride from one place to another. They wouldn't believe that if they had met Sephira, said Aragon. Arya smiled. No. With a flourish, she completed the latest sentence she had been working on. He tilted his head and sidled closer in order to decipher the glyphs she had inscribed. They read, The trickster, the riddler, the keeper of the balance, he of the many faces who finds life in death and who fears no evil, he who walks through doors. What prompted you to write this? The thought that many things are not what they appear. Dust billowed around her hand as she patted the ground, effacing the glyphs from the surface of the earth. Has anyone tried to guess Galbatorix's true name? Aragon asked. It seems as if that would be the fastest way to end this war. To be honest, I think it might be the only hope we have of vanquishing him in battle. Were you not being honest with me before? asked Arya, a gleam in her eyes. Her question forced him to chuckle. Of course not. It's just a figure of speech. And a poor one at that, she said. Unless you happen to be in the habit of lying. Aragon floundered for a moment, before he caught hold of his thread of speech again and could say, I know it would be hard to find Galbatorix's true name, but if all the elves and all the members of the Varden who know the ancient language searched for it, we could not help but succeed. Like a pale, sun-bleached pennant, the dry blade of grass hung from between Arya's left thumb and forefinger. It trembled in sympathy with each surge of blood through her veins. Pinching it at the top with her other hand, she tore the leaf in half lengthwise, then did the same with each of the resulting strips, quartering the leaf. Then she began to plate the strips, forming a stiff, braided rod. She said, Galbatorix's true name is no great secret. Three different elves, one a rider and two ordinary spellcasters, discovered it on their own and many years apart. They did, exclaimed Aragon. Unperturbed, Arya picked another blade of grass, tore it into strips, inserted the pieces into the gaps in her braided rod, and continued plating in a different direction. We can only speculate whether Galbatorix himself knows his true name. I am of the opinion that he does not, for whatever it is, his true name must be so terrible he could not go on living if he heard it. Unless he is so evil or so demented, the truth about his actions has no power to disturb him. Perhaps. Her nimble fingers flew so fast, twisting, braiding, weaving, that they were nearly invisible. She picked two more blades of grass. Either way, Galbatorix is certainly aware that he has a true name, like all creatures and things, and that it is a potential weakness. At some point before he embarked upon his campaign against the riders, he cast a spell that kills whoever uses his true name. And since we do not know exactly how this spell kills, we cannot shield ourselves from it. You see, then, why we have all but abandoned that line of inquiry. Oramis is one of the few who are brave enough to continue seeking out Galbatorix's name, albeit in a roundabout manner. With a pleased expression, she held out her hands, palms upward. Resting on them was an exquisite ship made of green and white grass. 
It was no more than four inches long, but so detailed. Aragon descried benches for rowers, tiny railings along the edge of the deck, and portholes the size of raspberry seeds. The curved prow was shaped somewhat like the head and neck of a rearing dragon. There was a single mast. It's beautiful, he said. Arya leaned forward and murmured, Flauga. She gently blew upon the ship, and it rose from her hands and sailed around the fire, and then, gathering speed, slanted upward and glided off into the sparkling depths of the night sky. How far will it go? Forever, she said. It takes the energy to stay aloft from the plants below. Wherever there are plants, it can fly. The idea bemused Aragon, but he also found it rather sad to think of the pretty grass ship wandering among the clouds for the rest of eternity, with none but birds for company. Imagine the stories people will tell about it in years to come. Arya knit her long fingers together, as if to keep them from making something else. Many such oddities exist in the world. The longer you live and the farther you travel, the more of them you will see. Aragon gazed at the pulsing fire for a while, then said, If it's so important to protect your true name, should I cast a spell to keep Galbatorix from using my true name against me? You can if you wish to, said Arya, but I doubt it's necessary. True names are not so easy to find as you think. Galbatorix does not know you well enough to guess your name, and if he were inside your mind and able to examine your every thought and memory, you would be already lost to him, true name or no. If it is any comfort, I doubt that even I could divine your true name. Couldn't you? he asked. He was both pleased and displeased that she believed any part of him was a mystery to her. She glanced at him, and then lowered her eyes. No, I do not think so. Could you guess mine? No. Silence enveloped their camp. Above, the stars gleamed cold and white. A wind sprang up from the east and raced across the plains, battering the grass and wailing with a long, thin voice, as if lamenting the loss of a loved one. As it struck, the coals burst into flame again, and a twisting mane of sparks trailed off to the west. Aragon hunched his shoulders and pulled the collar of his tunic close around his neck. There was something unfriendly about the wind. It bittered him with unusual ferocity, and it seemed to isolate him and Arya from the rest of the world. They sat motionless, marooned on their tiny island of light and heat, while the massive river of air rushed past, howling its angry sorrows into the empty expanse of land. When the gusts became more violent and began to carry the sparks farther away from the bare patch where Aragon had built the fire, Arya poured a handful of dirt over the wood. Moving forward onto his knees, Aragon joined her, scooping the dirt with both hands to speed the process. With the fire extinguished, he had difficulty seeing. The countryside had become a ghost of itself, full of writhing shadows, indistinct shapes, and silvery leaves. Arya made as if to stand, then stopped in a half-crouch, arms outstretched for balance, her expression alert. Aragon felt it as well. The air prickled and hummed as if a bolt of lightning were about to strike. The hair on the back of his hands rose from his skin and waved freely in the wind. What is it? he asked. We are being watched. 
Whatever happens, don't use magic or you may get us killed. Who? Shh. Casting about, he found a fist-sized rock, pried it out of the ground and hefted it, testing its weight. In the distance, a cluster of glowing, multicolored lights appeared. They darted toward the camp, flying low over the grass. As they drew near, he saw that the lights were constantly changing in size, ranging from an orb no larger than a pearl to one several feet in diameter, and that their colors also varied, cycling through every hue in the rainbow. A crackling nimbus surrounded each orb, a halo of liquid tendrils that whipped and lashed as if hungry to entangle something in their grasp. The lights moved so fast he could not determine exactly how many there were, but he guessed it was about two dozen. The lights hurtled into the camp and formed a whirling wall around him and Arya. The speed with which they spun, combined with the barrage of pulsing colours, made Aragon dizzy. He put a hand on the ground to steady himself. The humming was so loud now his teeth vibrated against one another. He tasted metal and his hair stood on end. Arya's did the same, despite its additional length, and when he glanced at her, he found the sight so ridiculous he had to resist the urge to laugh. What do they want? shouted Aragon, but she did not answer. A single orb detached itself from the wall and hung before Arya at eye level. It shrank and expanded like a throbbing heart alternating between royal blue and emerald green with occasional flashes of red. One of its tendrils caught hold of a strand of Arya's hair. There was a sharp pop, and for an instant the strand shone like a fragment of the sun. Then it vanished. The smell of burnt hair drifted toward Aragon. Arya did not flinch or otherwise betray alarm. Her face calm, she lifted an arm, and before Aragon could leap forward and stop her, laid her hand upon the lambent orb. The orb turned gold and white, and it swelled until it was over three feet across. Arya closed her eyes and tilted her head back, radiant joy suffusing her features. Her lips moved, but whatever she said, Aragon could not hear. When she finished, the orb flushed blood-red and then in quick succession shifted from red to green to purple to a ruddy orange to a blue so bright he had to avert his gaze, and then to pure black, fringed with a corona of twisting white tendrils, like the sun during an eclipse. Its appearance ceased to fluctuate then, as if only the absence of colour could adequately convey its mood. Drifting away from Arya, it approached Aragon a hole in the fabric of the world encircled by a crown of flames. It hovered in front of him, humming with such intensity his eyes watered. His tongue seemed plated with copper, his skin crawled, and short filaments of electricity danced on the tips of his fingers. Somewhat frightened, he wondered whether he should touch the orb as Arya had. He looked at her for advice. She nodded and gestured for him to proceed. He extended his right hand toward the void that was the orb. To his surprise, he encountered resistance. The orb was incorporeal, but it pushed against his hand the way a swift stream of water might. The closer he got, the harder it pushed. With an effort, he reached across the last few inches and came into contact with the center of the creature's being. Bluish rays shot out from between Aragon's palm and the surface of the orb, a dazzling, fan-like display that overwhelmed the light from the other orbs and bleached everything a pale blue-white. 
Aragon shouted with pain as the rays stabbed at his eyes, and he ducked his head, squinting. Then something moved inside the orb, like a sleeping dragon uncoiling, and a presence entered his mind, brushing aside his defences as if they were dry leaves in an autumn storm. He gasped. Transcendent joy filled him. Whatever the orb was, it seemed to be composed of distilled happiness. It enjoyed being alive, and everything around it pleased it to a greater or lesser degree. Aragon would have wept with sheer gladness, but he no longer had control of his body. The creature held him in place, the shimmering rays still blazing from underneath his hand, while it flitted through his bones and muscles, lingering at the sites where he had been injured, and then returned to his mind. Euphoric as Aragon was, the creature's presence was so strange and so unearthly, he wanted to flee from it, but inside his consciousness there was nowhere to hide. He had to remain in intimate contact with the fiery soul of the creature while it scoured his memories, dashing from one to the next with the speed of an elvish arrow. He wondered how it could comprehend so much information so quickly. While it searched, he tried to probe the orb's mind in return, to learn what he could about its nature and its origins but it defied his attempts to understand it. The few impressions he gleaned were so different from those he had found in the minds of other beings, they were incomprehensible. After a final, nearly instantaneous circuit through his body, the creature withdrew. The contact between them broke like a twisted cable under too much tension. The panoply of rays outlining Aragon's hand faded into oblivion, leaving behind lurid pink afterimages streaked across his field of vision. Again changing colours, the orb in front of Aragon shrank to the size of an apple and rejoined its companions in the swirling vortex of light that encircled him and Arya. The humming increased to an almost unbearable pitch, and then the vortex exploded outward as the blazing orb scattered in every direction. They regrouped a hundred feet or so from the dim camp, tumbling over each other like wrestling kittens, then raced off to the south and disappeared as if they had never existed in the first place. The wind subsided to a gentle breeze. Aragon fell to his knees, arm outstretched toward where the orbs had gone, feeling empty without the bliss they had given him. What? he asked, and then had to cough and start over again. His throat was so dry. What are they? Spirits, said Arya. She sat. They didn't look like the ones that came out of Durza when I killed him. Spirits can assume many different guises, dictated by their whim. He blinked several times and wiped the corners of his eyes with the back of a finger. How can anyone bear to enslave them with magic? It's monstrous. I would be ashamed to call myself a sorcerer. Gah! And Triana boasts of being one. I'll have her stop using spirits, or I'll expel her from Duvrangargata and ask Nasuada to banish her from the Varden. I would not be so hasty. Surely you don't think it's right for magicians to force spirits to obey their will. They are so beautiful that— He broke off and shook his head, overcome with emotion. Anyone who harms them ought to be thrashed within an inch of their life. With a hint of a smile, Arya said, I take it Oramis had yet to address the topic when you and Sephira left Elismira.
if you mean spirits, he mentioned them several times, but not in any great detail, I dare say. Perhaps not. In the darkness, the outline of her shape moved as she leaned to one side. Spirits always induce a sense of rapture when they choose to communicate with we who are made of matter, but do not allow them to deceive you. They are not as benevolent, content, or cheerful as they would have you believe. Pleasing those they interact with is their way of defending themselves. They hate to be bound in one place, and they realized long ago that if the person they are dealing with is happy, then he or she will be less likely to detain the spirits and keep them as servants. I don't know, said Aragon. They make you feel so good, I can understand why someone would want to keep them nearby instead of releasing them. Her shoulders rose and fell. Spirits have as much difficulty predicting our behavior as we do theirs. They share so little in common with the other races of Alagasia, conversing with them in even the simplest terms is a challenging prospect, and any meeting is fraught with peril, for one never knows how they will react. None of which explains why I shouldn't order Triana to abandon sorcery. Have you ever seen her summon spirits to do her bidding? No. I thought not. Triana has been with the Varden for nigh on six years, and in that time she has demonstrated her mastery of sorcery exactly once, and that after much coaxing on Arjihad's part and much consternation and preparation on Triana's. She has the necessary skills. She is no charlatan. But summoning spirits is exceedingly dangerous, and one does not embark upon it lightly. Aragon rubbed his shining palm with his left thumb. The hue of light changed as blood rushed to the surface of his skin, but his efforts did nothing to reduce the amount of light radiating from his hand. He scratched at the Gedway Ignazi with his fingernails. This had better not last more than a few hours. I can't go around shining like a lantern. It could get me killed. And it's silly, too. Who ever heard of a dragon rider with a glowing body part? Aragon considered what Brom had told him. They aren't human spirits, are they? Nor elf, nor dwarf, nor those of any other creature. That is, they aren't ghosts. We don't become them after we die. No, and please, do not ask me, as I know you are about to, what then they really are. It is a question for Oramis to answer, not me. The study of sorcery, if properly conducted, is long and arduous, and should be approached with care. I do not want to say anything that may interfere with the lessons Oramis has planned for you, and I certainly don't want you to hurt yourself trying something I mentioned when you lacked the proper instruction. And when am I supposed to return to Elasmira? he demanded. I can't leave the Varden again, not like this, not while Thorn and Murtag are still alive. Until we defeat the Empire, or the Empire defeats us, Sephira and I have to support Nasawada. If Oramis and Glader really want to finish our training, they should join us, and Galbatorix be blasted. Please, Aragon, she said, this war shall not end as quickly as you think. The Empire is large, and we have but pricked its hide. As long as Galbatorix does not know about Oramis and Glader, we have an advantage. Is it an advantage if they never make full use of themselves? He grumbled. She did not answer, 
and after a moment he felt childish for complaining. Oramis and Gleda wanted more than anyone else to destroy Galbatorix, and if they chose to bide their time in Elismira, it was because they had excellent reasons for doing so. Aragon could even name several of them, if he was so inclined, the most prominent being Oramis's inability to cast spells that required large amounts of energy. Cold, Aragon pulled his sleeves down over his hands and crossed his arms. What was it you said to the spirit? It was curious why we had been using magic. That was what brought us to their attention. I explained, and I also explained that you were the one who freed the spirits trapped inside of Durza. That seemed to please them a great deal. Silence crept between them, and then she sidled toward the lily and touched it again. Oh, she said, they were indeed grateful. Nana. At her command, a wash of soft light illuminated the camp. By it he saw that the leaf and stem of the lily were solid gold. The petals were a whitish metal he failed to recognize, and the heart of the flower, as Arya revealed by tilting the blossom upward, appeared to have been carved out of rubies and diamonds. Amazed, Aragon ran a finger over the curved leaf, the tiny wire hairs on it tickling him. Bending forward, he discerned the same collection of bumps, grooves, pits, veins, and other minute details with which he had adorned the original version of the plant. The only difference was they were now made of gold. It's a perfect copy, he said, and it is still alive. No. Concentrating, he searched for the faint signs of warmth and movement that would indicate the lily was more than an inanimate object. He located them, strong as they ever were in a plant during the night. Fingering the leaf again, he said, This is beyond everything I know of magic. By all rights, this lily ought to be dead. Instead, it is thriving. I cannot even imagine what would be involved in turning a plant into living metal. Perhaps Sephira could do it, but she would never be able to teach the spell to anyone else. The real question, said Arya, is whether this flower will produce seeds that are fertile. It could spread? I would not be surprised if it does. Numerous examples of self-perpetuating magic exist throughout Allegasia, such as the floating crystal on the island of Aom and the dream well in Mani's caves. This would be no more improbable than either of those phenomena. Unfortunately, if anyone discovers this flower or the offspring it may have, they will dig them all up. Every fortune hunter in the land would come here to pick the golden lilies. They will not be so easy to destroy, I think, but only time will tell for sure. A laugh bubbled up inside of Aragon. With barely contained glee, he said, I've heard the expression to gild the lily before, but the spirits actually did it. They gilded the lily. And he fell to laughing, letting his voice boom across the empty plain. Arya's lips twitched. Well, their intentions were noble. We cannot fault them for being ignorant of human sayings. No, but... Oh, ha, ha, ha. Arya snapped her fingers and the wash of light faded into oblivion. We have talked away most of the night. 
It is time we rested. Dawn is fast approaching, and we must depart soon thereafter. Aragorn stretched himself out on a rock-free expanse of the ground, still chuckling as he drifted into his waking dreams. Amid the Restless Crowd It was mid-afternoon when the Varden finally came into sight. Aragorn and Arya stopped on the crest of a low hill and studied the sprawling city of grey tents that lay before them, teeming as it was with thousands of men, horses, and smoking cookfires. To the west of the tents there wound the tree-lined Jeet River. Half a mile to the east was a second smaller camp, like an island floating close off the shore of its mother continent, where the Urgles led by Nargajvog resided. Ranging for several miles around the perimeter of the Varden were numerous groups of horsemen. Some were riding patrol, others were banner-carrying messengers, and others were raiding parties, either setting out on or returning from a mission. Two of the patrols spotted Aragon and Arya, and after sounding signal horns, galloped toward them with all possible speed. A broad smile stretched Aragon's face, and he laughed, relieved. We made it, he exclaimed. Murtag, Thorn, hundreds of soldiers, Galbatorix's pet magicians, the Razak, none of them could catch us. Ha! How's that for taunting the king? This'll tweak his beard for sure when he hears of it. He will be twice as dangerous then, warned Arya. I know, he said, grinning even wider. Maybe he'll get so angry he'll forget to pay his troops and they will all throw away their uniforms and join the Varden. You are in fine fettle today. And why shouldn't I be? he demanded. Bouncing on the tips of his toes, he opened his mind as wide as he could, and gathering his strength, shouted, Sapphira! Sending the thought flying over the countryside like a spear. A response was not long in coming. Aragon! They embraced with their minds, smothering each other with warm waves of love, joy, and concern. They exchanged memories of their time apart, and Sephira comforted Aragon over the soldiers he had killed, drawing off the pain and anger that had accumulated within him since the incident. He smiled. With Sephira so close, everything seemed right in the world. I missed you, he said. And I you, little one. Then she sent him an image of the soldiers he and Arya had fought and said, Without fail, every time I leave you, you get yourself in trouble. Every time. I hate to so much as turn tail on you, for fear you will be locked in mortal combat the moment I take my eyes off you. Be fair. I've gotten into plenty of trouble when I'm with you. It's not something that just happens when I'm alone. We seem to be lodestones for unexpected events. No, you are a lodestone for unexpected events, she sniffed. Nothing out of the ordinary ever occurs to me when I'm by myself. But you attract duels, ambushes, immortal enemies, obscure creatures such as the Razak, long-lost family members, and mysterious acts of magic 
as if they were starving weasels and you were a rabbit that wandered into their den. What about the time you spent as Galbatorix his possession? Was that an ordinary event? I had not hatched yet, she said. You cannot count that. The difference between you and me is that things happen to you, whereas I cause things to happen. Maybe, but that's because I'm still learning. Give me a few years and I'll be as good as Brom at getting things done, eh? You can't say I didn't seize the initiative with Sloane. Hmm, we still have to talk about that. If you ever surprise me like that again, I will pin you on the ground and lick you from head to toe. Eragon shivered. Her tongue was covered with hooked barbs that could strip hair, hide and meat off a deer with a single swipe. I know, but I wasn't sure myself whether I was going to kill Sloane or let him go free until I was standing in front of him. Besides, if I had told you I was going to stay behind, you would have insisted on stopping me. He sensed a faint growl as it rumbled through her chest. She said, You should have trusted me to do the right thing. If we cannot talk openly, how are we supposed to function as dragon and rider? Would doing the right thing have involved taking me from Hellgrind, regardless of my wishes? It might not have, she said, with a hint of defensiveness. He smiled. You're right, though. I should have discussed my plan with you. I'm sorry. From now on, I promise I will consult with you before I do anything you don't expect. Is that acceptable? Only if it involves weapons, magic, kings, or family members, she said. Or flowers. Or flowers, she agreed. I don't need to know if you decide to eat some bread and cheese in the middle of the night. Unless a man with a very long knife is waiting for me outside of my tent. If you could not defeat a single man with a very long knife, you would be a poor excuse for a rider indeed. Not to mention dead. Well? By your own argument, you should take comfort in the fact that while I may attract more trouble than most people, I am perfectly capable of escaping from situations that would kill most anyone else. Even the greatest warriors can fall prey to bad luck, she said. Remember the dwarf king Kaga, who was killed by a novice swordsman, Swords Dwarf, when he tripped on a rock. You should always remain cautious, for no matter your skills, you cannot anticipate and prevent every misfortune fate directs your way. Agreed. Now can we please abandon such weighty conversation? I have become thoroughly exhausted with thoughts of fate, destiny, justice, and other equally gloomy topics over the past few days. As far as I am concerned, philosophic questioning is just as likely to make you confused and depressed as it is to improve your condition. Swiveling his head, Aragon surveyed the plain and sky, searching for the distinctive blue glitter of Sephira's scales. Where are you? I can feel you are nearby. But I can't see you. Right above you!
With a bugle of joy, Sephira dove out of the belly of a cloud several thousand feet overhead, spiraling toward the ground with her wings tucked close to her body. Opening her fearsome jaws, she released a billow of fire which streamed back over her head and neck like a burning mane. Aragon laughed and held his arms outstretched to her. The horses of the patrol galloping toward him and Arya shied at the sight and sound of Sephira and bolted in the opposite direction while their riders frantically tried to rein them in. I had hoped we could enter the camp without attracting undue attention, Arya said, but I suppose I should have realized we could not be unobtrusive with Sephira around. A dragon is hard to ignore. I heard that, said Sephira, spreading her wings and landing with a thunderous crash. Her massive thighs and shoulders rippled as she absorbed the force of the impact. A blast of air struck Aragon's face, and the earth shuddered underneath him. He flexed his knees to maintain his balance. Folding her wings so they lay flat upon her back, she said, I can be stealthy if I want. Then she cocked her head and blinked, the tip of her tail whipping from side to side. But I don't want to be stealthy today. Today I am a dragon not a frightened pigeon trying to avoid being seen by a hunting falcon. When are you not a dragon? asked Aragon as he ran toward her. Light as a feather, he leaped from her left foreleg to her shoulder and thence to the hollow at the base of her neck that was his usual seat. Settling into place, he put his hands on either side of her warm neck, feeling the rise and fall of her banded muscles as she breathed. He smiled again, with a profound sense of contentment. This is where I belong, here with you. His legs vibrated as Sephira hummed with satisfaction, her deep rumbling following a strange, subtle melody he did not recognize. Greetings, Sephira, said Arya, and twisted her hand over her chest in the elves' gesture of respect. Crouching low, and bending her long neck, Sephira touched Arya upon the brow with the tip of her snout, as she had when she blessed Elva in Farthandur, and said, Greetings, Alpha Kona. Welcome, and may the wind rise under your wings. She spoke to Arya with the same tone of affection that until then she had reserved for Aragon, as if she now considered Arya part of their small family and worthy of the same regard and intimacy as they shared. Her gesture surprised Aragon, but after an initial flare of jealousy, he approved. Sephira continued speaking. I am grateful to you for helping Aragon to return without harm. If he had been captured, I do not know what I would have done. Your gratitude means much to me, said Arya, and bowed. As for what you would have done if Galbatorix had seized Aragon, why, you would have rescued him, and I would have accompanied you, even if it was to Urubain itself. Yes, I like to think I would have rescued you, Aragon, said Sephira, turning her neck to look at him. But I worried that I would have surrendered to the Empire in order to save you, no matter the consequences for Alagazia. Then she shook her head and kneaded the soil with her claws. Ah, these are pointless meanderings. You are here and safe, 
and that is the true shape of the world. To while away the day contemplating evils that might have been is to poison the happiness we already have. At that moment a patrol galloped toward them, and halting thirty yards away because of their nervous horses, asked if they might escort the three to Nasawada. One of the men dismounted and gave his steed to Arya, and then, as a group, they advanced toward the Sea of Tents to the southwest. Sephira set the pace, a leisurely crawl that allowed her and Aragon to enjoy the pleasure of each other's company, before they immersed themselves in the noise and chaos that were sure to assault them once they neared the camp. Aragon inquired after Roran and Katrina, then said, Have you been eating enough fireweed? Your breath seems stronger than usual. Of course I have. You only notice it because you have been gone for many days. I smell exactly as a dragon should smell, and I'll thank you not to make disparaging comments about it, unless you want me to drop you on your head. Besides, you humans have nothing to brag about, sweaty, greasy, pungent things that you are. The only creatures in the wild as smelly as humans are male goats and hibernating bears. Compared to you, the scent of a dragon is a perfume as delightful as a meadow of mountain flowers. Come now, don't exaggerate. Although, he said, wrinkling his nose, since the Agate Blodrin, I have noticed that humans tend to be rather smelly. But you cannot lump me in with the rest, for I am no longer entirely human. Perhaps not, but you still need a bath. As they crossed the plain, more and more men congregated around Aragon and Sephira, providing them with a wholly unnecessary but very impressive honour guard. After so long spent in the wilds of Alagasia, the dense press of bodies, the cacophony of high, excited voices, the storm of unguarded thoughts and emotions and the confused motion of flailing arms and prancing horses were overwhelming for Aragon. He retreated deep within himself, where the discordant mental chorus was no louder than the distant thunder of crashing waves. Even through the layers of barriers he sensed the approach of twelve elves, running in formation from the other side of the camp, swift and lean as yellow-eyed mountain cats. Wanting to make a favourable impression, Aragon combed his hair with his fingers and squared his shoulders. But he also tightened the armour around his consciousness so that no one but Sephira could hear his thoughts. The elves had come to protect him and Sephira, but ultimately their allegiance belonged to Queen Islanzadi. While he was grateful for their presence, and he doubted their inherent politeness would allow them to eavesdrop on him, he did not want to provide the Queen of the Elves with any opportunity to learn the secrets of the Varden, nor to gain a hold over him. If she could wrest him away from Nasawada, he knew she would. On the whole, the Elves did not trust humans, not after Galbatorix's betrayal, and for that and other reasons he was sure Islanzadi would prefer to have him and Sephira under her direct command. And of the potentates he had met, he trusted Islanzadi the least. She was too imperious and too erratic. The twelve elves halted before Sephira. They bowed and twisted their hands as Arya had done, and one by one introduced themselves to Aragon, 
with the initial phrase of the elves' traditional greeting, to which he replied with the appropriate lines. Then the lead elf, a tall, handsome male, with glossy blue-black fur covering his entire body, proclaimed the purpose of their mission to everyone within earshot, and formally asked Aragon and Sephira if the twelve might assume their duties. You may, said Aragon. You may, said Sephira. Then Aragon asked, Blodgarm Voda, did I perchance see you at the Agate Blodron? For he remembered watching an elf with a similar pelt gambling among the trees during the festivities. Blodgarm smiled, exposing the fangs of an animal. I believe you met my cousin, Leotha. We share a most striking family resemblance, although her fur is brown and flecked, whereas mine is dark blue. I would have sworn it was you. Unfortunately, I was otherwise engaged at the time and was unable to attend the celebration. Perhaps I shall have the opportunity when next the occasion occurs, a hundred years from now. Would you not agree, Sephira said to Aragon, that he has a pleasant aroma? Aragon sniffed the air. I don't smell anything, and I would if there was anything to smell. That's odd. She provided him then with the range of odours she had detected, and at once he realised what she meant. Blodgarm's musk surrounded him like a cloud, thick and heady, a warm, smoky scent that contained hints of crushed juniper berries and that set Sephira's nostrils to tingling. All the women in the Varden seem to have fallen in love with him, she said. They stalk him wherever he goes, desperate to talk with him but too shy to utter so much as a squeak when he looks at them. Maybe only females can smell him. He cast a concerned glance at Arya. She does not seem to be affected. She has protection against magical influences. I hope so. Do you think we should put a stop to Blodgarm? What he is doing is a sneaky, underhanded way of gaining a woman's heart. Is it any more underhanded than adorning yourself with fine clothing to catch the eye of your beloved? Blodgarm has not taken advantage of the women who are fascinated by him, and it seems improbable that he would have composed the notes of his scent to appeal specifically to human women. Rather, I would guess it is an unintended consequence, and that he created it to serve another purpose altogether. Unless he discards all semblance of decency, I think we should refrain from interfering. What about Nasawada? Is she vulnerable to his charms? Nasawada is wise and wary. She had Triana place a ward around her that protects her against Blodgarm's influence. Good. When they arrived at the tents, the crowd swelled in size until half the Varden appeared to be gathered around Sephira. Aragon raised his hand in response as people shouted, Ajatlam! and Shade Slayer! And he heard others say, Where have you been, Shade Slayer? Tell us of your adventures! A fair number referred to him as the Bane of the Razak, which he found so immensely satisfying he repeated the phrase four times to himself under his breath.
People also shouted blessings upon his health, and Sapphira's too, and invitations to dine, and offers of gold and jewellery, and piteous requests for aid. Would he please heal a son who had been born blind? Or would he remove a growth that was killing a man's wife? Or would he fix a horse's broken leg or repair a bent sword? For as the man bellowed, It was my grandfather's! Twice a woman's voice cried out, Shade Slayer, will you marry me? And while he looked, he was unable to identify the source. Throughout the commotion, the twelve elves hovered close. The knowledge that they were watching for that which he could not see, and listening for that which he could not hear, was a comfort to Aragon, and allowed him to interact with the massed Varden with an ease that had escaped him in the past. Then from between the curving rows of woollen tents, the former villagers of Carvajal began to appear. Dismounting, Aragon walked among the friends and acquaintances of his childhood, shaking hands, slapping shoulders, and laughing at jokes that would be incomprehensible to anyone who had not grown up around Carvajal. Horst was there, and Aragon grasped the smith's brawny forearm. Welcome back, Aragon. Well done. We're in your debt for avenging us on the monsters that drove us from our homes. I'm glad to see you're still in one piece, eh? The Razak would have had to move a sight faster to chop any parts off me, said Aragon. Then he found himself greeting Horst's sons, Albrecht and Baldor, and then Loring the shoemaker and his three sons, Tara and Morn, who had owned Carvajal's tavern, Fisk, Felder, Calitha, Delwyn and Lena, and then fierce-eyed Burgett, who said, I thank you, Aragon, son of Nun. I thank you for ensuring that the creatures who ate my husband were properly punished. My heart is yours, now and forever. Before Aragon could respond, the crowd swept them apart. Son of Nun? he thought. Ah, I have a father, and everyone hates him. Then, to his delight, Roran shouldered his way out of the throng, Katrina beside him. He and Roran embraced, and Roran growled, That was a fool thing to do, staying behind. I ought to knock your block off for abandoning us like that. Next time, give me advance warning before you traipse off on your own. It's getting to be a habit with you, and you should have seen how upset Sephira was on the flight back. Eragon put a hand on Sephira's left foreleg and said, I'm sorry I could not tell you beforehand that I planned to stay, but I did not realize it was necessary until the very last moment. And why was it exactly you remained in those foul caverns? Because there was something I had to investigate. When he failed to expand upon his answer, Roran's broad face hardened, and for a moment Eragon feared he would insist upon a more satisfactory explanation. But then Roran said, Well, what hope has an ordinary man like myself of understanding the whys and wherefores of a dragon rider, even if he is my cousin? All that matters is that you helped free Katrina, and you are here now, safe and sound. He craned his neck as if he were trying to see what lay on top of Sephira. Then he looked at Arya, who was several yards behind them, and said, You lost my staff? I crossed the entire breadth of Alagazia with that staff. Couldn't you manage to hold on to it for more than a few days? 
It went to a man who needed it more than I, said Aragon. Oh, stop nipping at him, Katrina said to Roran, and after a moment's hesitation she hugged Aragon. He is really very glad to see you, you know. He just has difficulty finding the words to say it. With a sheepish grin, Roran shrugged. She's right about me, as always. The two of them exchanged a loving glance. Aragon studied Katrina closely. Her copper hair had regained its original luster, and for the most part the marks left by her ordeal had faded away, although she was still thinner and paler than normal. Moving closer to him, so none of the Varden clustered around them could overhear, she said, I never thought that I would owe you so much, Aragon, that we would owe you so much. Since Sephira brought us here, I have learned what you risked to rescue me, and I am most grateful. If I had spent another week in Hellgrind, it would have killed me, or stripped me of reason, which is a living death. For saving me from that fate and for repairing Roran's shoulder, you have my utmost thanks. But more than that, you have my thanks for bringing the two of us back together again. If not for you, we never would have been reunited. Somehow I think Roran would have found a way to extricate you from Hellgrind, even without me, commented Aragon. He has a silver tongue when roused. He would have convinced another spellcaster to help him, Angela the Herbalist, perhaps, and he would have succeeded all the same. Angela the Herbalist, scoffed Roran. That prating girl would have been no match for the Razak. You would be surprised. She's more than she appears, or sounds. Then Aragon dared to do something that he never would have attempted when he was living in Palancar Valley, but that he felt was appropriate in his role as a rider. He kissed Katrina upon her brow, and then he kissed Roran upon his, and he said, Roran, you are as a brother to me, and Katrina, you are as a sister to me. If ever you are in trouble, send for me. And whether you need Aragon the farmer or Aragon the rider, everything I am shall be at your disposal. And likewise, said Roran, if ever you are in trouble, you have but to send for us, and we shall rush to your aid. Aragon nodded, acknowledging his offer, and refrained from mentioning that the troubles he was most likely to encounter would not be of a sort either of them could assist him with. He gripped them both by the shoulders and said, May you live long, may you always be together and happy, and may you have many children. Katrina's smile faltered for a moment, and Aragon wondered at it. At Sephira's urging, they resumed walking toward Nasawada's red pavilion in the centre of the encampment. In due time, they and the host of cheering Varden arrived at its threshold, where Nasawada stood waiting, King Orin to her left, and scores of nobles and other notables gathered behind a double row of guards on either side. Nasawada was garbed in a green silk dress that shimmered in the sun, like the feathers on the breast of a hummingbird, in bright contrast to the sable shade of her skin. The sleeves of the dress ended in lace ruffs at her elbows. White linen bandages covered the rest of her arms to her narrow wrists, of all the men and women assembled before her, she was the most distinguished, like an emerald 
resting on a bed of brown autumn leaves. Only Sephira could compete with the brilliance of her appearance. Eragon and Arya presented themselves to Nasawada and then to King Orin. Nasawada gave them formal welcome on behalf of the Varden and praised them for their bravery. She finished by saying, Ay, Galbatorix may have a rider and dragon who fight for him even as Eragon and Sephira fight for us. He may have an army so large that it darkens the land, and he may be adept at strange and terrible magics, abominations of the spellcaster's art. But for all his wicked power, he could not stop Eragon and Sephira from invading his realm and killing four of his most favoured servants, nor Eragon from crossing the empire with impunity. The pretender's arm has grown weak indeed when he cannot defend his borders, nor protect his foul agents within their hidden fortress. Amid the Varden's enthusiastic cheering, Eragon allowed himself a secret smile at how well Nasuada played upon their emotions, inspiring confidence, loyalty, and high spirits, in spite of a reality that was far less optimistic than she portrayed it. She did not lie to them. To his knowledge, she did not lie, not even when dealing with the Council of Elders or other of her political rivals. What she did was report the truths that best supported her position and her arguments. In that regard, he thought, she was like the elves. When the Varden's outpouring of excitement had subsided, King Orin greeted Eragon and Arya as Nasawada had. His delivery was stayed compared with hers, and while the crowd listened politely and applauded afterward, it was obvious to Eragon that however much the people respected Orin, they did not love him as they loved Nasawada, nor could he fire their imagination as Nasawada fired it. The smooth-faced king was gifted with a superior intellect, but his personality was too rarefied, too eccentric, and too subdued for him to be a receptacle for the desperate hopes of the humans that opposed Galbatorix. If we overthrow Galbatorix, Eragon said to Sephira, Orin should not replace him in Urubane. He would not be able to unite the land as Nasawada has united the Varden. Agreed. At length, King Orin concluded. Nasawada whispered to Eragon, Now it is your turn to address those who have assembled to catch a glimpse of the renowned dragon rider. Her eyes twinkled with suppressed merriment. Me? It is expected. Then Eragon turned and faced the multitude, his tongue dry as sand. His mind was blank, and for a handful of panic-stricken seconds he thought the use of language would continue to elude him, and he would embarrass himself in front of the entire Varden. Somewhere a horse nickered, but otherwise the camp seemed frightfully quiet. It was Sephira who broke his paralysis by nudging his elbow with her snout and saying, Tell them how honoured you are to have their support, and how happy you are to be back among them. With her encouragement, he managed to find a few fumbling words, and then, as soon as it was acceptable, he bowed and retreated a step. Forcing a smile, while the Varden clapped and cheered and beat their swords against their shields, he exclaimed, That was horrible. I would rather fight a shade than do that again. Really? 
It was not that hard, Aragon. Yes, it was. A puff of smoke drifted up from her nostrils as she snorted with amusement. A fine dragon rider you are, afraid of talking to a large group. If only Galbatorix knew, he could have you at his mercy if he but asked you to make a speech to his troops. Ha! It's not funny, he grumbled, but she still continued to chuckle. To answer a king. After Aragon gave his address to the Varden, Nasuada gestured, and Jormunda leaped to her side. Have everyone here returned to their posts. If we were attacked now, we would be overwhelmed. Yes, my lady. Beckoning to Aragon and Arya, Nasuada placed her left hand on King Orin's arm, and with him entered the pavilion. What about you? Aragon asked Sephira as he followed. Then he stepped inside the pavilion and saw that a panel at the back had been rolled up and tied to the wooden frame above, so that Sephira might insert her head and participate in the goings-on. He had to wait but a moment, before her glittering head and neck swung into view around the edge of the opening, darkening the interior as she settled into place. Purple flecks of light adorned the walls, projected by her blue scales onto the red fabric. Aragon examined the rest of the tent. It was barren compared with when he had last visited. A result of the destruction Sephira had caused when she crawled into the pavilion to see Aragon in Nasuada's mirror. With only four pieces of furniture, the tent was austere even by military standards. There was the polished, high-backed chair where Nasuada was sitting, King Orin standing next to her. The self-same mirror, which was mounted at eye level on a carved brass pole, a folding chair, and a low table strewn with maps and other documents of import. An intricately knotted dwarf rug covered the ground. Besides Arya and himself, a score of people were already gathered before Nasuada. They were all looking at him. Among them he recognized Nahim, the current commander of the dwarf troops. Triana and other spellcasters from Duvrangargata, Sabre, Umarth, and the rest of the Council of Elders save for Jormunda, and a random assortment of nobles and functionaries from King Orin's court. Those who were strangers to him, he assumed also held positions of distinction in one of the many factions that made up the Varden's army. Six of Nasawada's guards were present, two stationed by the entrance and four behind Nasawada, and Aragon detected the convoluted pattern of Elva's dark and twisted thoughts from where the witch-child was hidden at the far end of the pavilion. Aragon, said Nasawada, you have not met before, but let me introduce Sagabato no Inapashuna Fadawa, chief of the Inapashuna tribe. He is a brave man. For the next hour Aragon endured what seemed like an endless procession of introductions, congratulations, and questions that he could not answer forthrightly without revealing secrets that were better left unsaid. When all of the guests had conversed with him, Nasawada bade them take their leave. As they filed out of the pavilion, she clapped her hands and the guards outside ushered in a second group, and then, when the second group had enjoyed the dubious fruits of their visitation with him, a third. Aragon smiled the whole while. 
He shook hand after hand. He exchanged meaningless pleasantries and strove to memorize the plethora of names and titles that besieged him and otherwise acted with perfect civility the role he was expected to play. He knew that they honored him not because he was their friend, but because of the chance of victory he embodied for the free peoples of Alagasia, because of his power, and because of what they hoped to gain by him. In his heart he howled with frustration and longed to break free of the stifling constraints of good manners and polite conduct, and to climb on Sephira and fly away to somewhere peaceful. The one part of the process Aragon enjoyed was watching how the supplicants reacted to the two Urgals who loomed behind Nasawada's chair. Some pretended to ignore the horned warriors, although from the quickness of their motions and the shrill tones of their voices, Aragon could tell that the creatures unnerved them, while others glared at the Urgals and kept their hands on the pommels of their swords or daggers, and still others affected a false bravado and belittled the Urgals' notorious strength and boasted of their own. Only a few people truly seemed unaffected by the sight of the Urgals. Foremost among them was Nasawada, but their number also included King Orin, Triana, and an earl who said he had seen Morzan and his dragon lay waste to an entire town when he had been but a boy. When Aragon could bear no more, Sephira swelled her chest and released a low, humming growl, so deep that it shook the mirror in its frame. The pavilion became as silent as a tomb. Her growl was not overtly threatening, but it captured everyone's attention and proclaimed her impatience with the proceedings. None of the guests were foolish enough to test her forbearance. With hurried excuses they gathered their things and filed out of the pavilion, quickening their pace when Sephira tapped the tips of her claws against the ground. Nasawada sighed as the entrance flap swung closed behind the last visitor. Thank you, Sephira. I am sorry that I had to subject you to the misery of public presentation, Aragon. But as I am sure you are aware, you occupy an exalted position among the Varden, and I cannot keep you to myself any more. You belong to the people now. They demand that you recognize them, and that you give them what they consider their rightful share of your time. Neither you nor Orin nor I can refuse the wishes of the crowd. Even Galbatorix, in his dark seat of power at Urubain, fears the fickle crowd, although he may deny it to everyone, including himself. With the guests departed, King Orin abandoned the guise of royal decorum. His stern expression relaxed into one of more human relief, irritation, and ferocious curiosity. Rolling his shoulders beneath his stiff robes, he looked at Nasawada and said, I do not think we require your nighthawks to wait on us any longer. Agreed. Nasawada clapped her hands, dismissing the six guards from the inside of the tent. Dragging the spare chair over to Nasawada's, King Orin seated himself in a tangle of sprawling limbs and billowing fabric. Now, he said, switching his gaze between Aragon and Arya, let us have a full account of your doings, Aragon Shadeslayer. I have heard only vague explanations for why you chose to delay at Hellgrind, 
and I've had my fill of evasions and deceptive answers. I am determined to know the truth of the matter, so I warn you, do not attempt to conceal what actually transpired while you were in the Empire. Until I am satisfied you have told me everything there is to tell, none of us shall so much as step outside of this tent. Her voice cold. Nasawada said, You assume too much, Your Majesty. You do not have the authority to bind me in place, nor Aragon, who is my vassal, nor Sephira, nor Arya, who answers to no mortal lord, but rather to one more powerful than the two of us combined. Nor do we have the authority to bind you. The five of us are as close to equals as any of us is likely to find in Alagasia. You would do well to remember that. King Orin's response was equally flinty. Do I exceed the bounds of my sovereignty? Well, perhaps I do. You are right. I have no hold over you. However, if we are equals, I have yet to see evidence of it in your treatment of me. Eragon answers to you, and only you. By the trial of the Long Knives, you have gained dominion over the wandering tribes, many of which I have long counted among my subjects. And you command as you will both the Varden and the men of Serda, who have long served my family with bravery and determination beyond that of ordinary men. It was you yourself who asked me to orchestrate this campaign said Nasawada. I have not deposed you. Aye, it was at my request you assumed command of our disparate forces. I am not ashamed to admit you have had more experience and success than I in waging war. Our prospects are too precarious for you, me, or any of us to indulge in false pride. However, since your investiture, you seem to have forgotten that I am still the king of Serda and we of the Langfeld family can trace our line back to Thanebrand the Ringgiver himself, he who succeeded old mad Palankar, and who was the first of our race to sit on the throne in what is now Urubain. Considering our heritage and the assistance the House of Langfeld has rendered you in this cause, it is insulting of you to ignore the rights of my office. You act as if yours was the only verdict of moment, and the opinions of others are of no account. To be trampled over in pursuit of whatever goal you have already determined is best for the portion of free humanity that is fortunate enough to have you as their leader. You negotiate treaties and alliances such as that with the Urgles of your own initiative, and expect me and others to abide by your decisions as if you speak for us all. You arrange preemptive visits of state such as that with Blodgarm Voder, and do not trouble to alert me of his arrival, nor wait for me to join you so we might greet his embassy together as equals. And when I have the temerity to ask why Eragon, the man whose very existence is the reason I have staked my country in this venture, when I have the temerity to ask why this all-important person has elected to endanger the lives of Surdens and those of every creature who opposes Galbatorix by tarrying in the midst of our enemies. How is it you respond? By treating me as if I were no more than an overzealous, over-inquisitive underling whose childish concerns distracted you from more pressing matters. Bah! 
I will not have it, I tell you. If you cannot bring yourself to respect my station and to accept a fair division of responsibility as two allies ought to, then it is my opinion that you are unfit to command a coalition such as ours, and I shall set myself against you, however I may. What a long-winded fellow, Sephira observed. Alarmed by the direction the conversation had taken, Aragon said, What should I do? I had not intended to tell anyone else about Sloane except for Nasawada. The fewer people who know he's alive, the better. A flickering sea-blue shimmer ran from the base of Sephira's head to the crest of her shoulders, as the tips of the sharp, diamond-shaped scales along the sides of her neck rose a fraction of an inch from the underlying skin. The jagged layers of projecting scales gave her a fierce, ruffled appearance. I cannot tell you what is best, Aragon. In this, you must rely upon your own judgment. Listen closely to what your heart says, and perhaps it will become clear how to win free of these treacherous downdrafts. In response to King Orin's sally, Nasawada clasped her hands in her lap, her bandages startling white against the green of her dress, and in a calm, even voice said, If I have slighted you, sire, then it was due to my own hasty carelessness, and not to any desire on my part to diminish you or your house. Please forgive my lapses. They shall not happen again, that I promise you. As you have pointed out, I have but recently ascended to this post, and I have yet to master all of the accompanying niceties. Orin inclined his head in a cool but gracious acceptance of her words. As for Aragon and his activities in the Empire, I could not have provided you with specific details, for I have had no further intelligence myself. It was not, as I am sure you can appreciate, a situation that I wished to advertise. No, of course not. Therefore it seems to me that the swiftest cure for the dispute that afflicts us is to allow Aragon to lay bare the facts of his trip, that we may apprehend the full scope of this event and render judgment upon it. Of its own, that is not a cure, said King Orin, but it is the beginning of a cure, and I will gladly listen. Then let us tarry no longer, said Nasawada. Let us begin this beginning and have done with our suspense. Aragon, it is time for your tale. With Nasawada and the others gazing at him with wondering eyes, Aragon made his choice. Lifting his chin, he said, What I tell you, I tell you in confidence. I know I cannot expect either you, King Orin, or you, Lady Nasawada, to swear that you will keep this secret bound within your hearts from now until the day you die, but I beg you to act as if you had. It could cause a great deal of grief if this knowledge were to be whispered in the wrong ears. A king does not remain king for long, unless he appreciates the value of silence, said Orin. Without further ado, Aragon described everything that had happened to him in Helgrind and in the days that had followed. Afterward, Arya explained how she had gone about locating Aragon and then corroborated his account of their travels, 
by providing several facts and observations of her own. When they had both said their fill, the pavilion was quiet, as Orin and Nasawada sat motionless upon their chairs. Eragon felt as if he were a child again, waiting for Garrow to tell him what his punishment would be for doing something foolish on their farm. Orin and Nasawada remained lost deep in reflection for several minutes. Then Nasawada smoothed the front of her dress and said, King Orin may be of a different opinion, and if so, I look forward to hearing his reasons. But for my part, I believe that you did the right thing, Eragon. As do I, said Orin, surprising them all. You do? exclaimed Eragon. He hesitated. I don't mean to sound impertinent, for I'm glad you approve. But I didn't expect you to look kindly upon my decision to spare Sloane's life. If I may ask, why? King Orin interrupted. Why do we approve? The rule of law must be upheld. If you had appointed yourself Sloane's executioner, Eragon, you would have taken for yourself the power that Nasawada and I wield. For he who has the audacity to determine who should live and who should die no longer serves the law, but dictates the law. And however benevolent you might be, that would be no good thing for our species. Nasuada and I at least answer to the one lord even kings must kneel before. We answer to Angvard in his realm of eternal twilight. We answer to the grey man on his grey horse, death. We could be the worst tyrants in the whole of history, and given enough time, Angvard would bring us to heel. But not you. Humans are a short-lived race, and we should not be governed by one of the undying. We do not need another Galbatorix. A strange laugh escaped from Orin then, and his mouth twisted in a humorless smile. Do you understand, Eragon? You are so dangerous. We are forced to acknowledge the danger to your face and hope that you are one of the few people able to resist the lure of power. King Orin laced his fingers together underneath his chin and gazed at a fold in his robes. I have said more than I intended. So, for all those reasons and others besides, I agree with Nasuada. You were right to stay your hand when you discovered this Sloan in Hellgrind. As inconvenient as this episode has been, it would have been far worse, and for you as well, if you had killed to please yourself, and not in self-defense or in service to others. Nasawada nodded. That was well spoken. Throughout, Arya listened with an inscrutable expression. Whatever her own thoughts on the matter were, she did not divulge them. Orin and Nasawada pressed Eragon with a number of questions about the oaths he had laid upon Sloane, as well as queries about the remainder of his trip. The interrogation continued for so long, Nasawada had a tray of cool cider, fruit and meat pies brought into the pavilion, along with a haunch of a steer for Safira. Nasawada and Orin had ample opportunity to eat between questions. However, they kept Eragon so busy talking he managed to consume only two bites of fruit and a few sips of cider to wet his throat. At long last, King Orin bade them farewell and departed to review the status of his cavalry. 
Arya left a minute later explaining that she needed to report to Queen Islanzadi, and to, as she said, heat a tub of water, wash the sand from my skin, and return my features to their usual shape. I do not feel myself, with the tips of my ears missing, my eyes round and level, and the bones of my face in the wrong places. When she was alone with Aragon and Sephira, Nasawada sighed and leaned her head against the back of the chair. Aragon was shocked by how tired she appeared. Gone were her previous vitality and strength of presence. Gone was the fire from her eyes. She had, he realized, been pretending to be stronger than she was in order to avoid tempting her enemies and demoralizing the Varden with the spectacle of her weakness. Are you ill? he asked. She nodded toward her arms. Not exactly. It's taking me longer to recuperate than I had anticipated. Some days are worse than others. If you want, I can... No, thank you, but no. Do not tempt me. One rule of the trial of the long knives is that you must allow your wounds to heal at their own pace without magic. Otherwise the contestants will not have endured the full measure of pain from their cuts. That's barbaric! A slow smile touched her lips. Maybe so, but it is what it is, and I would not fail so late in the trial merely because I could not withstand a bit of an ache. What if your wounds fester? Then they fester, and I shall pay the price for my mistake. But I doubt they will, while Angela ministers to me. She has an amazing storehouse of knowledge where medicinal plants are concerned. I half believe she could tell you the true name of every species of grass on the plains east of here, merely by feeling their leaves. Sephira, who had been so still she appeared asleep, now yawned, nearly touching the floor and the ceiling with the tips of her open jaws, and shook her head and neck, sending the flecks of light reflected by her scales spinning about the tent with dizzying speed. Straightening in her seat, Nasuada said, Ah, I am sorry. I know this has been tedious. You have both been very patient. Thank you. Aragon knelt and placed his right hand over hers. You do not need to worry about me, Nasawada. I know my duty. I have never aspired to rule. That is not my destiny. And if ever I am offered the chance to sit upon a throne, I shall refuse and see that it goes to someone who is better suited than I to lead our race. You are a good person, Aragon, murmured Nasawada, and pressed his hand between hers. Then she chuckled. What with you, Roran and Murtag, I seem to spend most of my time worrying about members of your family. Aragon bridled at the statement. Murtag is no family of mine. Of course, forgive me. But still, you must admit, it's startling how much bother the three of you have caused both the Empire and the Varden. It's a talent of ours, joked Aragon. It runs in their blood, said Sephira. Wherever they go, they get themselves entangled in the worst danger possible. She nudged Aragon in the arm. Especially this one. What else can you expect of people from Palankar Valley? Descendants all of a mad king. But not mad themselves, said Nasawada. At least I don't think so. It's hard to tell at times. She laughed. 
If you, Roran, and Murtag were locked in the same cell, I'm not sure who would survive. Aragon laughed as well. Roran, he's not about to let a little thing like death stand between him and Katrina. Nasuada's smile became slightly strained. No, I suppose he wouldn't at that. For a score of heartbeats, she was silent. Then, goodness me, how selfish I am. The day is almost done, and here I am detaining you, merely so I can enjoy a minute or two of idle conversation. The pleasure is mine. Yes, but there are better places than this for talk among friends. After what you have been through, I expect you would like a wash, a change, and a hearty meal, no? You must be famished. Aragon glanced at the apple he still held, and regretfully concluded it would be impolite to continue eating it when his audience with Nasawada was drawing to a close. Nasawada caught his look and said, Your face answers for you, Shadeslayer. You have the guise of a winter-starved wolf. Well, I shall not torment you any longer. Go and bathe, and garb yourself in your finest tunic. When you are presentable, I would be most pleased if you would consent to join me for my evening meal. Understand you would not be my only guest, for the affairs of the Varden demand my constant attention, but you would brighten the proceedings considerably for me if you chose to attend. Aragon fought back a grimace at the thought of having to spend hours more parrying verbal thrusts from those who sought to use him for their own advantage or to satisfy their curiosity about riders and dragons. Still, Nasawada was not to be denied, so he bowed and agreed to her request. A Feast with Friends Aragon and Sephira left Nasawada's crimson pavilion, with the contingent of elves ranged about them, and walked to the small tent that had been assigned to him when they had joined the Varden at the Burning Plains. There he found a hogshead of boiling water waiting for him, the coils of steam opalescent in the oblique light from the large evening sun. Ignoring it for the moment, he ducked inside the tent. After checking to ensure that none of his few possessions had been disturbed during his absence, Aragon unburdened himself of his pack and carefully removed his armour, storing it beneath his cot. It needed to be wiped and oiled, but that was a task that would have to wait. Then he reached even farther underneath the cot, his fingers scraping the fabric wall beyond and groped in the darkness until his hand came into contact with a long, hard object. Grasping it, he lay the heavy cloth-wrapped bundle across his knees. He picked apart the knots in the wrapping, and then, starting at the thickest end of the bundle, began to unwind the coarse strips of canvas. Inch by inch, the scuffed leather hilt of Murtag's hand-and-a-half sword came into view. Aragon stopped when he had exposed the hilt, the crossguard, and a fair expanse of the gleaming blade, which was as jagged as a saw, from where Murtag had blocked Aragon's blows with Zarok. Aragon sat and stared at the weapon, conflicted. He did not know what had prompted him, but the day after the battle he had returned to the plateau and retrieved the sword from the morass of trampled dirt where Murtag had dropped it. Even after only a single night exposed to the elements, the steel had acquired a mottled veil of rust. With a word, he had dispelled the scrim of corrosion. Perhaps it was because Murtag had stolen his own sword 
that Aragon felt compelled to take up Murtag's, as if the exchange, unequal and involuntary though it was, minimized his loss. Perhaps it was because he wished to claim a memento of that bloody conflict, and perhaps it was because he still harbored a sense of latent affection for Murtag, despite the grim circumstances that had turned them against each other. No matter how much Aragon abhorred what Murtag had become and pitied him for it too, he could not deny the connection that existed between them. Theirs was a shared fate. If not for an accident of birth, he would have been raised in Urubain and Murtag in Palancar Valley, and then their current positions might well have been reversed. Their lives were inexorably intertwined. As he gazed at the silver steel, Aragon composed a spell that would smooth the wrinkles from the blade, close the wedge-shaped gaps along the edges, and restore the strength of the temper. He wondered, however, if he ought to. The scar that Durza had given him he had kept as a reminder of their encounter, at least until the dragons erased it during the Agate Blodren. Should he keep this scar as well, then? Would it be healthy for him to carry such a painful memory on his hip? And what sort of message would it send to the rest of the Varden if he chose to wield the blade of another betrayer? Zarok had been a gift from Brom. Aragon could not have refused to accept it, nor was he sorry he had. But he was under no such compulsion to claim as his own the nameless blade that rested upon his thighs. I need a sword, he thought, but not this sword. He wrapped the blade again in its shroud of canvas and slid it back under the cot. Then, with a fresh shirt and tunic tucked under his elbow, he left the tent and went to bathe. When he was clean and garbed in the fine Lamare shirt and tunic, he set out to meet with Nasuada near the tents of the healers, as she had requested. Safira flew, for as she said, It is too cramped for me on the ground. I keep knocking over tents. Besides, if I walk with you, such a herd of people will gather around us. We will hardly be able to move. Nasawada was waiting for him by a row of three flagpoles, upon which a half-dozen gaudy pennants hung limp in the cooling air. She had changed since they had parted, and now wore a light summer frock the colour of pale straw. Her dense, moss-like hair she had piled high on her head in an intricate mass of knots and braids. A single white ribbon held the arrangement in place. She smiled at Aragon. He smiled in return and quickened his pace. As he drew close, his guards mingled with her guards, with a conspicuous display of suspicion on the part of the Nighthawks, and studied indifference on the part of the elves. Nasawada took his arm, and while they spoke in comfortable tones, guided his steps as they ambled through the sea of tents. Above, Safira circled the camp, content to wait until they arrived at their destination, before she went to the effort of landing. Aragon and Nasawada spoke of many things. Little of consequence passed between their lips, but her wit, her gaiety, and the thoughtfulness of her remarks charmed him. It was easy for him to talk to her, and easier to listen, and that very ease caused him to realize how much he cared for her. Her hold on him far exceeded that of a liege lord over her vassal, 
It was a new feeling for him, their bond. Aside from his Aunt Marion, of whom he had but faint memories, he had grown up in a world of men and boys, and he had never had the opportunity to be friends with a woman. His inexperience made him uncertain, and his uncertainty made him awkward. But Nasawada did not seem to notice. She stopped him before a tent that glowed from within with the light of many candles and that hummed with a multitude of unintelligible voices. Now we must dive into the swamp of politics again. Prepare yourself. She swept back the entrance flap to the tent, and Aragon jumped as a host of people shouted, Surprise! A wide trestle table laden with food dominated the centre of the tent, and at the table were sitting Roran and Katrina, twenty or so of the villagers from Carvajal, including Horst and his family, Angela the herbalist, Jode and his wife Helen, and several people Aragon did not recognise, but who had the look of sailors. A half-dozen children had been playing on the ground next to the table. They paused in their games and stared at Nasawada and Aragon with open mouths, seemingly unable to decide which of these two strange figures deserved more of their attention. Aragon grinned, overwhelmed. Before he could think of what to say, Angela raised her flagon and piped, Well, don't just stand there gaping. Come in, sit down. I'm hungry. As everyone laughed, Nasawada pulled Aragon toward the two empty chairs next to Roran. Aragon helped Nasawada to her seat, and as she sank into the chair, he asked, Did you arrange this? Roran suggested whom you might want to attend, but yes, the original idea was mine, and I made a few additions of my own to the table, as you can see. Thank you, said Aragon, humbled. Thank you so much. He saw Elva sitting cross-legged in the far left corner of the tent, a platter of food on her lap. The other children shunned her. Aragon could not imagine they had much in common, and none of the adults, save Angela, seemed comfortable in her presence. The small, narrow-shouldered girl gazed up at him from under her black bangs with her horrible violet eyes, and mouthed what he guessed was, Greetings, Shade Slayer. Greetings, Farseer. He mouthed in return. Her small, pink lips parted in what would have been a charming smile, if not for the fell orbs that burned above them. Aragon gripped the arms of his chair as the table shook, the dishes rattled, and the walls of the tent flapped. Then the back of the tent bulged and parted as Sephira pushed her head inside. Meat, she said. I smell meat. For the next few hours, Aragon lost himself in a blur of food, drink, and the pleasure of good company. It was like returning home. The wine flowed like water, and after they had drained their cups once or twice, the villagers forgot their deference and treated him as one of their own, which was the greatest gift they could give. They were equally generous with Nasuada although they refrained from making jokes at her expense, as they sometimes did with Aragon. Pale smoke filled the tent as the candles consumed themselves. Beside him, Aragon heard the boom of Roran's laughter ring forth again and again, and across the table the even deeper boom of Horst's laugh. 
Muttering an incantation, Angela set to dancing a small man she had fashioned from a crust of sourdough bread, much to everyone's amusement. The children gradually overcame their fear of Sephira and dared to walk up to her and pet her snout. Soon they were clambering over her neck, hanging from her spikes and tugging at the crests above her eyes. Aragon laughed as he watched. Jode entertained the crowd with a song he had learnt from a book long ago. Tara danced a jig. Nasuara's teeth flashed as she tossed her head back. And Aragon, by popular request, recounted several of his adventures, including a detailed description of his flight from Carvajal with Brom, which was of special interest to his listeners. To think, said Gertrude, the round-faced healer, tugging on her shawl, we had a dragon in our valley and we never even knew it. With a pair of knitting needles produced from within her sleeves, she pointed at Aragon. To think I nursed you when your legs had been scraped from flying on Sephira, and I never suspected the cause. Shaking her head and clucking her tongue, she cast on with brown wool yarn and began to knit with a speed born of decades of practice. Elaine was the first to leave the party, pleading exhaustion brought on by her advanced stage of pregnancy. One of her sons, Baldor, went with her. Half an hour later, Nasawada also made to leave, explaining that the demands of her position prevented her from staying as long as she would like, but that she wished them health and happiness, and hoped they would continue to support her in her fight against the Empire. As she moved away from the table, Nasawada beckoned to Aragon. He joined her by the entrance. Turning her shoulder to the rest of the tent, she said, Aragon, I know that you need time to recover from your journey, and that you have affairs of your own that you must tend to. Therefore, tomorrow and the day after are yours to spend as you will. But on the morning of the third day, present yourself at my pavilion, and we shall talk about your future. I have a most important mission for you. My lady. Then he said, You keep Elva close at hand wherever you go, do you not? I. She is my safeguard against any danger that might slip past the Nighthawks. Also, her ability to divine what it is that pains people has proved enormously helpful. It is so much easier to obtain someone's cooperation when you are privy to all of their secret hurts. Are you willing to give that up? She studied him with a piercing gaze. You intend to remove your curse from Elva? I intend to try. Remember, I promised her I would. Yes, I was there. The crash of a falling chair distracted her for an instant. Then she said, Your promises will be the death of us. Elva is irreplaceable. No one else has her skill. And the service she provides, as I just testified, is worth more than a mountain of gold. I have even thought that of all of us, she alone might be able to defeat Galbatorix. She would be able to anticipate his every attack, and your spell would show her how to counter them. And as long as countering them did not require her to sacrifice her life, she would prevail. For the good of the Varden, Eragon, for the good of everyone in Allegasia, couldn't you feign your attempt to cure Elva? No, he said biting off the word as if it offended him. I would not do it, even if I could. It would be wrong. 
if we force Elva to remain as she is, she will turn against us, and I do not want her as an enemy. He paused. Then, at Nasawada's expression, added, Besides, there is a good chance I may not succeed. Removing such a vaguely worded spell is a difficult prospect at best. If I may make a suggestion. What? Be honest with Elva. Explain to her what she means to the Varden, and ask her if she will continue to carry her burden for the sake of all free people. She may refuse. She has every right to. But if she does, her character is not one we would want to rely upon anyway. And if she accepts, then it shall be of her own free will. With a slight frown, Nasawada nodded. I shall speak with her tomorrow. You should be present as well, to help me persuade her, and to lift your curse if we fail. Be at my pavilion three hours after dawn. And with that, she swept into the torch-lit night outside. Much later, when the candles guttered in their sockets, and the villagers began to disperse in twos and threes, Roran grasped Aragon's arm by the elbow and drew him through the back of the tent to stand by Sephira's side, where the others could not hear. What you said earlier about Hellgrind, was that all of it? asked Roran. His grip was like a pair of iron pincers clamped around Aragon's flesh. His eyes were hard and questioning, and also unusually vulnerable. Aragon held his gaze. If you trust me, Roran, never ask me that question again. It's not something you want to know. Even as he spoke, Aragon felt a deep sense of unease over having to conceal Sloane's existence from Roran and Katrina. He knew the deception was necessary, but it still made him uncomfortable to lie to his family. For a moment Aragon considered telling Roran the truth, but then he remembered all the reasons he had decided not to, and held his tongue. Roran hesitated, his face troubled. Then he set his jaw and released Aragon. I trust you. That's what family is for, after all, eh? Trust? That and killing each other? Roran laughed and rubbed his nose with a thumb. That too. He rolled his thick, round shoulders and reached up to massage his right one, a habit he had fallen into since the Razak had bitten him. I have another question. Oh? It is a boon, a favor I seek of you. A wry smile touched his lips and he shrugged. I never thought I would speak to you of this. You're younger than I. You've barely reached your manhood, and you're my cousin to boot. Speak of what? Stop beating around the bush. Of marriage, said Roran, and lifted his chin. Will you marry Katrina and me? It would please me if you would. And while I have refrained from mentioning it to her until I had your answer, I know Katrina would be honoured and delighted if you would consent to join us as man and wife. Astonished, Aragon was at a loss for words. At last he managed to stammer, Me? Then he hastened to say, I would be happy to do it, of course. But me? Is that really what you want? I'm sure Nasawada would agree to marry the two of you. You could have King Orin, a real king. He would leap at the chance to preside over the ceremony 
if it would help him earn my favour. I want you, Aragon, said Roran, and clapped him on the shoulder. You are a rider, and you are the only other living person who shares my blood. Murtag does not count. I cannot think of anyone else I would rather have tie the knot around my wrist and hers. Then, said Aragon, I shall. The air whooshed out of him as Roran embraced him and squeezed with all of his prodigious strength. He gasped slightly when Roran released him, and then, once his breath had returned, said, When? Nasawada has a mission planned for me. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm guessing it will keep me busy for some time. So maybe early next month, if events allow? Roran's shoulders bunched and knotted. He shook his head like a bull sweeping its horns through a clump of brambles. What about the day after tomorrow? So soon? Isn't that rushing it a bit? There would hardly be any time to prepare. People will think it's unseemly. Roran's shoulders rose, and the veins on his hands bulged as he opened and closed his fists. It can't wait. If we're not married and quick, the old women will have something far more interesting to gossip about than my impatience. Do you understand? It took Aragon a moment to grasp Roran's meaning, but once he did, Aragon could not stop a broad smile from spreading across his face. Roran's going to be a father, he thought. Still smiling, he said, I think so. The day after tomorrow it is. Aragon grunted as Roran hugged him again, pounding him on the back. With some difficulty, he freed himself. Grinning, Roran said, I am in your debt. Thank you. Now I must go share the news with Katrina, and we must do what we can to ready a wedding feast. I will let you know the exact hour once we decide on it. That sounds fine. Roran began walking toward the tent. Then he spun around and threw his arms out in the air as if he would gather the entire world to his breast. Aragon! I'm going to be married! With a laugh, Aragon waved his hand. Go on, you fool. She's waiting for you. Aragon climbed onto Sephira as the flaps of the tent closed over Roran. Bloodgum! he called. Quiet as a shadow, the elf glided into the light, his yellow eyes glowing like coals. Sephira and I are going to fly for a little while. We'll meet you at my tent. Shade Slayer said Blodgarm, and tilted his head. Then Sephira raised her massive wings, ran forward three steps, and launched herself over the rows of tents, battering them with wind as she flapped hard and fast. The movements of her body beneath him shook Aragon, and he gripped the spike in front of him for support. Sephira spiralled upward above the twinkling camp until it was an inconsequential patch of light dwarfed by the dark landscape that surrounded it. There she remained, floating between the heavens and the earth, and all was silent. Aragon lay his head on her neck and stared up at the glittering band of dust that spanned the sky. Rest if you want, little one, said Sephira. I shall not let you fall. And he rested, and visions beset him of a circular stone city that stood in the centre of an endless plain, 
and of a small girl who wandered among the narrow winding alleys within and who sang a haunting melody. And the night wore on toward morning. Intersecting Sagas It was just after dawn, and Aragon was sitting on his cot oiling his male hauberk, when one of the Varden's archers came to him and begged him to heal his wife, who was suffering from a malignant tumour. Even though he was supposed to be at Nasuada's pavilion in less than an hour, Aragon agreed and accompanied the man to his tent. Aragon found his wife much weakened from the growth, and it took all of his skill to extract the insidious tendrils from her flesh. The effort left him tired, but he was pleased that he was able to save the woman from a long and painful death. Afterward, Aragon rejoined Sephira outside of the archer's tent and stood with her for a few minutes, rubbing the muscles near the base of her neck. Humming, Sephira flicked her sinuous tail and twisted her head and shoulders so that he had better access to her smooth-plated underside. She said, While you were occupied in there, other petitioners came to seek an audience with you, but Blodgarm and his ilk turned them away, for their requests were not urgent. Is that so? He dug his fingers under the edge of one of her large neck scales, scratching even harder. Perhaps I should emulate Nasawada. How so? On the sixth day of every week, from morning until noon, she grants an audience to everyone who wishes to bring requests or disputes before her. I could do the same. I like the idea, said Sephira. Only you will have to be careful that you do not expend too much of your energy on people's demands. We must be ready to fight the Empire at a moment's notice. She pushed her neck against his hand, humming even louder. I need a sword, Aragon said. Then get one. Hmm. Aragon continued to scratch her until she pulled away and said, You will be late for Nasawada unless you hurry. Together they started toward the center of the camp and Nasawada's pavilion. It was less than a quarter of a mile away, so Sephira walked with him instead of soaring among the clouds as she had before. About a hundred feet from the pavilion they chanced upon Angela, the herbalist. She was kneeling between two tents, pointing at a square of leather draped across a low, flat rock. On the leather lay a jumbled pile of finger-length bones, branded with a different symbol on each facet, the knuckle bones of a dragon, with which she had read Aragon's future in Tirm. Opposite Angela sat a tall woman with broad shoulders, tanned, weather-beaten skin, black hair braided in a long, thick rope down her back, and a face that was still handsome, despite the hard lines that the years had carved around her mouth. She wore a russet dress that had been made for a shorter woman. Her wrists stuck out several inches from the ends of her sleeves. She had tied a strip of dark cloth around each wrist, but the strip on the left had loosened and slipped toward her elbow. Aragon saw thick layers of scars where it had been. They were the sort of scars one could only get from the constant chafing of manacles. At some point, he realized, she had been captured by her enemies, and she had fought 
fought until she had torn open her wrists to the bone, if her scars were anything to judge by. He wondered whether she had been a criminal or a slave, and he felt his countenance darken as he considered the thought of someone being so cruel as to allow such harm to befall a prisoner under his control, even if it was self-inflicted. Next to the woman was a serious-looking teenage girl, just entering into the full bloom of her adult beauty. The muscles of her forearms were unusually large, as if she had been an apprentice to a smith or a swordsman, which was highly improbable for a girl, no matter how strong she might be. Angela had just finished saying something to the woman and her companion, when Aragorn and Sephira halted behind the curly-haired witch. With a single motion, Angela gathered up the knuckle-bones in the leather square and tucked them under the yellow sash at her waist. Standing, she flashed Aragorn and Sephira a brilliant smile. My, you both have the most impeccable sense of timing. You always seem to turn up whenever the drop spindle of fate begins to spin. The drop spindle of fate? questioned Aragorn. She shrugged. What? You can't expect brilliance all the time, not even from me. She gestured at the two strangers, who had also stood, and said, Aragorn, will you consent to give them your blessing? They have endured many dangers, and a hard road yet lies before them. I am sure they would appreciate whatever protection the benediction of a dragon rider may convey. Aragorn hesitated. He knew that Angela rarely cast the dragon bones for the people who sought her services, usually only for those whom Solombum deigned to speak with, as such a prognostication was no false act of magic, but rather a true foretelling that could reveal the mysteries of the future. That Angela had chosen to do this for the handsome woman with the scars on her wrists and the teenage girl with the forearms of a swordfighter told him they were people of note, people who had had and would have important roles in shaping the Allegasia to be. As if to confirm his suspicions, he spotted Solombum in his usual form of a cat with large tufted ears, lurking behind the corner of a nearby tent, watching the proceedings with enigmatic yellow eyes. And yet Aragon still hesitated, haunted by the memory of the first and last blessing he had bestowed how, because of his relative unfamiliarity with the ancient language, he had distorted the life of an innocent child. Sephira? he asked. Her tail whipped through the air. Do not be so reluctant. You have learned from your mistake, and you shall not make it again. Why then should you withhold your blessing from those who may benefit from it? Bless them, I say, and do it properly this time. What are your names? he asked. If it please you, Shadeslayer, said the tall, black-haired woman with the hint of an accent he could not place. Names have power, and we would prefer ours remain unknown. She kept her gaze angled slightly downward, but her tone was firm and unyielding. The girl uttered a small gasp as if shocked by the woman's effrontery. Aragon nodded, neither upset nor surprised, although the woman's reticence had piqued his curiosity even more. He would have liked to know their names, 
but they were not essential for what he was about to do. Pulling the glove off his right hand, he placed his palm on the middle of the woman's warm forehead. She flinched at the contact, but did not retreat. Her nostrils flared. The corners of her mouth thinned, a crease appeared between her eyebrows, and he felt her tremble, as if his touch pained her, and she were fighting the urge to knock aside his arm. In the background, Aragon was vaguely aware of Blodgarm stalking closer, ready to pounce on the woman should she prove to be hostile. Disconcerted by her reaction, Aragon broached the barrier in his mind, immersed himself in the flow of magic, and with the full power of the ancient language, said, Atragulie un ilian tother ono un atra ono, weise scolero fra rauta. By imbuing the phrase with energy as he would the words of a spell, he ensured that it would shape the course of events and thereby improve the woman's lot in life. He was careful to limit the amount of energy he transferred into the blessing, for unless he put checks on it, a spell of that sort would feed off his body until it absorbed all of his vitality, leaving him an empty husk. Despite his caution, the drop in his strength was more than he expected. His vision dimmed and his legs wobbled and threatened to collapse underneath him. A moment later, he recovered. It was with a sense of relief that he lifted his hand from the woman's brow, a sentiment that she seemed to share, for she stepped back and rubbed her arms. She looked to him like a person trying to cleanse herself of some foul substance. Moving on, Aragon repeated the procedure with the teenage girl. Her face widened as he released the spell, as if she could feel it becoming part of her body. She curtsied. Thank you, Shadeslayer. We are in your debt. I hope that you succeed in defeating Galbatorix and the Empire. She turned to leave, but stopped when Sephira snorted and snaked her head past Aragon and Angela, so she loomed above the two women. Bending her neck, Sephira breathed first upon the face of the older woman and then upon the face of the younger, and projecting her thoughts with such force as to overwhelm all but the thickest defences, for she and Aragon had noticed that the black-haired woman had a well-armoured mind, she said, Good hunting, O wild ones! May the wind rise under your wings, may the sun always be at your backs, and may you catch your prey napping, and wolf-eyes! I hope that when you find the one who left your paws in his traps, you do not kill him too quickly. Both women stiffened when Sephira began to speak. Afterward, the elder clapped her fists against her chest and said, That I shall not, O oh beautiful huntress. Then she bowed to Angela, saying, Train hard, strike first, seer. Blade singer? With a swirl of skirts, she and the teenager strode away and soon were lost from sight in the maze of identical grey tents. What, no marks upon their foreheads? Aragon asked Sephira. Elva was unique. I shall not brand anyone else in a like manner. What happened in Farthandur just happened. Instinct drove me. Beyond that I cannot explain. As the three of them walked toward Nasuada's pavilion, Aragon glanced at Angela. Who were they? Her lips quirked. 
pilgrims on their own quest? That is hardly an answer, he complained. It is not my habit to hand out secrets like candied nuts on winter solstice, especially not when they belong to others. He was silent for a few paces. Then, when someone refuses to tell me a certain piece of information, it only makes me that much more determined to find out the truth. I hate being ignorant. For me, a question unanswered is like a thorn in my side that pains me every time I move until I can pluck it out. You have my sympathy. Why is that? Because if that is so, you must spend every waking hour in mortal agony, for life is full of unanswerable questions. Sixty feet from Nasawada's pavilion, a contingent of pikemen marching through camp blocked their way. While they waited for the warriors to file past, Aragon shivered and blew on his hands. I wish we had time for a meal. Quick as ever, Angela said, It's the magic, isn't it? It has worn you down. He nodded, sticking a hand into one of the pouches that hung from her sash. Angela pulled out a hard brown lump, flecked with shiny flax seeds. Here, this will hold you until lunch. What is it? She thrust it at him, insistent. Eat it, you'll like it, trust me. As he took the oily lump from between her fingers, she grasped his wrist with her other hand and held him in place while she inspected the half-inch-high calluses on his knuckles. How very clever of you, she said. They are as ugly as the warts on a toad, but who cares if they help keep your skin intact, eh? I like this. I like this quite a lot. Were you inspired by the dwarves' Askud Gamon? Nothing escapes you, does it? he asked. Let it escape. I only concern myself with things that exist. Aragon blinked, thrown as he often was by her verbal trickery. She tapped a callus with the tip of one of her short fingernails. I would do this myself, except that it would catch on the wool when I'm spinning or knitting. You knit with your own yarn? he said, surprised that she would engage in anything so ordinary. Of course. It's a wonderful way to relax. Besides, if I didn't, where would I get a sweater with Devaler's ward against mad rabbits knit in the Liduan cavadia across the inside of the chest, or a snood that was dyed yellow-green and bright pink? Mad rabbits? She tossed her thick curls. You would be amazed how many magicians have died after being bitten by mad rabbits. It's far more common than you might think. Aragon stared at her. Do you think she's jesting? he asked Sephira. Ask her and find out. She would only answer with another riddle. The pikemen having gone, Aragon, Sephira, and Angela continued toward the pavilion, accompanied by Solombum, who had joined them without Aragon noticing. Picking her way around piles of dung left by the horses of King Orin's cavalry, Angela said, So tell me, aside from your fight with the Razak, did anything terribly interesting happen to you during your trip? You know how I love to hear about interesting things. Aragon smiled, thinking of the spirits that had visited him and Arya. However, he did not want to discuss them, so instead he said, Since you ask, 
quite a few interesting things happened. For example, I met a hermit named Tenga, living in the ruins of an elf tower. He possessed the most amazing library. In it were seven... Angela stopped so abruptly, Eragon kept walking another three paces before he caught himself and turned back. The witch seemed stunned, as if she had taken a hard knock to her head. Padding toward her, Solombum leaned against her legs and gazed upward. Angela wet her lips, then said, Are? She coughed once. Are you sure? His name was Tenga. Have you met him? Solombum hissed, and the hair on his back stood straight out. Eragon edged away from the weircat, eager to escape the reach of his claws. Met him? With a bitter laugh, Angela planted her hands on her hips. Met him? Why, I did better than that. I was his apprentice for, for an unfortunate number of years. Eragon had never expected Angela to willingly reveal anything about her past. Eager to learn more, he asked, When did you meet him? And where? Long ago and far away. However, we parted badly, and I have not seen him for many, many years. Angela frowned. In fact, I thought he was already dead. Sophira spoke then, saying, Since you were Tenga's apprentice, do you know what question he's trying to answer? I have not the slightest idea. Tenga always had a question he was trying to answer. If he succeeded, he immediately chose another one and so on. He may have answered a hundred questions since I last saw him, or he may still be gnashing his teeth over the same conundrum as when I left him. Which was? Whether the phases of the moon influenced the number and quality of the opals that form in the roots of the Bayor Mountains as is commonly held among the dwarves. But how could you prove that? objected Aragon. Angela shrugged. If anyone could, it would be Tenga. He may be deranged, but his brilliance is nonetheless for it. He is a man who kicks at cats, said Solombum, as if that summed up Tenga's entire character. Then Angela clapped her hands together and said, no more. Eat your sweet, Aragon, and let us go to Nasawada. Making Amends You are late, said Nasawada, as Aragon and Angela found seats in the row of chairs arranged in a semicircle before Nasawada's high-backed throne. Also seated in the semicircle were Elva and her caretaker Greta, the old woman who had pleaded with Eragon in Farthandur to bless her charge. As before, Sephira lay outside the pavilion and stuck her head through an opening at one end so that she could participate in the meeting. Solombum had curled up in a ball next to her head. He appeared to be sound asleep, except for occasional flicks of his tail. Along with Angela, Eragon made his apologies for their tardiness, and then he listened as Nasawada explained to Elva the value of her abilities to the Varden. As if she doesn't already know, Aragon commented to Sephira, and entreated her to release Aragon from his promise to try to undo the effects of his blessing. She said she understood that what she was asking of Elva was difficult, but the fate of the entire land was at stake, 
And was it not worth sacrificing one's own comfort to help rescue Alagasia from Galbatorix's evil clutches? It was a magnificent speech, eloquent, impassioned, and full of arguments intended to appeal to Elva's more noble sentiments. Elva, who had been resting her small, pointed chin on her fists, raised her head and said, No! Shocked silence pervaded the pavilion. Transferring her unblinking gaze from one person to the next, she elaborated, Eragon, Angela, you both know what it is like to share someone's thoughts and emotions as they die. You know how horrible, how wrenching it is, how it feels as if part of yourself has vanished forever. And that is only from the death of one person. Neither of you has to endure the experience unless you want to, whereas I, I have no choice but to share them all. I feel every death around me. Even now I can feel the life ebbing out of Sefton, one of your swordsmen, Nasuada, who was wounded on the burning plains and I know what words I could say to him that would lessen his terror of obliteration. His fear is so great, oh, it makes me tremble. With an incoherent cry, she cast up her arms before her face, as if to ward off a blow. Then, ah, he has gone. But there are others. There are always others. The line of dead never ends. The bitter, mocking quality of her voice intensified, a travesty of a child's normal speech. Do you truly understand, Nasawada, Lady Nightstalker, she who would be queen of the world? Do you truly understand? I am privy to all of the agony around me, whether physical or mental. I feel it as if it were my own and Eragon's magic drives me to alleviate the discomfort of those who suffer, regardless of the cost to myself. And if I resist the urge as I am this very moment, my body rebels against me, my stomach turns acid, my head throbs as if a dwarf is hammering on it, and I find it hard to move, much less think. Is this... What you would wish on me, Nasuada, night and day I have no respite from the pain of the world. Since Eragon blessed me, I have known nothing but hurt and fear, never happiness or pleasure. The lighter side of life, the things that make this existence bearable, these are denied me. Never! Do I see them? Never do I share in them. Only darkness, only the combined misery of all the men, women, and children within a mile battering at me like a midnight storm. This blessing has deprived me of the opportunity to be like other children. It has forced my body to mature faster than normal, and my mind even faster still. Eragon may be able to remove this ghastly ability of mine and the compulsion that accompanies it, but he can.
cannot return me to what I was, nor what I should be, not without destroying who I have become. I am a freak, neither a child nor an adult, forever doomed to stand apart. I am not blind, you know. I see how you recoil when you hear me speak. She shook her head. No, this is too much to ask of me. I will not continue like this for the sake of you, Nasawada, nor the Vada, nor the whole of Alagasia, nor even for my dear mother, were she still alive today. It is not worth it, not for anything. I could go live by myself so that I would be free of other people's afflictions, but I do not want to live like that. No, the only solution is for Eragon to attempt to correct his mistake. Her lips curved in a sly smile. And if you disagree with me, if you think I am being stupid and selfish, why then you would do well to remember that I am hardly more than a swaddling babe, and have yet to celebrate my second birthday. Only fools expect an infant to martyr herself for the greater good. But infant or not, I have made my decision, and nothing you can say will convince me otherwise. In this, I am as iron.'